This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. Welcome back to the Art of Darkness podcast, podcast about the dark side of creativity. Uh, I am one of the hosts. Last time I said I was the other host, but I am, <laughs> I am Brad Kelly. This is my dear friend and co-host and partner in this craziness, Kevin Kautzman. Kevin, how are you doing? Never better, Brad. I'm so excited. This is a walk down memory lane. It is. We are is. going all the way back to the source. This is a core episode. This is a very special core episode. We've never done anything like this. I'm a little nervous. Please be gentle uh, and, and make sure it's just aim up, aim <laughs> up three, four inches higher than you think you should, Brad. Yeah, that's that's the that's the moral of the story here, frankly. <laughs> Aim up, aim. Are you stone cold sober for this one, Brad? Are you? Because I, I am. am. I okay, am. good. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, other than I, I ate a bunch of majoon beforehand, and we'll get to what that is. Um, hey, this is this is a family show. <laughs> majoon. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so yeah. So as Kevin mentioned, this is this is a little bit different than than maybe our normal episode in that we've actually it's a core episode which as people who've been listening long art of darkness know that means we're going to go for uh as long as it takes to tell the story of our subject in this case william burroughs william seward burroughs was that nailed I mean, yeah, it <laughs> nailed it and, 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 and for those for those who don't know this was our first episode that we ever did was william seward burroughs and how long is that episode? Is it 55 minutes or something? Yeah, it's it? like right on it. It's Punched an hour an or hour. less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And we had no idea what we were doing. We were just starting the podcast. It was during the, the plague regime. Mm -hmm. And Brad and I just were trying something out. And mm -hmm. we've learned a lot. We've been a lot of places since then. Yeah. We've been all around the world. We've right. met so many wonderful characters living and dead. Uh, mostly dead. Our subjects are all dead. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Burroughs is dead. Uh, <laughs> and here we are. We're, we're going back to the scene of the crime, I would say here. I think yeah. I think that's right. And it's funny, you know, just uh, I hadn't listened to, to that episode since, you know, sometime shortly after it came out. Um, and I'm listening back. And now that I've got some experience thrown together in Art of Darkness episode, listen, I'm like, Man, you are screwing this up. Like, <laughs> you, what what are you doing, man? <laughs> I will say, for Art of Darkness maximalists, I, I imagine because we've been on the the journey, we're inside it. We're mm -hmm. we're piloting the ship. We're mm -hmm. operating the drone, uh, right. and 
So we know what it feels like, but I, I can imagine listening back. It might be sort of interesting and fun to go all the way back to the beginning to watch the show evolve through to mm-hmm. sort of finding its its legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I no shame in that, Brad. No, I mean, no, we, it was just we were figuring we were figuring it yeah. out. It was like a demo tape. You don't listen back to a demo tape and say, "Oh, this was as produced as it could have been." You know? a- absolutely, that's mm-hmm. right. And yeah. you know, sometimes you release the demo tapes and people get really into it. This mm-hmm. is one of the fun things about podcasting is you know it's totally independent. Our podcast is independent. We don't have you know the only financial backing we get is from our patrons, Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod, or people who uh, donate on PayPal. You can find the link at ArtofDarkPod.com. That's all we get. We're not backed by anybody we don't have any weird shadow money it's just two guys michigan minnesota putting this this crazy show together and learning and mm-hmm. uh finding an audience and, and connecting with an audience we have a telegram t.me slash art of dark pod you see i'm, I'm getting, kind of getting into housekeeping yeah. i want to make it clear too we are only going to do this revisit for burrows Nobody else is going to get. I think that's right. Yeah. Nobody else is is going to get that that the treatment. I don't think they need it. I think mm. pretty shortly after Burroughs, we kind of started to figure it out because we did Oscar Wilde after. Like, was mm-hmm. that the first one that I was, did? Was that Oscar was the first Wilde? episode you did? And I don't know how long. It was longer than an hour. It was like ninety it was minutes pretty... or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, and and we have the dark rooms <laughs> where we have guests come on. We have those as kind of like a space for you know, expanding on the episodes and continuing the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, last yeah. bit of housekeeping I'll say is if you want to reach out to us, we love hearing from people. Brad Mans, the X, the Twitter, uh, as I like to call it now, Gab Light uh, <laughs> X. <laughs> um, I know, I've so, never been on Gab, so I don't yeah, totally get that joke, but well, I see what you're saying. You're already on so many lists. It doesn't matter anymore, <laughs> Brad. But yeah, you probably probably better off. You probably don't need to be on there. Uh, in any case, um, he, he does a fine job. And for people who you know don't follow, you should. It's Brad really yeah. curates a, a very cool account, and that's at Art of, yeah. Art of Dark Pod on the Bird website. And then uh, if you want to reach us, you can email us to artofdarkpod at gmail.com. We love hearing from people. If you're a patron, especially, and you want to make a suggestion yeah. and you want to get uh, a name added to the spreadsheet arena that Brad mm-hmm. keeps, artofdarkpod at gmail.com, or just hit us up through Patreon, which is the best way to support the show, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. We keep that list current. And just worth noting, like if you make a request, it's not going to happen in two months because we have quite literally have this entire year, season four, 2024, is planned, planned, including the Mm -hmm. book club. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is for the for the Patreon group too. So uh, mm-hmm. you find the link to that at the website artofdarkpod.com. I'm so excited for this. Red, we got yeah. housekeeping out of the way already. Good, good, uh, good well, stuff. What are we yeah. What are we going to do today? Well, let's. I mean, let's get into it. I mean, I was thinking about you know the, our typical question is you know in this case I would ask you, Kevin, what do you know about this guy? Let's shift it slightly because we've already covered him. And let me ask, the why, do you, <laughs> why is why do you think William S. Burroughs is a good candidate to cover on Art of Dark. He, not, not saying the best, but why would he make a list to cover on this show? Well, do you think? I mean, and maybe even like, why was he the first person we immediately thought of? Yeah. Uh, I mean, his work is dark mm-hmm. and severe and has the quality of, it almost like oozes menace. Yeah. Uh, he has a sense of humor, though. It's a very wicked sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was a straight up criminal, a murderer, mm-hmm. uh, 
a, what a man slaughterer, a mm. man, a bad, bad dude. Yeah. Um, Someone died and it was his fault, like unquestionably. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm. And and yet he they would feature him on SNL like into right. the 80s. So he was right. this pop icon despite being a boy fucker, pederast. Pardon my French. I mean, there's no, you can't put lipstick on that pig. I mean, he's a bad, bad dude, but wildly influential from the Midwest too. Yeah. yeah. From St. Louis. Yeah. Some Midwest boys. It's interesting to to just watch that career, you know? Yeah. 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 And of a period too, that's just such a strange, and and you and I are kind of one of the themes of the show. We are into high strangeness, like Mm -hmm. in another, in an alternate universe, you and I are doing you know we've added to the pile of you know weird podcasts right oh There's i would a definitely lot of i like yeah. yeah if i if i had another several hours in a day i might do a weird podcast <laughs> well there's no and and there's no telling what art, the art of darkness uh situation will look like in five mm-hmm. years but if we can mm-hmm. continue to get support and grow support there's there there's going to be a lot of opportunities for you and i to do other things and i have Indeed. other other ideas but this is the show we're focused on now but like like i said in an alternate universe you and i are doing a show about Gobekli Tepe and the right. lights and the you know that we I can totally that do that show too. <laughs> yeah, it's just there. There are a lot of those shows, and prior to Art of Darkness, there was nothing like Art of Darkness. So we found our our mm. niche. Indeed. Um, yeah. Indeed. So yeah. So and no, Burroughs I think touches on all that stuff. He does. I feel like I, I yeah. I feel like Burroughs like didn't breathe his last breath. I feel like he he probably like he he's he, he's like a character out of the X Files. It's like it's hard to imagine him dying. It's more like he just just disappears. Yeah, he just like phase shifts into like some other, you know, he's watching you right now or something. Right. He might not be dead. Yeah, right. right. He might never have been alive. Uh, Yeah, right. For sure. Yeah. He's he's this larger than life mid-century American uh, icon and and also like influential in terms of the cut up method like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and there are, uh, uh, we'll get into his influence a little bit. I mean, I think when, you know, I, I don't know exactly the how to de- define the beginning of the American counterculture in the 20th century. Of course, there's always earlier examples of something that fed into it. But certainly, I think if you say the word counterculture to a person who's, you know, reasonably literate in American sort of cultural history, they're going to identify somewhere in the 50s and 60s, things really ramped up. And Burroughs was right there. I mean, you know, in the 60s, he was the literary arm, whereas, you know, the Beatles and, and you know, a handful of other people were the music arm and and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's another reason to talk about him, I think, <laughs> is part of the, you know, one of the things we're trying to do on this show is like figure out just what the hell happened culturally. <laughs> Sure. And, and he's also one yeah. of these guys that's uh, uncancelable. Like I remember mm-hmm. some years ago, not that many years ago, I was in Paris and there was this massive Burroughs exhibition and I'm walking around going, this guy was a bastard. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> right, like, I right. guess. Cool. Yeah. But yeah. like, why? So this guy gets a pass. Yeah. Like it, that's so that's because he's he's one of these sort of patron saints of a certain corner of the American, uh, I guess you say the left. I mean, I don't even know what the, it's like he was countercultural, but then the counterculture took over and they're the establishment mm-hmm. now and they have their mythos around right. the sixties and the seventies. And this guy mm-hmm. is a central part of that, despite being just like 
truly a monster, a monstrous yes. character, probably by his own admission as well. And I'm sure. Oh, I think by the end, we'll get there. And by the end of his life, uh, he would have, you know, he was spending much of the final years of his life just reckoning with what he'd done, you know. So, um, so yeah, it's it's not he doesn't he doesn't get off scot free in the guilt department. Let's you know internally that internal state of suffering for the you know oh. the sins you've committed. I mean, you um, know how you know how you like you, you maybe you get high, you take a psychedelic, uh, and you go into the, just one of those deep, dark, retrospective pits that lasts. 14 hours i wonder what his were like they were pretty they were not pretty <laughs> oh they were not pretty well let's let's get into it i'm gonna do a little weird thing here you mentioned cut-ups i'm gonna try this kevin pick a number between um let's say 10 and 60 39 39 okay i'm gonna see i don't know how well this is gonna work we're gonna try it um I'm going to skip to a not page 39 in my notes. I don't have that many pages, um, but I'm going to skip to roughly half of that. And we're going to just start at a section somewhere in the middle of the notes, which is something that Burroughs might have done. And then we'll go back to the beginning. But we're going to this is we're going to see how this works. Let's just see how it messes with our head a little bit. <clears throat> so 1957, William S. Burroughs spends some time in London. He is clean for once. He has... He has more of his life is actually he's not on opiates. Well, he's on methadone, but he's not um, he's not strung out on actual opiates. Right, he's trying to score all the time. Much more more of his adult life is actually spent in in either toad either not on opiates at all or on methadone than it is actually addicted to um, you know nar narcotics that he's got to like score for. Right, well, that's probably why he lived as long as he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he goes through in, in, in 1957, he's born in 1914, right? So we're talking about a 40 some year old man. He goes through this kind of paradoxical period of self-analysis when he gets clean this time. Um, he'd already written what's been referred to as the word horde, which is what, uh, naked lunch comes out of. And some of his subsequent novels, it's just this crazy spree of writing he did, um, in the mid mid fifties that was, you know, hundreds of thousands of words that he would basically spend the next decade sort of picking, picking, picking from to make, to make his books. Um, and so he, uh, he has this period of clarity and he actually starts to think of himself as a heterosexual. Um, he finds himself uninterested in boys. And when Burroughs talks about boys, he we'll get more into this. His um, preference was for men in this sort of 18 to 25 age. He um, wouldn't talk about it much. And uh, I'm sure that he had dalliances with younger men. But if it were his choice, it would be like an 18 or a 19 year old would be would be his thing. So anyway, we'll talk yeah. more about that. Yeah, they have apps. They have apps for that now. Do. Right. Right. Yeah. They do. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, he sees He's another a... case. Burroughs. Hang on. Burroughs is another okay. case of like it's Burroughs world. We just live in it now. Right. Like, right. Right. Yeah, everything he did that was like, oh, tr you know, was was like totally out of step with American culture at the time is now like the culture Fine. yeah it's, <laughs> yeah. it's you have actually yeah. it's it's celebrated yeah right for sure. right yeah wow. um just yeah uh, just don't don't shoot anybody that's mm -hmm. you know yeah we don't co-sign shooting anybody no, on our no, darkness no. that's where we draw the line right right 
he um at this time he starts to see and we're going to talk more about this a little bit he actually starts to see a direct line between see there was a moment when he was a boy and his nurse who he called nursey not not his nurse his his uh nanny basically that he called nursey she was this welsh woman that basically he spent more time with than he did his his own parents when he was a little boy um it seems to be that at some point nursey took young William Burroughs to her boyfriend's house and either encouraged or didn't notice or ignored the fact that uh, Nursie's boyfriend um, had young William Burroughs as a boy, I think he was eight, give this guy a blowjob. And in this 1957 period, Burroughs is starting to see all these lines connect, right? And he's starting to think like, wait, am I, do I actually like men or am I like riding out some weird pathology that Nursey kicked off? And he's not sure. He's sort of trying to figure it out. Um, he does go back to men. Like he, he kind of gets through this and I guess decides well, I mean, or maybe decides be is the I word, mean, you but, know, well, yeah. I mean, what, you know, I mean, it's hard to give it up, man. Yeah, right. I mean, right, once, right. Once you've got a taste, you know. I've heard. I, I don't know. I don't know. I have no. I actually have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> no. Very interesting um, though. I had no idea. I guess it makes sense that he was. I mean, it does not surprise me at all that he went through something that traumatic as a boy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's a couple other things we'll get to as we when we rewind. We are going to rewind back to the beginning. Yeah, um, I like this. I like this cut up idea though, Brad. This yeah. is good. You're you're taking us right into the the pit. Yeah, yeah. Now, as people may know, for a long time, Burroughs lived in Tangiers in Morocco. In uh, 1957, he actually goes back there for a while. And it's one of these things where like he can't go. It was really cool when he was there before. The people that were around, the sort of socio-political state, the culture was all great and perfect. He goes back now. Um, Paul Bowles isn't around, who is like his one good friend, the brilliant writer Paul Bowles, author of The Sheltering Sky. He's not there. A bunch of other people aren't around. So Burroughs goes back to Europe. Now, um, whenever it's interesting, and this is something we see every time he moves, because Burroughs lives all over the place. Every time he leaves a place and he goes someplace else, he'll look back to where he just was and be like, I never liked it there. And I don't want to be there. That's not the place for me. It's like, yeah, you know, I don't know. It might have been the best time of your life. Um, 1958, early 1958, he lands in what has been referred to as the Beat Hotel. Um, this is the small rundown hotel in the Latin Quarter of Paris. Uh, the poet Gregory Corso, you know, one of the he's he's you know, you've got your three main beat figures, Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs. Gregory Corso is sort of in that next um, tranche of beat of beat poets, quite a talented guy. Um, he was the first guy to find this place. Burroughs and, uh, and Ginsburg get, gets there and then Burroughs ends up there. Um, Brian Geisen ends up there, who is hugely in, influential, more influential than any of the, any of the other, you know, the beatniks were on Burroughs work was this Canadian painter, um, and just, and magician and entrepreneur and inventor, um, Brian Geisen. Um, and, this is where Burroughs in 1958 is where Burroughs really enters what we could call his magical era. He's starting to learn things from Geisen. He's starting to do sort of magical practices. And I'm not going to dive too deeply into this, but we did have a dark room with the great Tommy Cowan on and talked most of that episode. That dark room episode was about this beat hotel magical period of Burroughs's life. So if you really want to dive deeper, we already got an hour to an hour and a half on that subject. 
go check that out. Um, well, we will touch on it more here, but just that's a zoom in on this, all this magical stuff. Um, now, another important relationship that develops in this 1958 beat hotel time is between Burroughs and a man named Ian Somerville. Ian Somerville is about 18 years old. Bill's 44. Um, Somerville was a computer programmer and an electronics technician who would be Burroughs on again, off again, sometimes monogamous lover for a number of years. He would die. He would end up dying in 1976 on Burroughs' 62nd birthday in a car wreck. And Burroughs would lament for his remaining years that he had not made more of an effort. There's a sort of part in his mind that Burroughs thought he could have lived with Ian forever. And he sort of didn't do the things he would have needed to do to make that happen. Um, around this time, um, Burroughs and Geisen basically throw together a book called, uh, well, the book comes a little later, but it's most of it's written at this time, a book called The Third Mind, which is a series of essays, mostly on the cut-up technique. Um, Somerville um, would also assist with a number of non-literary endeavors of Burroughs throughout the 60s. So there was a time period where Burroughs was very much getting into like experimental film, experimental photography, collage, that sort of thing. Anything that had a technological component, Somerville would help with. There is one instance, I think they did this in New York, but Brian Geisen and Burroughs, they did a uh, they did a film theatrical, a film slash theatrical performance where basically Bill was on stage reading and they projected footage of him reading on him and then gradually shifted the lighting in the room and, and various things until Burroughs was no longer on stage and it was only the projection. And the people who saw it said they couldn't tell when he left. So he sort of like vanished off of the stage, which seems like it could have been a kind of an interesting experience. And it and it factors into Burroughs was always trying to maintain this reputation of uh, le homme invisible, the invisible man. He had this notion that you could he could disappear if he wanted to. Right. I love that. I, um, yeah. <laughs> it's such an interesting concept. And especially mm -hmm. for somebody who was living so contrary to the culture that he emerged out of. Well, right, uh, right. Mm. And and part of the way he got away with that was he didn't look like he was out of step with things. He's always very well dressed. He always looked very well put together. You would think he was like a banker or something. And meanwhile, the guy's out scoring for heroin, right? Yeah, but and and thinking some of the craziest thoughts that I anybody would ever had up to that time and yet he looks like a guy you'd buy insurance from like a creepy version of a guy you'd buy insurance from but still a guy you'd buy insurance from uh, um, brad i didn't it's the same guy <laughs> right maybe that is the, that is the lesson <laughs> and, and now at this point in america yeah. it's the same guy yeah yeah so um <laughs> now, uh uh now mostly through this beat hotel period Burroughs hasn't quite he's not really writing anymore the word horde is done and that's where Naked Lunch comes out of Naked Lunch is first published in uh, as a book in 1959 so that's coming but, but in this 1958 period it's basically already done um, and so he's going through this intense magical process scrying hypno self hypnosis um, all all kinds of all kinds of things um, and then it sort of tapers off this this whole magical experimentation period, though it never really ends, the the high intensity 
every day, hours a day of doing, you know, experimenting with different magical practices in combination with each other. It sort of tapers off when he gets hooked back on heroin after befriending this very eccentric trust funder named Jacques Stern. So, uh, you know, anytime he gets a habit again, his life shifts and not usually in a great direction. Okay, so that's since 1957 to uh, sort of early 1959 period. Now, let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> um, I hope that worked reasonably well. Um, so, uh, so we're going to wind our way back to that point. We okay. are, we are. And then uh, we'll gloss like over it and keep going. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Okay, so I want you to imagine this picture in your mind. It's okay. 1918, okay? Mm. Skinny little four-year-old boy and his seven-year-old brother, these wealthy children, probably really well-dressed for the time. They're playing in a park near their home, Forest Park in St. Louis, to be exact. The older brother runs ahead with his BB gun and the younger boy is left briefly alone in the woods and he sees in the trees, quote, clear and precise in the late afternoon sunlight as if seen through a telescope. He sees a delicate little green reindeer standing in the grove of the trees about the size of a cat. Another time, this same boy witnesses a bunch of little gray men running around inside the block house that his older brother had built. Sort of like a Lego dollhouse kind of thing. A little while later, this same boy has a dream that he is eating his mother's back. It's a very specific image. And his mother comes in, wakes him up to tell them that she has had a terrible dream that her little boy was eating her back. Okay. Then around this time, <laughs> perhaps before this, uh, this little boy's nanny, Nursey, uh, a Welsh nanny, her actual name was Mary Evans, a woman with a lot of superstitions and a great deal of psychic energy, according to Burroughs, um, took this boy over to the house of her boyfriend, and the little boy would write this 40 years later. You can see, if you're on YouTube, you can see my tremendous stack of Burroughs books here. Got a lot. I've got a lot going on. Um, <laughs> the primary source, though, for the the the, the life story stuff um, is this book, William S. Burroughs, A Life by Barry Miles. Really interesting. Barry Miles is a really strong writer. He knew Burroughs in the swinging London era time in the 60s. Barry Miles was a co-owner, co-owner of Indica Bookshop, which was one of the centerpieces of, swing, of, of the swinging 60s in London. I mean, I think Paul McCartney partially financed that bookstore, right? And, and Barry Miles was you know, Barry Miles wasn't with Burroughs all the time, but he knew him very well during that period and, and continued to have a relationship with him afterwards. Okay, so this is uh, this is the words of William S. Burroughs writing about 40 years later. Yeah. Quote, We are prepared to divulge all and to state that on a Thursday in the month of September 1917, we did, in the garage of the latter, at his solicitations and connivance, endeavor to suck the cock of one George Brune Brubeck. We called him the bear's ass, which act disgust me like I tried to bite it off and he slapped me and curse and blaspheme. The blame for this atrociously incomplete act rests solidly on the basement of Brubeck, my own innocence of any but the most pure reflex move of self-defense and respect to eliminate this strange serpent thrust so into my face. So I had 
So I had recourse to nature's little white soldiers, our brave defenders by land, and bit his ugly old cock. So earlier I said he was eight. He was actually like four years old, supposedly, when he was uh, coerced into performing oral sex on this. Yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, yikes. No, not, bueno. no, no, good, right. Yeah. Bad. Right. Bad. Um, <clears throat> now, Burroughs would actually later also claim that and he wasn't 100 percent sure on this. He was pretty. It seems like he was pretty sure about the oral sex stuff. He also thinks that he may have seen Nursey, Mary Evans, uh, put a have a stillbirth and put this stillbirth, burn this stillbirth up in an oven to like get rid of it, like a wood burning stove or something. <clears throat> and this would have been so when he was like a, a like a grim fairy tale quality here mm -hmm. to his childhood. We do yes. this a lot on the pod. We we start typically with the with the childhood when there's yeah. information, yeah. and it we don't psychoanalyze, but we tend to linger over the childhood because it colors the rest of the life. It does. Yeah. So huge. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. guy would yeah. never get over. I mean, he was always reliving this. This was mm -hmm. always following him. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that bit that I read, he wrote that forty years. I mean, he wrote that in the fifties, right? I mean, sure. this isn't like so. <clears throat> so you know, obviously. This is this is William S. Bur William S. Burroughs. He's William Burroughs the second. Um, this is his part of his childhood. He was born on February fifth, nineteen fourteen. Excuse me. His father was Mortimer, and his mother was Laura, maiden name Lee. So his mother was Laura Lee. Um, they were on both sides prominent wasp families, basically. With Bill's grandfather being the storied inventor of the Burroughs adding machine, which is basically a predecessor to the you know, the computers that would eventually dominate white collar, white collar work. Yeah. And famously, my barber over here in beautiful Roseville, Minnesota, this barber has a yeah. Burroughs adding machine. Does he? Yeah. And I, I gave him a bit of an ear beating about <laughs> Burroughs. He had no yeah. idea. No, most Burroughs people don't was. know. Yeah. No clue. Yeah. And, but he's, he's got the adding machine. Yeah. So yeah. he contributed to Burroughs degeneracy. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit yes that machine yes. dude that is one of those machines where that thing will like the nukes will fall that yeah. thing will still be calculating taxes yeah the way they used to build stuff was totally different man. just yeah. solid metal yeah 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 crazy <laughs> yeah yeah if you can't you know if it can't survive a couple blows of an axe like what's the point <laughs> <laughs> right because that's it's it, it, that could be coming right 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 um, so let's let's take a little bit of a look at the family history here. So the the first William Burroughs, William uh, Seward Burroughs, is the man who invented the adding machine. Was born in 1857 in Rochester, New York. His name came from William Henry Seward, the one-time governor of New York and a noted abolitionist. Um, this was so William R. William Burroughs, his grandfather. He grew up in a very working class family. Um, his uh, our Burroughs, his great grandfather had a workshop making models and patterns for casting it would have been like old time tool and die shop. Um, William, the inventor of the adding machine in 1888 would get his first patent on an adding machine prototype, um, though he would make many advances on it in the coming years. He was a very hardworking man, but also kind of a classic absent minded genius like his wife 
had to remind him to eat and change his clothes. You know, one of those guys, if you just let him do his thing, it would be just 18 hours of straight work. You a know, little, I'm, I'm that guy. Oh yeah. I did a 16 hour working session for a project recently that yeah. was up against a deadline for normie work. And yeah. it was just a case of, okay, Let's do it. I'm going, yeah. here we go. And I'm just, yeah. this has got to get done. I'll, I'll be up until 6am doing this. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. It's, it do be like that sometimes. It sure um, do. Sometimes it's like that prepping this show. It is. It can be yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, his wife. Um, so this would be our, our bill, our William Burroughs, uh, grandmother would die in 1896. And then William himself, the guy who invented the Burroughs adding machine, he died in 1898 at the age of 41, leaving four children behind. Most of the empire actually comes after he dies. It's other people who, who, who've kept the Burroughs name and kept Burroughs, you know, financially in the picture. They build this into this enormous company that does all of these things. So the guy who um, invented the machine never lived to see the proceeds. He, he did, but not nearly to the extent that it got hmm. to be, you know, hmm. it would be, it would be like if it would be like if Henry Ford died a few years after the model T came out. You know, sure, it's a big but deal, somebody, but it's not right, the, right. you know, um, um, okay. So, uh, <laughs> Brad, think of an industrialist other than Henry Ford challenge <laughs> Im- level impossible, impossible. <laughs> from Detroit. Are there, are there other industrialists? <laughs> it's only Henry Ford. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from this Barry Miles biography. Um, you know, one of the things about Burroughs is, you know, he came from money and, and that is true, but we're gonna, we're gonna make sure that we understand a little bit more of the details of this. Okay. Quote, William Burroughs, the subject of this book, always thought that the Burroughs company swindled the children out of their shares by buying them back at less than they were worth. We don't know when this was, but there is no evidence of chicanery. The Mississippi Valley Trust probably felt quite sincerely that it made better financial sense to cash in and diversify their investments rather than have all of their wealth concentrated in one new unproven company. There was no way of knowing then how important the company was to be. As it was, according to Burroughs, they sold their shareholdings for an enormous sum, $100,000 each, equal to $2.8 million in purchasing power in uh, 2012. Uh, when I say each, uh, it was the each of the, the Burroughs it would be Burroughs' aunts and uncles. <clears throat> Burroughs also said that his mother, Laura, had persuaded uh, Mortimer, Burroughs' father, to hold back some of his shares, which is unlikely as his parents did not marry until November 1908, 10 years after William Sr. died. For whatever reason, however, Mortimer, um, Bill's dad went by the name Moat. His name was Mortimer, but he went by Moat. So, for, uh, so for whatever reason, Moat. however... That's <laughs> it's a very like it seems like a very money thing money like family the th- thing that you're do. right that's yeah. a, he, moat moat is always in loafers mm-hmm. yes yeah. yeah he wears loafers to the episcopalian yes. service <laughs> he's, right. in, he's still in loafers everybody goes oh moat right right <laughs> that crazy moat he's got colorful socks yeah 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 he's, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, yeah. He's, when he sits when he sits, the, the, the pants come about mm. halfway up to his knee, you know. And, yeah, yeah, and he crosses his legs in a way that is right on the edge. Right. <laughs> right. 
right? You, you, I can you see people can picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can see. <laughs> yeah. Um, Moat, uh, however, Moat did hold back some of his shares and benefited considerably in the rise of value of the corporation under its new management. The sale sale likely went through when the company was restructured and renamed in 1904. That same year, Burroughs' partner, Joseph uh, Boyer, erected a mausoleum to mark the burial plot at Bel, uh, Belfontaine of his old friend. In Citronelle, a stained glass window was installed in the local church with the words, sacred to the memory of William S. Burroughs. Now that's Burroughs, the adding machine Burroughs, right? Now, of the Burroughs' children, that is, uh, uh, our Burroughs' uh, paternal aunts and uncles, um, one became an alcoholic, and another, Horace, lived an extravagant lifestyle that eventually led to him becoming a morphine addict, and he later killed himself in a Detroit flophouse in 1915. Um, that is the thing about something like morphine. You know, you say morphine, morphine addict, and my brain immediately goes, God, that sounds nice. Doesn't it sound nice? But have you ever have you ever seen anybody uh, detoxing from opioids? It's ugly. Oh Real my god! Ugly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. If, you, yeah. If, you, if you if you find yourself in a flop house, you're close to killing yourself in a flop house. Yeah, yeah. He apparently yeah. just like he apparently he'd been arrested, but then there weren't really any charges. He'd been trying to, so Burroughs, the Burroughs company had a, like a big Detroit office. And I think even like the headquarters of what remains of the Burroughs adding machine company is here in the Detroit area. And Horace had like gone there, you know, cause he's in the family. So we'll try to give him a job. We'll try to give Horace a job and he can't do it cause he's a morphine addict. And he ends up in this flop house and he just bolts the door and kills himself. How did he um, do it? Do you know yeah. how he did it? Do you know how he did uh, it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, well, you know, it's so interesting. This is a little bit of an aside and an anecdote. But when I moved to Minneapolis for the first time in 2000, uh, there, you know, Dinky Town, the the neighborhood over by the U, uh, very famous neighborhood. Bob Dylan, you know, spent like a year around there. Has a song kind of set in that neighborhood, or and um, it's totally unrecognizable now. It's Starbucks and mm. multi story buildings, but there was a building there. Uh, that was like a flop house. It was like where you would rent a room. There was a bath in the hallway. It was the kind of thing that like Bukowski, you could imagine Bukowski rules into town. You know, it's $3 a night or whatever it is. Yeah. That used to be, people used to do that. There used to be like yeah. daily. I mean, I guess, I guess there kind of is now again. I mean, I guess guys mm -hmm. hang out outside Home Depot looking for, looking yeah. for work. I mean, but yeah. Yeah, that, that, that under, that sort of, of underworld kind of thing it gets it gets harder and harder to spot for people i think but it never goes away yeah mm, yeah 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 it just gets moved around it gets reorganized yeah but yeah, yeah you don't you don't hear the word flop house much anymore no no yeah <laughs> well you know i think mm. at that time you, you didn't need to have any credit you probably just wrote your name down you didn't have a credit card you probably didn't have you wrote a ID. name down right you didn't wrote yeah. a name down yeah, you, you probably you probably gave him some cash as a deposit right you know and they're you don't, just you can't there's a we don't do anything that doesn't have a paper trail now you know oh and, for which real is, which is I think is I think is actually a bad thing. I think it's good to have a little space at the edges where people can do things. <laughs> but mm, that's just mm. me. Return um, to Flophouse. Yeah, right, right. You never know when you might need it. Now, mm. <laughs> uh, Laura Lee, uh, Burroughs' mother, came from a religious Southern family with apparently some slave holdings in the past on her mother's side. Her father was born in Georgia, worked as a Methodist minister and church builder. He married 
um, the daughter of uh, of other another Georgia preacher, and he ends up in St. Louis, where our, our our hero is born. Hero in quotation marks. Laura's older brother, so Burroughs' uncle, was a guy named Ivy Ledbetter Lee. This is a man with a Wikipedia page. He was a world-famous public, public relations expert and one of a number of people, along with guys like uh, Bernays, considered the founder of modern public relations. Who His is, this, company, in, who is this in relation to Burroughs? This would be Burroughs' um, uh, maternal uncle. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Yeah. That is very interesting. His name's Ivy? Ivy Ledbetter Lee. Moat and Ivy. <laughs> these are... The- <laughs> These these are not the wasps you're looking for. These these when they talk about the wasps who've somehow gone, right, gone right, right. This is who we mean. Maybe they all yeah. maybe they all turned into William Burroughs. Right. And they all, that's why we can't have nice things anymore. Right. I don't know. Right, right. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um his company, Ivy Ledbetter Lee's company, Parker and Lee, issued literally the world's first press release reporting news of an Atlantic City train wreck before journalists could get facts elsewhere. He would work for John D. Rockefeller, and he would also help to cover up the murder of a dozen striking miners in Colorado. Okay, I'm going to a little bit of... Murder! Murder! Right, so let me read a little bit on uncle and money, etc. Again, from the uh, Barry Miles, the great Barry Miles biography. Um, So... This is on Ivy Ledbetter Lee. Quote, he specialized in devising propaganda for clients despised by the public for their anti-union and strike-breaking activities. When he died in November 1934, the U.S. Congress was investigating him for his work in advising Joseph Go- uh, Goebbels. How do you, wait, how do you say that? Goebbels? Goebbels. There's no R in Goebbels. Goebbels. <laughs> on yeah. public relation techniques for the Nazi party and for his work for the IG Farben Company, which manufactured the Zyklon B gas used in the Nazi death camps. He met with Hitler many times and told Bill, our Bill, uh, quote, the last time I saw him, Hitler told me, I have nothing against the Jews, he said. This is all exaggerated. Ivy Lee was so famous there was even a song that ran, even Romania has Ivy Lee mania. Gosh, how the money rolls in. Burroughs disliked his uncle saying, quote, he was very pompous. You didn't talk to him. You listened. There was never any feeling at all between us. The last time that I saw him, we'd been out to his house for dinner in Long Island, and he was sort of fuzzy, fuzzy the way people get when they've got something wrong. He would die suddenly of a brain tumor during a board meeting, leaving his family destitute with huge bills to settle all around the world, including unpaid accounts at the Ritz hotels in Paris and Rome. He had been supporting his mother in style, but she now fell back on the family. Burroughs remembered, All the relatives were going around saying, oh, yeah, sure, we'll take care of grandmother. But when it came to a crunch, it was my father, my father being moat. So now that's just kind of family history. Some of these other figures that are going on in the background, Um, the Burroughs family in general mixed in with the high society social set. Obviously, they came from money and it was a big name that you started to see. You know, in offices, there says Burroughs, and oh, that's the same Burroughs as that family down this down the street, right? Um, so they mixed in very well with with uh, they were at the center of St. Louis society set to the degree that they wanted to be. Um, it's a little different in the Midwest than it is on the East Coast, as we'll see. Um, Burroughs recalls going duck hunting with his father and the president of the largest region, regional bank and the editor of the St. Louis Post Dispatch. Right. So um, definitely in there. 
Apparently, Laura Lee, his mother, when she was a teenager, <clears throat> this would be before she was at Burroughs, she took dancing classes with T.S. Eliot. They were in the same dance class. So just interesting. Yeah, there's um, only 25,000 wasps alive at a given right, time. Right. Um, now, uh, in, in this sort of high society lifestyle, Burroughs as a child spent more time with the help than he did with his parents. It's kind of a classic story as well. His parents divested all interest in the company. They would later use some of this money to start a business called Cobblestone Gardens, which was a gift and antique shop. They'd later move to Palm Beach. Um, and actually, their regular income came from Cobblestone Gardens. And when Burroughs was getting an allowance, which we'll get to, that was actually Cobblestone Gardens money. That wasn't actually, I mean, Burroughs adding machine money helped start Cobblestone Gardens. But this was, Moat was, Moat was getting income from this business he was running, Cobblestone Gardens, and they were splitting off a certain amount and giving it to Burroughs every month. <laughs> so anyway, um, now education obviously bill would have been granted i'm going to i'm just going to refer to him as bill for the most part bill would be granted great opportunities on the educational front right prominent family he went to something called the community school at age 4 private progressive school his mother had helped to uh, fundraise for uh here there was a big emphasis on writing and in fact bill would eventually take this uh he would he would really eventually take to writing as a as a boy even though the, cons the the thinking is that Burroughs came to writing late because he didn't really start publishing until he was like 40. He actually was very interested in writing as a as a child. Um, and we'll get to why that stopped. But um, he he uh, so he, he liked writing. He was terrible at math. His spelling was also terrible and his spelling actually remained terrible uh, throughout his life. Um and, and I'll set up what we're going to talk about in the in the uh, after dark right now. Um, um, Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod to get an extra. It's going to be at least 20 or 30 minutes this time, probably a little more than half an hour. I've got three things that we're going to talk about. One, we're going to talk about Bill's uh, Burroughs' dalliance with Scientology. It was a little bit more than a dalliance. What was that about? Why did he do it? What did he think of it? How did that all go? Why does that not surprise me whatsoever? <laughs> right. <laughs> We're going to talk about um, what Bill's relationship to the the craze of aliens in the 1980s and what what efforts Bill made to contact the greys. OK, and then we've got a special treat. So friend of a uh, friend of mine on Twitter, um, old man at old man telegram. He's a big bros aficionado and he's a great follow. You should check him out. Old man telegram on Twitter. Uh Six months, maybe a year ago, he sent me, um, he went to the New York Public Library where the William S. Burroughs archive is, and he scanned a whole bunch of unpublished William S. Burroughs material and sent it my way. So shouts out to you, old man telegram. We're going to read a few pages of unpublished William S. Burroughs and talk about it. Only for Patreon, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. That's the kind of thing we try to do for our patrons. We're also exploring the idea of releasing episodes a day early, a couple days early, maybe even a week early for Patreon. If you've listened to this far to this episode, if this is not your first episode of Art of Darkness, if you've received value from this podcast, 
please support the pod so we can make this sustainable and do it for another three, five, seven, ten, an indefinite number of years until Brad Kelly and I phase shift into the next, uh, you know, arena. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there you go. So patreon.com slash art of dark pod. That sounds like that's going to be a banger after dark. Brad. Yeah, I'm, should be I'm great. Jacked. Funny. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. So at this time when he's, when he's a boy summertime, so he's in school at the best school, right? Uh, in the summertime, the family would spend pretty much the whole summer in Harbor beach, Michigan. It's actually about 45 minutes up the road here for me here. Bill got to, um, you know, fish to his heart's delight, um, and do all kinds of, excuse me, all kinds of outdoor activity. I'm sure the help was there cook, preparing dinner for them and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, there, I think it's relevant to, to, to talk a little bit of just for a moment about St. Louis in like the 1920s too. And, and a lot of times you're going to, if you were to sit down and read a lot of Burroughs material, and we're going to be talking more about actual Burroughs writing here and quoting things. If you read through it, you, with a, if you have a keen eye, you can see him frequently referring to 1920s St. Louis. Anytime he talks about red brick buildings with slate roofs, which comes up in like almost every book, that's him touching on St. Louis. That's him giving you a clue that the part of his sort of dreamscape that you are now in is St. Louis 1920s. Um, he, you know, it, it was... At a certain point, like many rich families in St. Louis, they moved to the suburbs because the air pollution in St. Louis was apparently just became incredibly toxic. Um, but nonetheless, young, young Billy Burroughs, he saw very early f movies in the theaters, right? Uh, in St. Louis, he saw electric lights go up on the street. He, the first radio station came to St. Louis in 1921. Bill would have been seven years old, right? So he's he's sort of teetering right there on the edge of what we start to think of as the 21st as the 20th century, right? Um, you know, just imagining lights suddenly being on the street when there weren't any has got to be it. It changes what the night even means in a way, right? Um, now. As a young man in St. Louis, he does meet a couple of people who become sort of lifelong friends. Um, the first would be would be this guy, David Kammerer. This would be the first gay friend that Bill had. Um, and we're going to talk more about David Kammerer later. I just want to tell you, he meets him in St. Louis, which for, for beat aficionados, people who know a lot about the beat era, um, that might be interesting that Bill met him when he was like 13 years old. Another friend that, that Burroughs makes is this guy named Kells Elvins. Um, Kel, Kells Elvins was straight, handsome. He's from the same kind of moneyed class that Burroughs is from. He has a tremendous amount of Elan, as, as Burroughs would later say. And though Burroughs was super attracted to Kells, and Kells was totally straight, apparently Kells was not bothered by the fact that Burroughs, this kind of weird kid, was like all horned up for him. I was like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> we'll hang out. I like you anyway. They never had any sexual thing whatsoever. Kells would go on to marry this like beautiful model. You know, he was like an all-American, rugged, handsome, confident guy. Um, sort of like in some ways, especially when they were young, he's sort of like the yang to Burroughs' yin in a way. They're like opposites almost. 
Now, incredible the names that we've encountered so far. We've got Hells, we've got Moat, we've got Ivy. This is not a world that I recognize. I don't. No, so, no. Yeah, I there, feel like there's a, a there's a there's a it's St. Louis, but there's like a Southern feel to some of this. There's a there's mm. like you know that there's a thing in the South where you you sort of you name somebody you give somebody the last name of a of a prominent family member on the maternal side from three generations sure, sure. back you know yeah, yeah yeah and do we consider Missouri I mean is it is is it the Midwest not I mean no yes I mean sort of like the know. southern boundary I, of it yeah in a way? maybe I don't, I don't know. know I don't want to yeah. get into what is the Midwest discourse uh, right, on the podcast right. because. We don't have enough time, but yeah. Let us yeah. know. Let us know. Get into the telegram, t.me slash art of dark pod. I, I did see a map that that interestingly tried to get at this recently, and it was every, each state that is even a candidate for being in the Midwest, what percentage of people live there consider themselves to be living in the Midwest? And Michigan and Iowa were the highest percentages. So anyway, I think Iowa indisputable. Very curious. Yeah, Iowa indisputably is in the Midwest. Yeah. It's very interesting because Western North Dakota is not, Eastern North Dakota is. That's my theory. Mm. There's very okay. interesting. I grew up right on the edge. I don't know. Minnesota yeah. clearly is, but Minnesotans mm. are crazy. They've got their own weird right. identity. It's a lot. There's a lot. It's yeah. a lot to unpack, people. Yeah. Yeah. Ohio, sure. I guess Ohio. Right. If Michigan is, too. Ohio kind of has to be. Has but to then be. Ken, but then Kentucky and Tennessee are clearly not. Yeah. Right? So yeah. yeah. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um now it's from Kel's Elvin, Kel's Elvin's mother Lee. So her name is Lee. Burroughs' mother's name is Laura Lee. Right again, we've got this. Um, we get a description of Bill from from Kel's Elvin's mother that would stick with him for life. Lee said that that boy looks like a sheep killing dog, and Lee was not the only person who saw something wrong with young Bill. A lot of St. Louis high society just caught vibes weird vibes off of uh, William Burroughs, even when he was a young boy. Now, let me read a little bit from the biography on this. Um, let's see. So, quote, and this is actually the voice. This is this is uh, Bill's voice. Quote, at that time, I felt I, I, I was felt by the other boys to be not quite right. You're a character, just the wrong kind. Now, this is Barry Mills, Miles for a minute. He was a very insecure 12-year-old hovering on the brink of adolescence and said, quote, I think it was always there, at the same time being afraid of the others and apart from them. I always felt a necessity to play it cool and conceal myself. I don't know how or at what age it, that it occurred to me that I was of another species. It would have occurred to me, of course, no matter where I lived, sooner or later. I felt inferior to other people at the same time I'd feel different from them. I'd feel better than them. It was a confused feeling. I was a t I was terribly afraid of any physical conflict. And so here you might start to see the the roots of what would later become his obsession with weapons. Um and it's a, like a, it's a deep preoccupation throughout his life. Weapons from firearms to literally to like psychic techniques, right? Like and and everything in between. Um <clears throat> I'm going to read a little bit from just because it relates to this. I'm going to read a little bit from this book, a uh, much later book published in the 80s, The Place of Dead Roads. It's the second volume of his final trilogy, The Cities of the Red Knight trilogy, which we're going to talk more about that later. But I just wanted to read this bit because um, what 1980s. So we're talking a guy in his 70s. This is him thinking about this sort of same time period. Um, quote. 
excuse me. Um, I'm going to refer to a character named Kim here. Kim should be read as a quasi stand-in for William Burroughs. Um, and Kim is a man. <laughs> Quote, Kim is a slimy, morbid youth of unwholesome proclivities with an insatiable appetite for the extreme and the sensational. His mother had been into table tapping, and Kim adores ectoplasms, crystal balls, spirit guides, and auras. He wallows in abominations, unspeakable rites, diseased demon lovers, loathsome secrets imparted in a thick, slimy whisper, ancient ruined cities under a purple sky, the smell of unknown excrements, the musky, sweet, rotten reek of the terrible red fever, erogenous uh, sores separating in the idiot giggling flesh. In short, Kim is everything a normal American boy is taught to detest. He is evil and slimy and insidious. Perhaps his vices could be forgiven him, but he was also given to sub the subversive practice of thinking. He was, in fact, incurably intelligent. <laughs> Later, when he becomes an important player, he will learn that people are not bribed to shut up about what they know. They are bribed not to find it out. And if you are as intelligent as Kim, it's not hard to find things out. Now, American boys are told they should think, but just wait until your thinking is basically different from the thinking of a boss or a teacher. You will find out that you aren't supposed to think. Life is an entanglement of lies to hide its basic mechanisms. Kim remembers a teacher who quoted to the class, quote, if a thing is worth doing at all, it is worth doing well. Well, sir, I mean, the contrary is certainly true. If a thing is worth doing at all, it is worth doing, even badly, said Kim, hoping, <clears throat> hoping to impress the teacher with his agile intelligence. I mean, we can't all become o Annie Oakley's. Doesn't mean we can't get some fun and benefit from shooting. The teacher didn't like that at all. And for the rest of the school year, Singled came out for heavy-handed sarcasm, addressing him as, quote, our esteemed woodsman and scout. When Kim couldn't answer a history question, the teacher asked, are you one of those strong, silent men? And he wrote snippy little comments in the margins of Kim's compositions, such as, not quite as badly as that, viciously underlining the offending passage. At the end of the term, the teacher gave him a B- minus for the course, though Kim knew fucking well he deserved an A. To be sure, Kim was rotten clear through, and he looked like a sheep-killing dog and smelled like a polecat, but he was also the most ingenious, curious, resourceful, inventive little snot that ever rose from the pages of Boy's Life. So, I think that's Bill exaggerating to some extent, but definitely thinking himself back to that time period when he was a, a young man. Yeah, I forget that this word ectoplasm was a word that existed before Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. What oh, a, yeah, for sure. What a fascinating word to, to yeah. throw in. Yeah. I think it comes out of the spiritualism stuff, right? I mean, it, the sure. idea of it was like sometimes in spiritualist in a seance, you could generate this material out of nothing. Yeah. And, and this stuff was so much more common in American history Huge. and in Western history than we think. I, I was reading yeah. recently that I, apparently I think one uh, governor of Oklahoma, I think it was, was ousted for essentially being a, an occultist. He was like some Freemason, but he was also a, which I'm sure would have been fine, but he was like a yeah. theosophist or something. They ended up booting him out and then he, then he made his way into the state Senate. <laughs> Sure. I mean, you know, yeah, right. it's all, I think it has something to do with killers of the flower moon. And he oh, was like, really? the, he was the grandmaster of the lodge that, you know, so what are we, what is this yeah. place? What is this country? Yeah. Well, and spiritualism yeah. is, is, is interesting. Cause unlike, like, say, 
I don't know, say in another American religious thing like Mormonism or something. Spiritualism can ride like adjacent and sort of between the cracks of everything, right? Like you could go to church every Sunday and whatever church, name your church, but also do seances on Saturday night. You know, it can kind of it's sort of fits can fit in between things a little bit. Right, right. If you're yeah. a Unitarian, like what is stopping you from right. laying hands and right. going and knocking on tape, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Very, very interesting. Yeah. Reading yeah. tarot. Yeah. I go, Ooh, no. Don't do that. Who dare? <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um now at the age of eleven, uh nineteen twenty-five, Bill was sent to the Los Alamos Ranch School for a summer. Um, in the school year, he would go to a private school called the John Burroughs School, no relation. But um, in he did this Los Alamos Ranch School thing until 1929, when at the age of 15, he went to Los Alamos Ranch School for the entire year. Now, people have heard of Los Alamos. This is where the Manhattan Project took place. But obviously, after this time of this school, it, it just happened to be, quote, you know, quote unquote, happened to be in the same location in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm going to double down on what I said about this being high weirdness. Yes. High, yes. high weirdness. Now this school itself was pretty freaking weird. So give me, I'm going to read a little bit um, about this. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Okay. Um, the director of the Los Alamos ranch school, um, was a guy named uh, Albert James Connell, spent much of his vacations traveling the country, meeting with parents, hoping to persuade them of the benefits of sending their boys to this rugged outdoor life school, which also happened to be the most expensive school in the United States. $2,400 a year, double the cost of the prestigious Easter East Coast schools. After three summers, Connell knew Bill's parents quite well, which must be how he came to be left at Price Road with Bill when he was in St. Louis recruiting. Price Road is the estate they had near St. Louis. Um, so there's a moment where Bill's like a teenage boy, young teenage boy, and he's alone in his house with this Los Alamos Ranch school director, right? Um, Burroughs remembered an extraordinary story, which we must assume is true. This is Bill's voice. I was left in the rather dubious company of Mr. Connell. He says, quote, I'd like to see this Gibbon stripped in my own house. Nobody was there. When he said Gibbon stripped, he wanted to see Bill take his clothes off. Um, now, quote, God, it's enough to make you puke when you think back on it. But Bill got a hard on. He wanted me to get a hard on. So I did. He then says, quote, do you play with it, Gibbon? Do you play with it till it goes off? And all this creepy talk. He made no effort to touch my prick or anything like that. Quote, well, have you ever done this with other boys? He asked, and I hadn't. But I remember after he left and everything that I was thinking that the idea of doing it with other boys would seem to me the most exciting thing. I remember I was coming back from school and I was walking up the hill and I got a hard on thinking about it. So, yeah. Now, here's another little bit on the school. Yuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, here's another little bit. Um. Yeah about the school again from the Barry Miles biography quote boys become men more easily when separated from over solicitous mothers was the quote was the motto of Ashley Pond who founded the Los Alamos Ranch School in 1917 Pond believed that the rough outdoor life was just what the pampered children of the rich needed I don't think he's that's wrong maybe you don't put 
like a predator, a child predator as the director of it. So maybe um, he was succeeded by Albert James Connell, known to everyone as the boss, who recognized that these boys were not destined to be farmhands, but to run the large prestigious corporations that their fathers owned and that consequently the school should prepare them for the top universities. The boys stopped doing all the manual labor and staff was brought in to do it. Lawrence Hitchcock ran the academic program and Connell took care of business, recruitment, discipline, and field expeditions, such as the overnight excursions to the high valleys and full, sa- full day Saturday trips. Connell discouraged married teachers. He wanted an all-male society. However, Ashley Pond's daughter Peggy and her husband, the science teacher from her church, lived there with their three children. Half the day was taken up by studies and the other half by scouting activities. Many of Connell's ideas were taken on board by Burroughs, such as that there was no such thing as an accident. If something went wrong, it was someone's fault, probably yours. And as an adult, Burroughs found amusement in Connell's frequently used line, quote, I know what's best for boys. Now, listen to this bit. Every month, all the boys were subject to naked physical examination in the nurse's office by two of the teachers. They were weighed and measured to see how much they had grown and to check their muscle tone. Connell took a close personal interest in this and was almost always there to supervise, touching their arms, chests, and buttocks, though never anywhere else. His sexual interest in boys was generally recognized by the staff and boys, and many of the masters were concerned by it. Quote, a closet queer, not so goddamn closet either. A.J. Connell, confirmed bachelor, my dear, confirmed. This is Burroughs' voice. He had decided that this was all wrong, but he was very superior for having these tendencies and not giving in to them. <sighs> so that's where Burroughs went to school. Cool, uh, cool, cool. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, but and expensive too. Very it's expensive. Like you're yes. paying for the privilege, the privilege yeah. of whatever this is. But this is yeah. this is well known uh, that again we we've got this is the boarding school problem. It is which yeah. we've encountered yeah. over and over again, in which I have you know on on uh, it, I've heard. Uh, yeah. The grapevine that like still goes on. It's not necessarily always the teachers, but like the students. There's just yeah. they go just they weird. go hog wild. They go buck yeah. wild. It just yeah. gets weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you put you jamming together a bunch of like fourteen year olds in a living situ- situation. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's yeah. just a recipe for hot strangeness. It it really is. Yeah. Um, there was a time in here uh, where Burroughs had his first drug experience, too. He'd read about uh, knockout drops in a gangster book of his, like a book about gangsters. And on a trip with the school um, into town or something, he slips into a drugstore and he buys chloral hydrate, which is basically a, a sedative. Um, and he takes it back to the school and he promptly overdoses on it. <laughs> Listen, if you're going to be an addict, man. Hey, let me tell you, just go ham, right? <laughs> Cut right to the chase. Immediately get into the ambulance. You hear voices. You're going to want to have a full-blown psychotic break. You want to jump yeah. from being like just a regular person to wandering around your neighborhood in your robe at, at 2.30 a.m. looking for somebody with a cell phone. <laughs> I got to make a call. I got some, there's some ectoplasm at home. Uh, and the robe has to be kind of torn. You got to be in your, yeah. you got to be in your loafers. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. How yeah. did Mates I end up loafers. in Mott's loafers? Uh, listen, I think, I think we have an episode title. Mm, William S. Burroughs knockout drops. Okay. Okay. Like That's it? pretty good. Is that good? That's pretty That's good. Pretty good. Yeah. Okay. It was yeah. a working title. Yeah. I like yeah. It. Yeah. 
Now, so this happens right around his 17th birthday, this whole knockout drops thing. And, you know, it didn't immediately la- launch him into a, a, a light a career of drug use, but we'll get there. Um, around this time, he's 17 years old, Burroughs home for Easter vacation. He tells his mother that he's become fixated on one of the boys at the school and that the boy had become hostile to his affections. Laura, his mother, very understanding about this, apparently. She was always understanding, as understanding as possible as a, of a person could be for Bill. Like, it doesn't, it like almost doesn't even make any sense. It's like, why don't you, you should give him a hard time about this sometimes. <laughs> not, not about, not about being attracted to boys. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying like later when he's like a junkie and his mom's like, oh, I understand. Like, no, come on. You gotta like, somebody, somebody's gotta throw some weight around here. Um, Anyway, Bill would actually yeah, say that they had like a, yeah, yeah, there's a reason yeah. you stage interventions and you yell at the, yeah, you have to wake people up out of their stupor. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, for um, sure. Uh, Bill would claim that they had a telepathic connection, which who knows? Him and his mother. Him and his mother, yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually like wildly common. <laughs> I think that's normal. Yeah. 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 Um, I think no. we just, we just repress it. Right, right. Now, she didn't come down harshly on him for homosexual tendencies, but she did think of homosexuality as a disease, and they promptly sent him to a doctor who tells them that Bill will just grow out of this phase. Um, Burroughs drops out of school at this time. Um, I just, I love this idea of like the, the homosexuality being a disease, and the doctor has because they have their list of diagnoses, you know, sort of diagnostic criteria. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it gets very specific. Right. Have you ever? Right, right. right. Yes. <laughs> I think he's got a case. He's, he might have a I case. I think he's got a strong case. <laughs> yeah, <He's>, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Mom, um, you might want to leave the room. Well, we you might want to leave the room. Bill and I need to have a private yeah. discussion. And then exactly. this guy molests him. It does yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're telepathic. She can stay. <laughs> She can stay. She's going to hear anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, because of all this, this whole thing, Bill Burroughs says he doesn't want to go back to the school, back to the Los Alamos Ranch School. He's 17 years old, um, which is, you know, whatever. Fine. Now they don't have to pay $2,400 a year in 1920, whatever dollars. Um, they, the one issue with this, though, is Bill has a diary he's left at the school with his other belongings because he was just home on Easter vacation. And he has written a bunch of homosexual fantasies in his diary. And he is so scared that that will be read. He just imagines the other boys reading this thing. And it literally scares him off of writing for like 20 years. Um, uh, because he's just, he's terrified. He, he basically gives him like himself like post-traumatic stress disorder, imagining this being read aloud and him being made fun of. Um, anyway, he finishes his quote well, you know basically his final year of high school at the taylor tutoring school in st louis and uh goes to harvard he's off to harvard yeah um i think when your family that's a good is, school uh, yeah exactly i think when your family is the burrows as long as you don't like totally screw up you could just go to harvard it's i think just they just cut the check cut right the check yeah, yeah you yeah. literally just in your in your admissions essay you just start naming the names of your relatives uncle right Moat. right Yes, when I was duck hunting with the president of the regional bank, I had discovered that, you know, I had a facility for, you know, whatever. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. In yeah. between uh, rousing sessions of fellatio at the 
the elite private school that I attended. Right. Uncle right. Moat would take me fishing. Right. <laughs> That's so funny. And the same essay will get you in now. That's yeah. what little understood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing changes, Brad. Nothing changes. Yeah. yeah. So But that, that is that is a good school. It is a good school, supposedly. Mm -hmm. I, I that's what I've heard. You know, that's I've what heard, they tell us. Yeah, I heard that the scruples on the on the papers aren't as yeah, good right, as they used to be. Anyway, he goes he goes to Harvard 1932. Um, now, despite being from a very prominent family in the Midwest, he's a big he's a big fish in the St. Louis pond. But he gets here and he can't get into any of the clubs because he's not he didn't go to one of the snobby East Coast prep schools. Right. Oh, so those. poor little Billy Burroughs. Wow. Yeah, he's shut out now. I'm, um, I'm, one, wow. God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, at this point, Bill is not a writer. He is interestingly he he's he, there's a lot of political talk as as there kind of always is in the college world, right? It's always there's always some political hot topic kind of being bandied about. But 1932 is in some ways different and in some ways very much the same as now. Um, he said at the time. Uh, that he didn't care about communism, he didn't care about the Russian experiment, and he didn't care about politics at all and said this, quote, I was never tempted by any political program. I don't want to hear about the fucking masses, and I never did. <laughs> um, I'm not a huge yeah. Lindy, Lindy man guy, that yeah. guy, because he blocks everybody and he's a sensitive mm. little guy, but yeah. he did have a, he's, he's had a few bangers. He's, yeah. he's a noted plagiarist as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. But in any yeah. case, he, he, that tweet he, he made, you know, it, it, it's something to the effect of, you know, sure you hate the rich, but do you have the courage to hate the poor? <laughs> <laughs> that's a banger. Like that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> And, and it's pretty, it's know, pretty funny. There's, and there's Burroughs. I just don't right. give a damn. I don't care. I don't care about the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. What um, a hell of a thing. I mean, and, that, yeah. and talking about being a contrarian, right? Like, oh, yeah. That's big yeah, time that's, contrarian. It's like everybody's like, be... well, we should be communist. You know, all these uh, Marxist ideas are banding around. It's like, I don't yeah. give a sure. shit about these people. <laughs> right. Why? Did, yeah. Don't talk to me about <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah. Wait, you're uh, talking. We're talking about people. I don't. Right. I don't care about. Yeah. I don't care. Well, I don't care for let's them. be realistic too, Brad. There are lumpen proles, and then there are midwestern lumpen proles. <laughs> let's be real. That's right. a word you don't hear much anymore. Is lumpen prole. Right. Right. But I right. tell you what, they're they're out. There. <laughs> they're a thing. They're a thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Bruce is like, I. You're nope. Don't care. Don't care about them. Yeah. You're you're saying we're gonna give these people things. I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen what happens when yeah, you give them stuff? Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. This is, yeah, of course, he's the perfect art of darkness subject, this yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, he was an English major. He got an A in every course. He found exams to be very easy. He went to lectures by T.S. Eliot, which I think is interesting because his mother was in dance classes with him. Um, he met up with his brother, who ended up going to Harvard as well. Um, his brother was uh, Mortimer Jr. His brother went by the name Mort. Who, and he was like, it's funny because Bill is like one of the most eccentric people of the 20th century. And his brother is just like the most normal guy. He's like so normal that like people would like didn't even know how to have conversations with him. Just like as normal as you could possibly be. Isn't that um, eerie when you meet like a Ned, <laughs> Ned Flanders type? Yeah. 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 You're just waiting for the. For the veneer to crack. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And Bill, I don't have the quote in front of me, but Bill said something like he didn't not like him. It was like something he had a really interesting analogy. I think it was like it was like he didn't have any surface area. I didn't have anywhere I could latch onto him to like interact yeah. with him. Well, yeah. that's it. That's the peak normie core. Is yeah. There's no the ball just falls to the floor over and over and over again. <laughs> right, right. There's no there there. And yeah. it was funny to think about. There's somewhere out there right now in, in the United States of, Amer- of America, in the failure of our Lord 2024, there is the, the most normal man. <laughs> I wonder what he's doing right now. What do you think? It's like 416 Central Time as we record yeah. this. Yeah. What's he doing? He's probably on the East Coast. Yeah. He probably spent like a few minutes scrolling his phone, but it was like Yahoo News, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he's checking his Hotmail account. Right, 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 right. Well, he feels he a little guilty because to... he's doing it on company time. Right. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the week is kind of coming to an end and they got some weather it's coming up. I don't Tuesday, know what Brad. kind of weather, but there's weather that it's will be coming t- soon. Brad, you're, yeah. you're tipping your hand here. It's a Tuesday. <laughs> the week is not coming to an end. What are you talking oh, it's not? about? Sorry. Oh, boy. Well, what, we know who's the, not, not the most normal man in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would never claim to be that. That's for sure. Uh, nope, not at uh, all. Anyway, it's a fun thought experiment. That's a fun, fun thought experiment to, to think about and, that and, guy. And what's funny is you said it, and a guy did pop into my mind. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, uh, oh, interestingly, uh, he's at Harvard. His friend Kel Zelvin shows up because he was part of this like St. Louis aristocrat society. Right. And then all of their kids go to Harvard. So he just gets there and there's like half a dozen people that he knows from St. Louis that are also at Harvard, including his brother. Um, he Burroughs gets very much into starting to study some of the things that would be, you know, part of his life, sort of lifelong interests, including witchcraft. Uh, Tibetan tantric, uh, tantric stuff, uh, Buddhism. He's way ahead of Ginsburg and Kerouac on Buddhism for people who, you know, know, know quite a bit about Kerouac and, and Ginsburg. He was into yoga like in the 1930s. He's into yoga. Um, and he That's was wild. also. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. He was also fascinated by historical techniques of torture. Because you got to throw that in too. Um, now. He, being a guy from money, he would go on some trips with friends. He went to Paris and Algeria and Malta with this guy named Rex uh, Weissenberger. Over time, Burroughs finds the hard partying scene that he's sort of after. Um, he at one point, and I just make a note here because it 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 foreshadows something that happens later. At one point, Burroughs, as a I think a sophomore at Harvard, he accidentally fires a gun at his friend who happens to be the heir to the Stern Investment Bank, which is still in operation. Stern narrowly misses being gunned down, basically, in their dorm room by, by William, William Burroughs in, like, 1933. Um, so gunplay is a factor pretty early for Burroughs. Um, Yoga uh, in, and firearms. Yeah. Hey, you know. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Nothing more interested, interesting than a seeming contradiction. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When you talk about the most interesting, or the, the, the most normal person, mm-hmm. what I think gets them there is no thing contradicts any other thing. About Absolutely. Them. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all one thing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. Um, anyway. Um, okay. So, you know, one of the advantages of going to a school like Harvard, 
sure you get a world-class education, but you also get introduced to some of the people who are going to be the most important people in the world, depending on how you define important, right? You know, literally you're drinking with the the heir to a huge investment bank. Now you nearly shoot him, but he could have just as easily gotten you a job, right? Right, right. It's it's acclimating <laughs> you to the kind of sociopathy that it takes to succeed in the American century. Right. Exactly. That's really what it is. Yeah. 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 Now, the kinds of people that Burroughs gets hooked up with aren't necessarily the business titans of the world. He gets plugged into the international gay party circuit. Now, I got a bit uh, to read about yes. this. The yeah. the IGPC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. notable IGPC, the International <laughs> Gay Party Circuit. Uh, there's some jokes. Yeah. I got some jokes on that. I'm just going to not say them. But, sure, um, okay. sure, sure. Now, let me just read this. This is fascinating. I wanted you to picture. This is like 1933, 1934. Quote, there were speakeasies in Boston and Bill... Used to sometimes cruise uh, Scully Square, which catered to sailors and gay men, but it was safer for Harvard boys to go to New York to get drunk and have sex. He was also in the big city in a way that uh, Boston, uh, it was also the big city in a way that Boston never could be. Quote, in the early 1930s, when I was studying at Harvard, New York was a glamorous, sophisticated, romantic, glittering metropolis, the place where things were happening. Anyone trapped in the provinces with artistic or theatrical or deviant tastes was drawn to New York. Greenwich Village in that time, that remote epic, was peopled by real artists and bohemians. Rents were low. Restaurants were cheap. Used to drive down to drink at the speakeasies on 52nd Street to visit Harlem nightclubs to eat in the village. Now, he becomes friends with this guy named Clint Moore and goes to parties here. And I just want to quote this because I, I, I just love this image. It's fascinating to me. Uh, quote, Clint Moore's place in Harlem was not so luxurious. Up three flights and knock three times. It cost a dollar to get in. Get in which entitled you to drink some terrible-tasting liquor from a punch bowl. Most people brought their own rather than drink what was offered and smoked pot and sniffed cocaine. Moore had a dimly lit flat with everyone circulating around, both black and white, making contacts. They met some older people, Bernard Pyle and Thomas Jeffries, both art teachers at Barnard. It was Clinton Moore who gave Burroughs one of his best lines. Quote, a wise old black F-word said this to me years ago. Some people are shits, darling. There was a cheap anything-goes apartment hotel in Central Park South at $4 a night where they always stayed. So he's at Harvard, but he's going to New York, and he's going to these like these like low-key parties in Harlem, snorting coke, smoking weed, you know, hanging out with black people, just different, not necessarily what you thought you were sending your, your kid to, to do when you sent them to Harvard. Again, now, yeah, very little changes. Right. Hmm. Now, in the summers when he was at Harvard, he would he would be a cub reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch back in St. Louis, right? The guy, he, you know, he went duck hunting with the president or the owner of it or whatever. And he would visit a St. Louis brothel where he would often go to a large motherly black prostitute um, who would from whom he would get both sexual relief, but also the sense that he was doing something normal and appropriate. Now, I need to put you in that mind frame of what it would be like to have your sexual predilections so out of whack with like what you were supposed to do that going to a prostitute in a brothel, you do that because it makes you feel normal. It's just an interesting, like, I'm just like the other fellas. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 
Interesting. I, I'm a real man. Right, right, right. And I'm um, keeping my my tab on a Burroughs adding machine. Right, right, right. <laughs> the poison is the cure. That's right. <laughs> How much do I owe you, Bertha? Yeah. Why? Why it says right here. <laughs> why it says right here. <laughs> Gosh, these machines yeah. are sturdy and handsome. <laughs> why well, bend over it? We'll, 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 put, <laughs> yeah, it to, we'll put it to the oh, test. Oh, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, he had a pretty good time at Harvard, and despite kind of some sexual frustrations, he also got very good grades. But Burroughs jumped ship before actual commencement. He he got his degree, but he didn't stick around to you know walk the stage. Whatever. He and a friend headed out to Vienna. First, he took up residence in Vienna's oldest continuously operated hotel, where Mozart once lived, apparently, and was a place that was at this time the centerpiece of the Vienna gay scene. Um, Apparently, in the mid-1930s, Vienna was the place to be if you were a sophisticated gay dude. He ends up bouncing around in this international gay jet set, including with some Hungarian noblemen who, according to Barry Miles, like, they're all gay? I, I don't know. This is what Barry Miles says. Um, so, you have to imagine Burroughs is hanging out with, like, Hungar- like old, old, old Hungarian money um, at, like, weird palatial estates fooling around with the pool boy sort of um, amazing yeah what a wonderful what a wonderful time he skipped right to graduate school <laughs> right <laughs> you're in <laughs> um <laughs> he um now at this time he he takes up there is some motivation for him to i mean he's still a young man right we're talking 1936 he's you know 20s early 20s he's still kind of you know he's got to do something right um he plays with the idea of studying medicine for a while. And he does this in Vienna, but he ultimately decides that it's not the path for him. And he has an interesting quote about this quote. I could have never been a doctor. I did right to quit. My heart is both too soft and too hard to quickly move to love, anger, or indifference. I would care too much for some patients and nothing for others. And I, I feel like that interestingly encapsulates Burroughs sort of emotional reality. He could get very weepy and sentimental about one person and then just totally not care about another person. Um, Just kind of how he was wired. Um, He did uh, for a while enroll in what's called the Diplomatic Academy, but he had appendicitis and that put a stop to this. And by the time he got out, now World War II is starting to happen and pretty much anybody's plans in that part of the world start getting thrown into disarray. Um, he, he has this friend, this woman named Ilsa Clapper, who's a German Jew. Um, she was living in Yugoslavia, making a living as a hostess to the international gay community. And her visa was about to run out. Um, and she was terrified she was going to be deported back to Germany. And her and Burroughs had become good friends. Burroughs decided he would marry her. She was 14 years older than, than him. And he married her basically so she could get into the United States. Um, and, you know, his family was freaking out about this, that, oh, you're going to marry this woman who's 14 years Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> um, I don't know if her being Jewish had anything to do with the, the family being, you know, freaked out about this. But anyway, well, was, I mean, you know, you could, you're like rushing this marriage to save to save this woman from being deported to. Yeah. 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 That's pretty yeah. heavy. Mm. It is. It is. Um. Uh, and and to me, this is to Burroughs' credit, really. I mean, this is it's not something he, ha, ha, he had to do. It was a friend, and he saw a friend in trouble and wanted to help. 
Um, she moved to the United States based on this relationship. What was the whole point? And thereafter, apparently never asked Burroughs once for help or money. She just took that one favor and she was off on her own after that, which I also kind of respect, right? Because the tendency would be like, I've got this rich guy who's, <laughs> you know, anytime I could call him up and be like, you know, I'm stuck. I need money. I need this. I need that. Um, and they remained friends for the rest of her life. Um, now, 1937, Burroughs, 23, still has not chosen any kind of career path. He, it's becoming quite clear to him at this point that something is wrong with him. Um, he gives off weird vibes, right? Women who he's not interested in think he's strange, right? And so not, not, not weird vibes, Brad. Oh, no, that's the worst thing you could give off. He's given vibes. He is given vibes. It's not good. Yeah. Isn't that strange how you just, you know, you, you can't describe it. It's just, there it is. And there's just no... Made- no amount of coaching is going to sort of ever, you just have to get it more exposure to more people and just, mm-hmm. and then sometimes you may never make it. You right. just, you're a weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. You're he's a creep. A, you're a weirdo. He, he's a, yeah. he's you a creepy dude. Here. Yeah, he is. He, he gives <laughs> off even in his pictures. I mean, as he matures, you, you know, some of the photography suggests more confidence and more humor and more of his sense of place in the world comes over. He's yeah. a man who's made kind of seems to have made peace with like who he is and somewhat the monster and he's accomplished. Yeah. But like there's there is something about the pictures of him. And it's just there's a quality of like menace and kind mm-hmm. of alienness that's just there. Oh, yeah. 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 And his voice too, the way mm-hmm. he, not, not not just the sound, but the way he talks too is very like there is something that feels like this is an alien trying to communicate like a human being. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, that's it's, a good one. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but he he's also like he's also he, he he's also like increasingly compulsive through the 1930s. He's he apparently, and he would do this for years, he would always have a coin in his pocket that he was always touching and looking at. It's just like a fixation object. He would stick bits of torn newspaper up underneath his fingernails for some reason. Um, and he starts to, you know, he starts to get very interested in psychology, his own. And this is often how people end up being therapists and that sort of thing is like, they're like, something weird goes on in my head. Maybe I can figure this out. <laughs> And he enrolls in psychology uh, at Washington University in St. Louis and then at Columbia in 1937 with the intent of writing a dissertation in psychology. Um, These are also good schools. They are. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In in New York, Bill was ushered into what is called the University Club. Uh, it's basically a fancy social club for, quote, the promotion of literature and art. I believe it still exists. Um, yeah. yeah, they should have us. Uh, they should have us over. Yeah, we, I'm sure we could teach him a thing or two. Yeah, yeah, why not? I'm sure we fit right in. Hey, that's what this show is. It's for the promotion of literature and art. We should, be, it we really should, is. We should hang out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you should have us over. Yeah, yeah. Um, let us do art of Let us do art of darkness live at your at your at your fancy that's club. Great, great. If anybody's yeah. in the university club in New York, yeah, yeah hit us yeah. up. I'll bring yeah. my. Can I bring my rifle? I, I'm yeah, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> I'll just I'll pack all my firearms as I cross <laughs> the George Washington Bridge. That's always a Manhattan. good idea. That's, That's a what great they tell idea. you. That's what they tell you. Do you yeah. have all your firearms? Just do you <laughs> right when you're crossing? <laughs> Are they loaded? Because I hope they're loaded. Um, he from here he does a little stint at Harvard studying Mayan archaeology and anthropology. Starts reading Jung and Freud, and through the late 1930s, 
He's increasingly, here's one thing you need to think about Burroughs. He's able to operate and move in very high-class circles. Harvard, right? University club, etc. Hungarian noblemen. He can hang with those people. Um, but he can also hang in like Bohemia, like weirdo artist territory. And he's getting, he he's starting to step his foot and it'll, it'll, this will happen more into the literal criminal underworld. He's a guy who can literally operate at any of those three and any of those levels. Um, and that is very cool. There yeah. are very, he's a Renaissance man. He's he a, really he's is an American yeah. man of that time. That is a very right. interesting milieu kind of mm -hmm. that you can, I guess, code shift or whatever and mm -hmm. like fit, fit in, or at least maybe it's because he doesn't fit in anywhere. He can sort of right. fit in any, everywhere. Right. Right. Yeah. And or maybe, maybe that it's not even about fitting in. Well, I think if you're like, uh, what would be the way to put it? If you're like so much yourself. Right. That, you know, it, you don't get moved, like shifted. Nothing really pushes you off that person. Then I guess. Yeah. I don't mm. know. It's and just I, interesting I'm, that he can do this. Most people cannot do this. You know what novel is about that is Gatsby is about that for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and Burroughs loved Gatsby. Burroughs actually said that if you wanted to understand St. Louis in the 1920s, um, read Fitzgerald because St. Louis is close enough to being like being like St. Paul that you'll it's the same vibe. That sure. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's that damned river, man. It's the right. curse. It's, it's all right. everything on this river. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, now he gets a relationship. Um, uh, this is pretty funny. He, he gets to know W H Auden. People probably know who that is. Great poet. Maybe we'll cover him one day. Um, Auden introduced Burrow to this man named Jack Anderson. And this would be the first kind of like, it's not Burroughs' first sexual encounter with a man, but it's the first thing that approaches a kind of a relationship, like an ongoing relationship with a man. Um, he's a younger guy, but Burroughs isn't that old himself at this point, right? He's still he's still in his twenties, um, and I think I think Jack Anderson's eighteen when they meet, and Burroughs would be twenty four, twenty five. So we're, you know, the age gap isn't too crazy yet. Um, and Burroughs kind of brings him in and he he initiates this pattern that Burroughs would have throughout his life. And we're not going to be able to identify all of these people because there's too many of them. But Burroughs would meet a younger man he found attractive and he would basically subsidize that guy's lifestyle so that they would be together, move him into his house. Like Bill wasn't necessarily about like going out and sleeping with 10 people a week. Bill wanted to get one. He really kind of wanted to be a monogamous person. Um, and just never quite understood how to do it, sort of. And this is the this is the beginnings of that. Um, the problem is Burroughs becomes obsessed. And there's this bit I want to read. Okay. Um, yeah. So so okay. Quote. Monogamy is very hard. It's tricky. It's, yeah. yeah, it doesn't come natural. I don't think it comes yeah. natural to, yeah. But there's a reason we do it. And the reasons we do it are very, very good. This is not a, we're, yeah. we're not coming out against it at, on no, the spot no. at all. But it's, yeah, it's kind of a social technology that yeah, we have to learn and relearn and relearn. And people yeah. are always going, well, why don't we try this this other way? And then they, you do. And yeah, maybe yeah. it works for some people, but at scale, it creates all kinds of problems. It creates all sorts of you know, extra men with nowhere to go and they get very angry and angry young men lead to da da da. This is all well known. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So this is the words of so this Jack Anderson guy that Bill's with also has a girlfriend. So Jack Anderson. Yeah, that's a very American name. Just yeah. Mwah, chef yeah. kiss. Yeah. Perfect. Um he well, sounds like a relief pitcher for the the Cleveland Indians or the yes. Warriors or whatever they are now. Yes, right. Right. Here's uh, this is Bill's words to start. Quote, his girlfriend, who is wildly jealous, suddenly hit me and knocked my glasses off. And I just hauled off and hit her one. She kept complaining, quote, I happen to love Jack. I happen to love Jack. Drunk out of her mind. This went on for hours. Then all of a sudden, the bitch hauled off and hit me. Instead of acting like a professor, I just hauled off and whammed her one and knocked her across the room onto the couch. Jack did nothing. I hit her real hard, slammed her in the face. I was amazed to see this happen from my fist. I'm stronger than I know I am. She got up sort of subdued. She assumed this was her due. It really stopped the whole scene. Now, continuing on, this is Barry Miles' voice. Bill was becoming irrational. He warned Jack that if he didn't give up the women, he would cut off a finger. At the same time, he recognized that his obsession with Anderson was neurotic and that he needed help. Um, let's see. So he goes to this doctor. Uh, he goes to this doctor named Herbert Wiggers. Dr. Wiggers had received his medical degree from McGill in 1934. He's, he's Herbert Wiggers of the Detroit Wiggers. <laughs> that is an incredible sort of... What is it about Burroughs? There's something about Burroughs where every name is funnier than the next name. Right. And his first name's Herbert. Right. You know? It's just perfect. 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 Yeah. Herbert, um, Wig Herbert Wiggers is a... Drinking some, uh, what are the, what is the insane clown? But he's drinking some Fago. Fago. <laughs> he's, uh, he's listening to corn. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, mm. anyway, they send him this guy. This is where, <laughs> this is where the, the pad, the long held pattern of Burroughs' parents keep giving him his allowance as long as Burroughs more or less stays, um, going to a psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever is getting some kind of mental health help. This kicks this whole thing off. Um, um, they, and I'm going to continue. They had good reason to, quote, they had good reason to think um, analysis was a good idea. Their son was growing more dissociated from reality and unable to function normally. Jack Anderson was his first real lover and had triggered in Burroughs a torrent of suppressed feelings that he was unable to control. He was powerless in his efforts to make Anderson return his life, his love, and his emotions were overwhelming him. A seething mixture of rage, frustration, feelings of betrayal, erotic fantasies, and revenge. Um, on April 23rd, 1940, Burroughs walked up 6th Avenue from 42nd Street looking for a cutlery store among the pawn shops. He wanted to buy poultry shears like the ones his father used to cut through the joint when he carved the turkey at his grandmother's Thanksgiving dinners. He found them. Stainless steel, one blade curved and sharp, the other ser serrated to hold the meat in place. They were $2.79 plus tax. Paying a dollar in advance, he booked into the Ariston Hotel, an apartment hotel, on 6th Avenue, famous for its gay bath scene, he unwrapped the brown package and placed the end joint of his left little finger between the blades. Now, he wrote in a short story, quote, He took a deep breath, pressed the handle quick and hard. He felt no pain. The finger joint fell on the dresser. Lee turned his hand over and looked at the stub. Blood spurted up and hit him in the face. He felt a sudden deep pity for the finger joint that lay there on the dresser. A few drops of blood gathering around the white bone. Tears came to his eyes. Quote, it didn't do anything, he said in a broken child's voice. <clears throat> now, this is back in Barry Miles' voice. <clears throat> Burroughs crudely bandaged his finger, put the finger joint in his waistcoat pocket, and left. 
He felt a wave of euphoria and stopped at a bar and ordered a double brandy. Quote, goodwill flowed out for him out of him for everyone he saw for the whole world a lifetime of defensive hostility had fallen from him he had originally intended to present the finger to anderson in some sort of van gogh gesture but he had a meeting schedule scheduled with dr wiggers and a half hour later he was seated next to him on a park bench in central central park clearly burrow's real aim had been to present his finger to dr wiggers maybe as proof of the depth of his feeling for anderson Wiggers was terrified by Bill's self-mutilation. He said, quote, really, Bill, you're doing yourself a great service. When you realize what you've done, you'll need psychiatric care. Your ego will be overwhelmed. He persuaded Bill to come with him to his office in Bellevue to have the finger dressed to avoid infection. But once he got there, Bill was tricked into signing some papers and found himself in the psych ward. He was interviewed and committed. The finger stub had to have its own burial and death certificate in case someone found it and the police spent time looking for the rest of the body. What? <clears throat> yeah. He cut off he cut off the tip of his his left pinky finger. Yeah. Yep. What with the poultry yeah. shears? Yes. <laughs> because it was jilted in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. Right. Wild, right? So after this, well, how would he type? You're right. Uh, well, he uh, wasn't a writer at this point. Sure, matter to him. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, you know, um, well, you know who else uh, lost some fingers right before yeah. he was going to go? Like, I think full time musician was uh, Tony Iommi. You ever heard oh, about really? this? About yeah, the, yeah. The, the Black Sabbath guitarist. He had, I think he was working for like maybe it was like sheet metal or something like this, and he was just about to quit. And like I think it was on the his final day, he had an accident and lost some of the fingers on one of his hands and had to relearn how to play guitar i think the other way around terrible because of it and but it's it's one of those weird mixed blessings because it forced him to like develop a different style and develop his own style and so there you are i mean what a what a story of overcoming something that most people would just quit but he didn't yeah so interesting Huh. Yeah, no, Bill just did it because he's a he's a neurotic he's a lunatic. nightmare. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. Yeah. Well, so after this, he goes back to St. Louis. It's time to go. In, stay in school, kids. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Oh. Um uh now he gets back in touch. He goes back to St. Louis is like 1940. He gets back in touch with um David Cameron, who we mentioned earlier. Um, who is David Cameron? At this time, he was an English instructor instructor at Washington University. Um, and though he and Burroughs weren't lovers, he was Burroughs' like only gay friend in St. Louis, right? Cameron was obsessed with a very young man named Lucien Carr, who was about 15 years old at this time. More on this in a bit. I just want I, I'm tracking that relationship, David Cameron, Burroughs, and now Lucien Carr for a reason, and you'll see. Um now. I was going to do this whole bit on Burroughs during the war. Suffice it to say that Burroughs tried to get in. At first, he was rejected. And then later, he's allowed in. But then he decides immediately, since he they don't want him to be an officer. He thought he could be an officer because he was a Harvard grad, right? He finds out he's not going to be an officer. And then he wants out. And his mother swoops in, pulls some favors. And because Bill had been committed in a psych ward he basically gets out of military service entirely um now how effect how useful would burroughs have been as a soldier 
probably not very useful. Uh, it's not like Burroughs ever held down a job. You know what I mean? He took orders. I, I don't know. It might have been better for everybody if he wasn't part of the war efforts, to be honest. Um, after the whole army thing, he goes to Chicago. Um, he works as a clerk in a rubber plant for a while. He works briefly as a private detective, um, mostly being dispatched to stores in Ohio and Iowa to catch thieving employees. Um, there's a scene in his book, Nova Express, that just kind of takes from this. Um, he would then get he he got a job, probably his favorite job and the job he was most he was best suited for. He was an exterminator for the uh, Nueva Fumigating Company. He really liked this job. He liked killing bugs. He liked working on his own time. He liked that he could sometimes get a day's work done in as little as two hours. Uh, and he did the job for nine months. Um, now, for whatever reason, I'm thinking about blue velvet right now. There's a mm. weird Barosian quality to, to blue velvet. Oh, there is. Uh, yeah. 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 I can't quite put my finger on it, but you're totally right. Like, I, well, he, pretend, yeah. he pretends to be an exterminator. He's a, he's a teenage kid who becomes a detective, you know, for his sort of his own weird sexual perversion. And yeah, yeah. There's definitely a direct line from Burroughs to Lynch. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. And Lynch Lynch would, I'm sure, attest to that. Yeah. I'm going to read a little bit from Naked Lunch. This is just a quick para on the extermination, extermination business. Quote, they call me the exterminator. At one brief point of intersection, I did exercise that function and witnessed the belly dance of roaches suffocating in yellow pyrithium powder. Hard to get now, lady. War on. Let you have a little for two dollars. I sluiced fat bedbugs from rose wallpaper and shabby theatrical hotels on North Cl Clark and poisoned the purposeful rat, occasional eater of human babies. Wouldn't you? Okay. Um, and if you watch the film Naked Lunch, David Cronenberg's attempt to adapt this book into a film, um, the main character, Lee, being an exterminator and the whole Perithian powder business is a, is a big is a big part of that film. Um, I do want to note at this point, 1940s, um, he's never done opiates or heroin or any of that at all. He's never really done drugs. He's drank, he's gone to parties and smoked a little weed, snorted a little Coke, but he doesn't have any kind of drug problem or anything at this point. Um, he's a Harvard graduate who studied medicine in Vienna and he can't hold down a job. He was actually fired from the rubber plant. Because at one point he falsified inventory to cover up his sloppy paperwork. He just can't, he can't function in like white collar. He can function societally. He's good at a party, but actually doing any kind of work. No, that's not really going to happen. Yeah. Um, what else is he up to in Chicago? Well, he's learning about ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, which does factor into his later, later work. And he's fantasizing about committing a robbery. He had talked about robbing a Brinks okay. armored truck. Right? All right. <laughs> he sure. didn't need the money. He just thought no. it would be cool to do it. Hmm. Um, he did, in fact, at one point in the Chicago period, try to rob a Turkish bathhouse. And he had, he, it was one that he went to. He knew when they took money out of the safe and he planned to step in while the safe was open and, and right, like at the right moment, be like, hand it over. Right. Man, but, that and, seems like a real gnarly thing to rob. That seems like they're going to come back after you. Yeah. 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 Right. Doesn't it? Yeah. Now, 
to steal his nerves for this robbery, he spends all day drinking, which is that's how you know a robbery is going to go well when you're shithouse wasted, right? Um, when he actually pulls his gun on the cashier, the cashier just laughed at him and said, Bill, they knew him there. Bill, you know, we emptied the safe at six. It's 615. He just botched the whole thing. There was no money uh, to steal. What a, what a goon. And he's all drunk. Right. right. Yeah. 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 So, wow. yeah, just ridiculous. So his attempts to being a gangster at this point are not very successful. Um, he does leave Chicago after about a year. Why does he I, leave? I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say he's the worst trust fund kid ever, ever. He just. Yeah. yeah. If he hadn't accomplished his writing career. Like, oh, yeah. He, he wouldn't even be an anecdote historically. Yeah. Useless. Yeah. Yeah. Just. Ugh. Yep. Yep. Now he leaves Chicago. Why does he leave Chicago? Well, Lucian, uh, Lucian Carr. Um had been in Chicago for a while. And that was kind of the reason that he went there. And that meant David Cameron were, were there and they were basically ready to ship out. Now I'm going to read a little bit from the bio on this. <clears throat> um, and you're going to see why I'm talking. I keep bringing up David Cameron and Lucian Carr. It's kind of a crazy story, but it takes a couple of years to get there. Um, okay. Um, okay. Well, uh, da, 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 da. okay, but Burroughs' good relations with Mrs. Murphy, that was his landlord, came to an end thanks to the hijinks of two of his old friends from St. Louis, David Cameron and Lucian Carr. Um, Lucian, uh, Lucian, uh, he had been taking a course at the University of Chicago and he would have stayed and stayed and completed his studies were it not for David Cameron, who followed him to Chicago and stalked him day and day and night. Excuse me. David was 14 years older than Lucian, tall with rangy features and a big nose. He was not good looking. He had long muscular legs and wherever he went, he almost ran, rushing along with his thick curly red hair flying, his red beard jutting forward and his coat undone and flapping. He took stairs two at a time and arrived breathless, wringing his hands in anxiety. He had a high pitched fluting voice that got quieter as he spoke until he was barely audible. Before the University of Chicago, Lucian had been sent from St. Louis to the Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, but Cameron followed him there. The headmaster soon became aware of Lucian's stalker and ordered Cameron out of town, but he simply moved to the suburbs and was able to encourage Lucian to visit him and go on trips. Trips. Lucian was eventually expelled for staying out after hours with Cameron. When Lucian was 16, uh, Marion Gratz found him more, found more than 50 love letters from Cameron in Lucian's bedroom. Appalled, um, that's her, that's uh, Marion Gratz's, Lucian's mother. Appalled, she enrolled Lucian in the Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, but once again, Cameron followed. Now he had followed him to Chicago. Lucian was in an impossible situation. He couldn't get rid of Cameron. In fact, he quite liked him and was still flattered by his attention. He had known nothing else in his adolescent life, and Cameron ingratiated himself by writing Lucian's term papers for him and buying alcohol. Lucian began drinking heavily from the age of 14, presumably largely to the to assuage Cameron's pressure. Lucian was still a kid and enjoyed the wrestling, the fooling around and stupid games that 17 year olds enjoy and that Cameron encouraged. So Lucian and Cameron are in this weird relationship where Cameron is like sexually obsessed with Lucian and Lucian's not gay. And still like he still like entertains it because he like doesn't know any better and it's weird and kind of fun sometimes it's a very yeah, who strange... doesn't yeah who doesn't love attention 
There's this yeah. weird, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. This person really likes me. They're giving pay me a lot of attention. Right. Hey. Right. No, and, not on the yeah. lips. No. no. Right. No. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so so Lucian's tootling around the country and David Cameron's kind of following and Burroughs, who's not involved in that tryst, but is sort of friends with both of them. He sort of ends up following them, too. And they all go to New York. Burroughs shows up in New York City again, September of 1943. And at this point, in fairly short order, he meets Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Joan Vollmer, Herbert Hunky, and a variety of other names that people know who are familiar with the Beats will know. Basically, the Beats, other than than Burroughs, were Lucian Carr's college friends. Like that first year you go to college and you meet a bunch of people. Lucian Carr met a bunch of people and like half of them became like internationally known literary figures. Um, Just kind of weird. Um, uh, So at first, Lucian Carr, though he was maybe younger than any of them was sort of the ringleader of this whole like beatnik thing that was starting up. Um, he, uh, um, he got them all into Rimbo, um, including got Kerouac into Rimbo and Burroughs into Rimbo and future and, subject Rimbo yes. without a doubt. And the influence of Rimbo on beat on beat poetry is huge. And that comes, this yeah. comes straight from Lucian Carr. Um, <clears throat> Camerer would end up living with this guy Chandler Brassard, whose novel "Who Walk in" uh, titled "Who Walk in Darkness" about uh, 1940s Greenwich Village has been actually described as the first beat novel. Um, so it was a cool place to be. Early early 1940s, sort of when the war is still well, not sort of when the war is still happening. Um, living in Greenwich Village, um, everyone's drinking hard, right? Um, uh, and especially as this migrates into the post-war years, there's a sense of like we survived all of this. Maybe the world was going to friggin' end, but it didn't. Um, so we're all here. Um, Lucian very quickly in 1943 befriends Kerouac's wife, Edie Parker. And so Burroughs ends up meeting Kerouac, Kerouac not long after showing up in town. And now Edie and Burroughs' common-law wife Joan Vollmer were roommates. This is how Burroughs meets the woman that he will later shoot. She is roommates with Kerouac's wife. Uh, Ginsburg, who's kind of the baby of the thing, he's on the scene by Christmas 1943. So all of these people meet right in the la- latter half of 1943. Um, I debated how much time to spend on like the beat thing. Um, and we could do you know there's a there's an art of darkness episode that could be done that's just the beats right um you know ooh, that'd be a good idea for a patreon only like a 90 minute two hour yeah. just cover the beats so it'd be a fun one that would be cool. something to think yeah. about yeah yeah for sure um i i think i'm not gonna spend too much time on it and, and there's a couple of reasons one burroughs didn't really see himself as part of the beat movement I think he is clearly like historically part of it, but I think aesthetically and creatively, he sort of isn't. Like he doesn't strike me as a joiner. He is his own not. dude yeah. through and through. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's better. He's to older think- too. He's older than the mm-hmm. beats. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's uh eight years older than than um Kerouac and he's which eight years isn't a big deal, but when you're like in your twenties, eight years is a big gap. Um um he's like a full-grown man and you're like a college kid right it's different 
And and Ginsburg is even younger. Ginsburg is born. I'm not sure exactly when Ginsburg was born. Ginsburg was 18 in 1943. So whatever that is, he's another three years younger than Kerouac even. Um, so I'll give you just a quick thing, uh, because one thing that is interesting, I think about this sort of beat thing, the, the beat sort of culturally, is you take the prominent figures who people think of, you know, Kerouac's born in 1922, Lowell, Massachusetts, French-Canadian family, grew up in a French-speaking home, right? Uh, by the time he meets Burroughs in 43, his Columbia career is already over at Columbia University, and he'd already been a merchant marine, and he was a member of the U.S. Navy Reserves. Now, Ginsburg is born 1946 in a Jewish family in Newark, um, and a, a kind of a Jewish intellectual family. I mean, his father was a school teacher, but there was a lot of like poetry being read in the house and things. And so you think about the three main figures, like you've got like this Jewish intellectual from Newark. You got this like waspy heir to a industrial fortune from St. Louis and this like working class French Canadian kid from like a real rust belt town in in Massachusetts. It's a very yeah. weird scene for the three it is. these it's, people it's to be. It's a pretty wild mix. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah, it'd be like it'd be like if the Wu-Tang clan was made up of like I don't even know what. Like the Wu-Tang clan was not made up of like eight black dudes from Staten Island but was made up of like, sure, but just like, Elvis like five Presley. Right, and Herbert Wigger. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, Johnny just, Cash. Right, yeah. And it's like, how and, are you, wait, how are you guys right. all? And, and the it does, Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so um, anyway, you know, there's this period here. Burroughs, is, Burroughs has got his money. Ginsburg is, you know, Ginsburg is a college kid. So, you know, he just, you know, he's got a little bit of, I, I don't know where his money's coming from, but he's a college kid. He's, he's not expected to have, you know, uh, a, a career at this point. He's 12, he's 18 years old. Kerouac, like I said, he's got a job as a merchant marine, which means he goes away for a while, makes a bunch of money, comes back, blows it all, right? And then goes back out, makes some money, comes back, blows it all. Um, so they're kind of just hanging out, all of these people. Um, and and it, something starts to develop in them. And let me give you, like I said, Lucian Carr was sort of the ringleader of this. Let me give you a little thing on a quote from Lucian Carr <clears throat> quote I suppose in those years at Columbia we really did have something going it was a rebellious group I suppose of which are of which there are many on campuses but it was one that really was dedicated to a new vision it's practically impossible to define maybe it's just a term we sold ourselves but but it was trying to look at the world in a new light trying to look at the world in a way that gave it some meaning trying, I suppose, to find values that were different and not accepted values, but at the same time that were valid. And it was through literature that all this was supposed to be done. And it was through Jack and Alan principally that it was going to be done. <clears throat> now, so all this is going on. Now I come to a part in my notes called the murder. But it's not the murder that people are thinking of. This is not about Joan, Bill shooting Joan in the face. This is a totally different murder, okay? The other murder. Uh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Quote. The night of Sunday, August 13, 1944, was hot and humid, making it almost impossible to sleep. People dragged mattresses out onto fire escapes and sat around on stoops talking and drinking. 
By the early hours, David Kammerer had located Lucian at the West End. Remember, David Kammerer's constantly trying to screw Lucian Carr, basically, right? Um, Lucian was already very drunk. When the West End closed at 3 a.m., they took a bottle and walked over on 116th to Riverside Park, crossed the Henry Hudson Parkway, which separates the whole of Upper Manhattan from its narrow strip of Riverside, and settled themselves on the bank of the Hudson, looking across to the Palisades in New Jersey. Lucian told Ginsburg that Cameron insisted that he let him give him a blowjob, and in the ensuing struggle, Lucian pulled out a scout knife with a two-inch bl- two blade and stabbed him. This was basically the story used in court, but Lucian also claimed that Cameron had threatened to injure Celine if he did not let uh, David blow him. Celine is a friend of theirs. <laughs> Lucian later told Burroughs that he had been so angry he told Cameron, I could kill you. And Cameron replied, well, why don't you, Ben? And Lucian did. Okay, now, at some point, uh, let's uh. see, uh, reading down a little bit. Um, according to Kerouac's novel, Lucian stabbed him 12 times in the heart. Then he tore Cameron's white shirt into strips and tied rocks up with the strips, which he attached to Cameron's arms and legs. He pushed rocks down his trouser legs and fastened his arm, arms with his belt, but it was all a hasty, inept, panicky job, and most of the rocks fell out. Lucian pushed him in, but he wouldn't sink. Lucian stripped off all his clothes and waded neck deep into the river and pulled him in. The body floated off downstream, face down. Lucian mopped himself down as best as he could, put on his dry clothes, and made his way back to Riverside Drive where he found a cab. Burroughs was woken at dawn on Monday by an urgent tapping on his door. He pulled on his bathrobe and went to answer it. Lucian was agitated and incoherent. He handed Bill a bloodstained pack of lucky strikes and said, quote, have the last cigarette. Bill knew at, l- at once what must have happened. Quote, so this is how David Cameron ends, he thought out loud. He crumpled up the pack of pack of cigarettes and flushed them down the toilet. Lucian gave him a garbled, still drunken account of events. Bill told him, well, you'd better turn yourself in. You could plead some sort of self-defense. Lucian kept repeating, I'll get the hot seat. But Bill paced the room. Don't be absurd. Turn yourself in. Get a good lawyer. Do what he tells you to do. Say what he tells you to say. You'll make a case for self-defense. It's pretty absurd, but juries have swallowed bigger ones than that. Bill didn't fully believe him, but Lucian was in such a state of anxiety that no coherent explanation of what happened was possible, and when Lucian left, Bill still didn't know whether it was true or not. Bill gave him $5 to go home. Bill dressed, then walked over to Morton Street to see if Dave had come back, but his room was empty. Bill went upstairs to tell um, this woman what Lucian had said had happened. She gasped, my God, how horrible. Now, at dawn, Lucian shook Jack Kerouac awake and said, quote, I got rid of the old lat man last night. Um, why'd you go and do that? Asked Jack, then dragged himself out of bed and woke himself with a shower, leaving Edie to sleep. Lucian still had Cameron's eyeglasses and the murder weapon. He asked Jack to accompany him while he disposed of them. In fact, as he had already intended to turn himself in, there was no reason to dispose of the evidence, but no one was thinking clearly. In Morningside Park, Jack pretended to take a piss while Lucian buried the glasses. And in Harlem at 125th Street, Lucian rather ostentatiously dropped his knife, the knife through a deep subway grate. Now, I could keep reading this, but not only does Lucian Carr get brought in on charges, but Kerouac does. And Bill is, in fact, wanted for questioning. Now, 
Bill ends up getting away with it because if you think about what actually happened, his friend comes to him and says, I just killed this guy. And Bill says, turn yourself in. And the guy says, okay, I'm going to turn myself in. At that point, Burroughs hasn't committed a crime, right? I mean, really, he hasn't aided and abetted. He literally said, go turn yourself in. The guy said he was going to do it. So Bill gets away with just questioning, no charges. Kerouac gets charged with something, um, and he he eventually he eventually gets off. He he eventually doesn't get convicted of anything. I don't think, but he, Kerouac goes and lives in Gross Point, with, right around the street, right down the corner, uh, right down the street from me, and lives with his girlfriend, uh, his wife, and their family for a while till like the heat cools off. Lucian does uh, go to jail for a while. I think he's convicted of. Oh, I don't know if I have it. Um, let's see. Quote. The court was told of uh, Lucian's alcoholism, how he had been drinking to excess since he was 14 years old, and was told that Lucian was unstable and had a split personality, but that he could be turned into a useful citizen under the supervision of psychiatrists and educators. The judge explained that by giving uh, Lucian an indeterminate term, it meant that Lucian's release was entirely dependent upon his behavior and rehabilitation. Um, He eventually served a little less than two years at the Elmira Reformatory. Now... (laughs) It's just a weird thing that, you know, one thing I think about in terms of just what what is this relevant to Burroughs? Burroughs was, quote unquote, friends with Camerer and Lucian. Camerer is stalking this kid who is literally a kid when it starts, following him all over the country. At any point... Burroughs could have pulled Cameron aside and said, listen, you got to stop this. You can't be following this kid around the country and stalking him. Like, I know he flirts back with you, but like, you got to knock it off. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like, just, just, yeah. Check your behavior. Figure this out. Right. Yeah. And so, so, you know, I guess you'd have to maybe know more details to totally understand Burroughs' culpability in this whole thing. But like... There certainly was, a, I think, a moment Burroughs could have stepped in well before this killing happened um, mm-hmm. and maybe done something. It's, it's always easy in hindsight. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Clearly, he was going to stab him in the heart right. a dozen yeah. times. I, you know, I don't, think about, I don't think about preventing even the murder so much as like preventing Lucian Carr from being stalked by this weirdo for years. Right. Yeah. Help yeah. your friend out here. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's gross. What do you what do you do? You I guess you carrying around a two inch blade. We are really fragile little little creatures, aren't we? I wonder yeah. I wonder what the you know, probably a quarter inch blade could kill somebody. You, you hit him in the right do, spot. You do it enough. Yeah. Carotid. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. pleasant. Not yeah. I know that area really well too. Riverside yeah. Drive that that whole area. You know, no, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was a, you know, this was a big moment. This is a big moment in like beat history, you know, obviously. You, you, you don't want to find yourself of all the rivers in the world. You don't want to find yourself dragging a body into the Hudson. Right, right. Somebody's no, going to find that. True. Yeah, There's a yeah. lot of people down. Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Camera wasn't the first, was he? No. Get tossed in that bad boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people toss themselves into it, too. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Now, with Lucian Carr out of the picture, Burroughs kind of becomes the thought leader of the beat movement. 
<laughs> um, You've been listening uh, to Art of Darkness. That was a great episode, Brad. Good job. <laughs> you can't you can't it's say over. the word thought leader on the pod. I don't no, allow it. I, not even ironically, not even with a wink. It's just not Fair permitted. Enough. It's verboten. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, let me, <laughs> let me, I said it's because I knew I, knew I, I did not a reaction I hate you. that phrase so much. <laughs> oh, I do too. It makes I me, too. it makes me stabby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really yeah. does. I, I actually, the legend goes. I mean, this is unverified. Apparently, Camera referred to Lucian Carr as a thought leader, and Lucian Carr stabbed him to death. Stabbed him to death. Yeah, and the judge was like, do... and the judge was like, fair, That's justified. Fair. Yeah, give this man a medal. <laughs> <laughs> I remember encountering like in the theater world, people, this group of people who started calling themselves taste makers. Oh, God. I just wanted to just like, Wah. yeah, uh, yeah. Know. Just the okay. most insufferable people you'll of all of history. Just absolutely yeah. horrible. Yeah. Thought yeah. leader. You know, yeah. th this is why we do the podcast over Zoom. So nobody gets stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have fun on Art of Darkness. Absolutely. We're going to hour three now, aren't we? Yeah. Hour yeah. Three this on, is... on Burroughs yeah. Redux. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, I'm going to just give you a quick, some of the things that they were reading kind of at Burroughs' behest. Right. All right. Cool. Um, uh, let's see. Um, in addition to Rambeau, Mil uh, Moby Dick, obviously, uh, Louis Untermeyer's poetry anthologies, the works of John uh, O'Hara, O'Hara and Raymond Chandler, um, uh, also Chaz Jackson Jackson's Lost Weekend, um, Saint John Purse, uh, T. S. Eliot's, especially the translation of Purse's Anabasis, um. <laughs> Burroughs had books on boxing and jujitsu, which he was still studying. He was studying jujitsu at this point. Um, he had books on parlor tricks, card games, and formulas. He had a book of Egyptian grammar that he passed around, a book called Yoga, a scientific evaluation, Abramson's crime in the human mind. He had books on psychoanalysis and psych uh, psychoanalysis analysis and psychotherapy. Um, uh, and then he also had, in terms of literature, he had Cocteau's Opium. Uh, Celine's Journey to the End of the Night, uh, Baudelaire's Posies, Ka uh, Kafka's The Castle, uh, William Blake. Burroughs thought uh, William Blake was a, quote, perfect poet. Um, Bill had the complete Shakespeare. Um, he also had The Oxbow Incident by Walter Von Tilburg Clark. Um, one of Burroughs' favorite books and one of my favorite books, Nightwood by Juna Barnes. Uh, the Folded Leaf by William Maxwell. Dead Souls by Gogol. Uh, Maiden Voyage by Del Denton Welch and a bunch of other stuff. Um, basically, all the Ginsburg and Kerouac and some of these other people, they were all reading from Burroughs' personal library. That was what that's where all their literary influences were coming from. Um, and it was a very, it was a very eccentric collection in some ways. Um, now, Burroughs, not only liter into literature, he was also into some fringe stuff. Let me just give you a list of, of some of the stuff that he would try throughout his life. And some of this was going on in this 1940s period. Um, <clears throat> Scientology, ESP, psychoanalysis, Wilhelm Reich's Orgone Box and Reich's, uh, Reich's Vegetotherapy, Alexander uh, Posture Method, uh, general semantics, Robert Monroe's out-of-body seminar, Constantine Rodave's uh, paranormal tape experiments, Major uh, Bruce McManoway's Pillar of Light, The Psionic Wishing Machine, Carlos Castaneda's fictional Don Juan. Go check out that episode. We did the, f the full story on Carlos Castaneda. Um, 
Uh, Burroughs believed in UFOs, Whitley Strieber's alien abductions. We're going to talk about that later. Um, he felt that all of these things had something of value, but none of them came near to really helping him. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm just trying to paint a picture a little bit rambly of how all over the place Burroughs is sort of intellectually, psychologically, you know, what are the, 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 the wide array of things that he is into? Um, in addition to this, Burroughs is interested in the low life, right? Kerouac is known for being sort of into jazz and that sort of thing. Burroughs was into like gangsterism. Bill Burroughs wanted to commit a crime right? and not necessarily kill somebody. He wanted to he wanted to rob an armored truck. Right. That was kind of where his head was at. Um, now, this this series of interests, this gangsterism, the criminal underworld. This is how Burroughs gets into junk. I'm going to read a little bit from his first published book, Junkie. Um, just this is, and this is, this isn't full fledged Burroughs that becomes the, 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 the cultural icon. It's an early foray and he's writing just very straight ahead. This is what happened. Um, <clears throat> quote, my first experience with junk was during the war, about 1944-1945. I had made the acquaintance of a man named Norton who was working in a shipyard at the time. Norton, whose real name was Morelli or something like that, had been discharged from the peacetime army for forging a paycheck and was classified 4F for reasons of bad character. He looked like George Raft, but was taller. Norton was trying to improve his English and achieve a smooth, affable manner. Affability, however, did not come natural to him. In repose, his expression was sullen and mean, and he knew he always had that mean look when you turned your back. I, I think Burroughs doesn't get the credit for how good he is at setting up a character. Just like, just like now you know who that guy is. <clears throat> Norton was a hardworking thief, and he did not feel right unless he stole something every day from the shipyard where he worked. A tool, some canned goods, a pair of overalls, anything at all. One day he called me up and he said he had stolen a Tommy gun. Could I find someone to buy it? I said, maybe, bring it over. The housing shortage was getting underway. I paid $15 per week for a dirty apartment that opened onto a companionway and never got any sunlight. The wallpaper was flaking off because the radiator leaked steam when there was any steam in it to leak. I had the windows sealed shut against the cold with a caulking of newspapers. The place was full of roaches and occasionally I killed a bedbug. I was sitting by the radiator, a little damp from the steam, when I heard Norton's knock. I opened the door, and there he was, standing in the dark hall with a big parcel wrapped in brown paper under his arm. He smiled and said, hello. I said, come in, Norton. Take off your coat. He unwrapped the Tommy gun, and we assembled it and snapped the firing pin. I said I would find someone to buy it. Norton said, oh, here's something else I picked up. It was a flat yellow box with five one-half grain serrets of morphine tartrate. This is just a sample, he said, indicating the morphine. I've got 15 of these boxes at home, and I can get more if you get rid of these. I said, I'll see what I can do. And shortly thereafter, Burroughs takes his, administers himself his first shot of morphine and fairly rapidly develops uh, a habit. Um, now, I'm going to some make some effort to track him on and off, but just know that he's basically just in and out of opiate addiction for the rest of his life. Weirdly enough, the reputation is that he was on heroin all the time. 
if you actually look at what he was taking most of the time, it was frequently pharmaceutical morphine, codeine, eucodol, paragoric, various things that had various levels of different kinds of opiates in them. Um, he was very rarely actually buying and using heroin. Now, the differences aren't huge, really. A habit is a habit uh, when it comes to opiates. And if you've got a morphine habit, a heroin, a shot of heroin will do the trick. But I just think it's kind of interesting that really often what he's doing is he's manipulating the pharmaceuticals that are available uh, to, to people in different parts of the world. Um, okay. Now, uh, let's see. Around this time, let's see. Um, yeah, let me, let me read one other part of Naked Lunch. It's one of my favorite parts of Naked Lunch. <clears throat> and this is about a friend of his. Uh, well, it's, he conflates two actual people in this bit. Um, he inflates, conflates a guy named The Sailor and a guy named Bill Garver, who was a guy he used to sell heroin with or sell morphine with. Mm. Um, yeah, and this is just a, a cool little sense of Naked Lunch. If you've never read Naked Lunch, this is one of the bits. Naked Lunch, you can read it in any order you want. It doesn't matter. There's sections with little titles. You can just flip to one of those and just read it. They're, they're routines. That's how Bill referred to them as routines, and they're just packaged together. Little, and almost like little vaudeville skits of, of literature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some of them feel more skit-like than others, to be honest. Some of them feel very much like skits. Um, I love a good yeah. skit. Who doesn't love a good skit? Right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quote, The sailor's gray felt hat and black overcoat hung twisted in atrophied yen weight. Morning sun outlined the sailor in the orange-yellow flame of junk. He had a paper napkin under his coffee cup, mark of those who do a lot of sitting over coffee in the plazas, restaurants, terminals, and waiting rooms of the world. A junkie, even at the sailor's level, runs on junk time, and when he makes his important eruption into the time of others, like all petitioners, he must wait. A boy came in and sat at the counter in broken lines of long, sick junk weight. Sailor shivered. His face fuzzed out of focus in a shuddering brown mist. His hands moved on the table, reading the boy's braille. His eyes traced little dips and circles, following whorls of brown hair on the boy's neck in a slow, searching movement. The boy stirred and scratched the back of his neck. Something bit me, Joe. What kind of creep joint you run here? Coke bugs, kid, Joe said, holding eggs up to the light. I was traveling with Irene Kelly and her, and her was a sporting woman. In Butte, state of Montana, her got the coke horrors and ran through the hotel screaming. Chinese coppers chase her with meat cleavers. I knew this cop in chai sniff coke used to come in form of crystals, blue crystals. So her go nuts and start screaming the Federals is after him and run down the alley and stick his head in the garbage can. And I said, what you think you're doing? And her say, get away or I shoot you. I got myself hid good. When the roll is called up yonder, we'll be there, right? Joe looked at the sailor and spread his hands in the junkie shrug. The sailor spoke in his feeling voice that reassembles in your head, spelling out the words with cold fingers. Your connection is broken, kid. The boy shied. His street boy face, torn with black scars of junk, retained a wild, broken innocence. Shy animals peering out through gray arabesques of terror. I don't dig you, Jack. The sailor leapt into sharp, junky focus. He turned back his coat lapel, showing a brass hypo needle covered with mold and verdigris. Retired for the good of the service. Sit down and have a blueberry crumb pie in the expense account. Your monkey loves it. Make, hers, make his coat glossy. 
the boy felt a touch on his arm across eight feet of morning lunchroom. He was suddenly siphoned into the booth, landing with an inaudible schlup. He looked into the sailor's eyes, a green universe stirred by cold black currents. You are an agent, mister? I prefer the word vector. His sounding laughter vibrated through the boy's substance. You holding, man? I got the bread. I don't want your money, honey. I want your time. I don't dig. You want fix? You want straight? You want a nod? The sailor cradled something pink and vibrated out of focus. Yeah. Well, we'll take the independent. Got their own special heat. Don't carry guns, only saps. I recall me and the fet in the F word. <laughs> Fell once in Queen's, Queen's Plaza. Stay away from the Queen's Plaza, son. Evil spot. Fuzz haunted. Too many levels. Heat flares out from the broom closet. High in ammonia like burning lions. Fall on poor old lush worker. Scare her veins right down to the bone. Her skin pop a week or do that 50, 529 kick handed out free and gratis by new, uh, NYC to jostling junkies. So Beagle, Irish, sailor, beware. Look down, look down along that line before you travel there. The subway sweeps by with a black blast of iron. So is that coherent? I don't know. It has. Yes, moments. it is. It's he's a great writer. There's a reason we're still talking. He's a great writer. Mm -hmm. Despite all this monstrosity, despite mm -hmm. all the horror that just slaps, you would mm -hmm. love to be able to write you, If you mm -hmm. wrote like that today, you'd be fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it, I it's think got, so. it's got music. It has it music. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he will just drop like, for instance, in the midst of that, let me just read one sentence as a, as a writer myself. I know a little bit about a little bit about them old words. Um, this is one sentence. He looked into the sailor's eyes, a green universe stirred by cold black currents. Like, that's haunting. That's a that's a hell of a line. So anyway, um, now, <clears throat> 1944, we're still in the 40s, September, Joan Vollmer, who Burroughs would later kill, returns to New York. She has a young daughter from another man. She got, uh, she becomes roommates with this guy named Hal Chase, who would in end up introducing Neil Cassidy to the crew. Neil Cassidy is sort of Kerouac's sort of muse and a frequent character, a major character and on the road. Um, soon enough, Bill and Joan, Bill Burroughs and Joan Vollmer start up a kind of romance. Uh, here's what Bill has to say about her. Um, let's see. So, yeah. Quote, she was extraordinary, an extraordinary, a very extraordinary woman. And we got to talking, exchanging ideas. She was the smartest person around. He compared her to Allen Ginsberg, saying that she was in many ways smarter because she didn't have any limits to her thinking, whereas Allen did. That was the basis of the attraction, an intellectual, not the usual talks about nothing. She had a sense of humor. It was more humor my style. She had an immediate insight into anyone's character, just one look, and she knew. Okay. Um, now, this slowly blossoms into something like a romance. Eventually, Joan will be um, uh, her uh, Carol, uh, will be Burroughs' common law wife. Eventually, Joan, uh, I believe in 1947, will get pregnant from Bill Burroughs and give birth to Bill, Bur Bill Burroughs III, Billy, he's referred to as Billy Burroughs. Um, and Billy Burroughs lives till 1981, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, 
one thing one thing I did want to note here, and it, it doesn't mean a whole lot to our, our overall story, but people might find this of interest. Kevin, do you know who Dr. Alfred Kinsey is? Yeah. Now, oh yes, I'm nodding vigorously. Yes, yes. I know who Kinsey is. Yeah, there's now, still the Kinsey Institute is still active, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure about if it's active now. I do know that they were doing around this time. They were doing this oh, yeah. very intensive sort of watershed study, and so much was made out of the findings of it and all of that. But let me let me uh, give you a little. Oh yeah, thing. you can go to uh, KinseyInstitute.org at the at Indiana University. If I'm not mistaken, we may have even spoken to somebody at Kinsey Institute for a project that I, that we were working on for that that money oh, really? shot for the oh really sort of online online internet sex comedy project thing that we were that yeah. we were working on. Yeah, but it's at it's at Indiana University. I mean, it's very above okay. board, and they study human sexuality. But I think mm -hmm. the Kinsey studies there's some controversy around them even still. There he was yeah. doing some things that were maybe not necessarily ethical yeah uh, and i don't it's know also like yeah mm. go ahead yeah I, I don't know a whole lot about the kinsey studies writ large but i do have this anecdote that's very interesting we're and all about anecdotes on our dark may give may give it what you will quote there was a diverting interlude in late 1945 when hunky now hunky herbert hunky was a junkie and a thief who burroughs was very was close friends with right total low life he was called the mayor of 42nd street for a while real real kind of outlaw character right when hunky was approached by a researcher in times square and asked to participate in dr alfred kinsey's study on sexual behavior hunky immediately asked to be paid and after the usual wrangling was given ten dollars he was also offered 50 cents for every new subject he could get to do it Hunky knew an enormous number of people who'd be willing, mostly junkies and thieves, and Kinsey and his assistant, Wardle Pomeroy, were thrown out of one hotel because the manager didn't like the line of seedy-looking pe people visiting their rooms, suspecting them of dealing drugs. Um, Bill Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, and Alan all agreed to do it. Bill was very inter interested in this project and was introduced to Dr. Kinsey, but it was the Pomeroy, uh, but it was Pomeroy who asked the questions. Bill was paid five dollars. Um, I just think it's interesting that in that original Kinsey study, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and William S. Burroughs are are in it, and Herbert Hunky. I mean, you just you know, uh, I mean, at a certain point in his life, you start going MK Ultra. Like, what happened? Mm -hmm. What is, I mean, he's like, he's, Burroughs was the main character. Somehow. In some ways. Yeah. 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 For his generation somehow. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I think so. I think, yeah, I agree. Yeah. 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 He's, he's huh. like ground zero for American counterculture. Just like, yeah. Yeah. yeah he like invented it. There, there's, there's no reason it had to take the exact shape that it did. And he, mm -hmm. he's uh, not a small percentage of. Yeah. impact on it yeah yeah yeah, huh. yeah. we're gonna see we're gonna see we're gonna see some more of that who's who's out there lurking now who's the who's the current thought leader brad who's the current tastemaker i'm this is a rhetorical <laughs> question as we make our, our five-hour podcast about whatever it's gonna end up being about art, art of, the art of dark those art of the darkness boys the art of darkness boys are yeah <laughs> they're moving the needle <laughs> burrows burrows too was moving the needles yeah 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 well yeah all the if needles you catch, yeah. if you catch my drift <laughs> if you know what i mean if you know <laughs> what i mean <laughs> uh, uh now all right i gotta keep this moving along there's a lot he lives for a long time this is the other thing we got another 40 years of burrows now we're not going to spend as much time on those coming years but one thing i want to note burrows and joan together 
Burroughs thing is junk. Jones thing is booze and benzedrine, amphetamines. She liked her amphetamines. She got to the point that she was doing so much. There was a there was a moment where Joan and Bill are in a sort of quasi romantic relationship. Joan is out of her mind on over-the-counter amphetamines all day long, so much so that she's like hearing voices and things. At one point, she she's found wandering around Times Square completely delirious and ends up uh, admitted to Bellevue. And she is the first female case on record um, to be diet to be committed with acute amphetamine psychosis. All right. At the same time, Burroughs is falling deeper and deeper into his junk habit, and he is taken to um, rolling what they call flops on the subway in New York with some of his other like hoodlum friends. He's a Harvard graduate who is now a junkie, effectively mugging passed out drunk people on the train. Based. Um, yeah. Based. Based <laughs> department. It's incredible. It's so much better than going on and getting a PhD and. <laughs> Well, Whatever. tell you what, if you think if you think you learned more about how all this works by getting a PhD than Burroughs did, eh, you might you yeah. might not have. Yeah. Burroughs was he was in it, man. I mean, uh-huh. he was he went he was in hell on earth yeah. somehow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Gets, it gets weird. Now he gets busted uh 1945, 1946. He gets busted writing a fake script, a fake prescription. And um, ends up by to get out of it, he ends up going to what was called the U.S. Narcotic Farm in Lexington, Kentucky, which was like the first large institutional scale attempt Mm. to provide Mm. like rehab, drug rehab for people. Yeah, that's where they they farm narcotics. Right, 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 right. Um, Uh, And it did the big rock, the big rock candy mountain for drugs and alcohol. Right, right, right. The the vodka, the vodka bushes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that, the big <laughs> the morphine <laughs> trees. Yeah, <laughs> you can yeah, you paddle all. There's a there's a there's a pond full of morphine. And you can paddle all around it in a big canoe. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Incredible. And the nurses help you shoot up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Safety. Safety first, people. Yep. A junkie's dream. Now, <laughs> apparently, I didn't know this. He got put on methadone then in like 46. I didn't know they were putting people on methadone that long ago. Like, mm. Hmm. It doesn't surprise me because, I mean, laudanum and everything had been a problem for a long time that I think yeah. needed a solution. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Yeah. So he gets, he does get clean for a while um, it, it, in Kentucky. The next thing they do um, is he, Burroughs takes, he and Joan, they go down to Texas <laughs> And the reason they go Yeehaw. down to Texas, yeah, well, it's because they got to get to they got to get to Mexico so we can finally kill her in Mexico. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's all pointing that direction, right? Mm. The big reason that they had gone down to Texas is his buddy Kells Elvins, Burroughs' buddy Kells Elvins, had this um, had this thing where you buy land to farm cotton, and there was this like holdover government subsidy from the war where the government was providing a support price for cotton of one hundred and fifty dollars a bale. So basically, you'd go. You couldn't lose. Like you, you'd go down, and basically the government was buying your cotton from you, and and there was no way to lose money unless you basically didn't try, which is what Burroughs did. He just went down there and smoked weed and drank a bunch for for a while. Um, I, my my note says you couldn't lose, and then the next paragraph, but lose they did. <laughs> <laughs> but they found a way. This is right. a this is a Harvard alum. Right. Yeah, he did will he, find he a way. Yeah. Graduate from Harvard. 
He did. Yes. Oh, yep. he did. Yeah. Oh, 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 good for him. Yeah. This yeah. is go crimson. Crimson. Right. All, right. Yeah, yeah. It's a good school. It's, it's yeah. a great don't, school. Yeah. Don't let this. Yeah. Don't let this man's life tell you any different. Mm. Um, mostly what they're doing down there is Burroughs and Joan are getting high uh, with Kells and other people. They're smoking red dirt marijuana. She's taking Benny's constantly. And supposedly they're doing hallucinogenic mushrooms, which if anybody knows the history of psychedelic drug use in the, in America, being on mushrooms in 1947 was like a full decade before anybody else even knew mushrooms. There was like a hundred people that knew mushrooms even existed in America in 1947. Um, so that's just interesting that even then there were, he was on, you know, he was always ahead of his time. Um, now around this time, and this is a wild scene. I would like to see a short film of this. Around this time, Burroughs starts dipping out because they're way down in Texas. They're way down in McAllen. For people who know, that's like as far south as you can get almost in Texas. That's way down, down there at the tippy tip. Um, and it's a big state. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Some people McC will tell you that Texas is a state of mind. Yeah. It's, well, it's that too. Yeah. McAllen, yeah, McAllen too. is further south than like. A lot of Mexico, yeah, a yeah, big that, chunk. Of, yep. It's further south than a, the like Nuevo Laredo. Yep. It's like east of Monterrey, east and slightly north. Yeah, it's way down there. So you might as well be in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they would start to go over the border into Reynosa to go to the bar, basically. And there were at the time wild bars in Reynosa. There was one bar that had a brown bear at the bar that drank scotch. That was like the attraction. There was the owner of this bar would sometimes walk around with a lion on a chain. <laughs> and it was we need here. to bring this energy back. Oh, I, I gotta we, love it. We need to return to this kind of thing. We've let it's, the lawyers take over too much, yeah. too much space. Safetyism. Mm -hmm. there, if you, I'm I'm 41. My drinking yeah. days are in the past, mostly, mm -hmm. and <laughs> as much as possible. And like, I've never drank with a bear. No, me neither ridiculous it's just like it's just yeah. corny I, I i will tell you uh, and just as a side on this there was a time in my life where i went to bars that were actually dangerous like oh yeah, yeah oh yeah it could not it might not go well um right 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 and yeah, then, yeah yeah that's yeah. a good feeling man because that's where the liquor that's where the liquor really you could feel it like doing its work the alchemy right. of the booze right right oh i, right. Be yeah. I belong here yeah, no i'm really the riding i'm edge. the king of here yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you have to have that energy that's how you survive right right that bar and yeah, people are, yeah. he goes oh he's the he he's the king of here right right <laughs> yeah 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 i don't know there's still places like that but they're a little bit harder to find now now it's yeah. like 15 dollar tacos and you know sure and everything yeah. yeah and i you know you know when it really happened is when when everywhere we've talked about this in the telegram everywhere in all the major cities, all of a sudden agreed to use the bare light bulbs at the same time. Yeah, what was that about? <laughs> Everybody agreed to do that look at the same exact moment. London, yeah. Austin, New York, Portland, Minneapolis, it all yeah. changed at the yeah. same exact time. Yeah, you and wonder. Nobody can explain why. Yeah, you and wonder. It, it coincided somebody... with the, the stomp, stomp, clamp, Mumford and Sons yeah. thing. It yeah. was that same period that happened all at once. 
you know, I always wonder, is it like, did some like, did some like industrialists have like a, a freighter full of light fixtures that they had to sure. like figure out a yeah. way to get rid of? <laughs> totally. What the fuck are we going to do with these, Larry? <laughs> yeah. Just wait, wait six months. And we won't be able Absolutely. to sell fast enough. <laughs> and that's called marketing. That is marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Marketing yeah, is Ivy not running Google ads. Right. Marketing is like that making yeah, actually actually changing people like what they want yeah right right yeah yeah, yeah. um it was around this time burrows in reynosa i'm just trying to keep us moving kevin because you're keeping us on track no it's great. great i'm loving it i'm having such a fun time this is Good. this is a fun episode for me i'm really enjoying yeah. it i love i love when i get to ride shotgun maybe i shouldn't say ride shotgun yeah. on this one but when i get to be color commentator. I'm getting my yeah. John Lennon episode ready. I'm going to bring yes. that in as Can't quickly wait. as I can. I'm really excited. It's going to be fun. That's big air. I got big books here. We're just yeah. getting started season four, dude. Mm -hmm. This is so Killing much it. fun. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's yeah. go. Reynosa. Now, yeah. So in Reynosa was where Burroughs began to understand the, I don't really know what the word is, the art, the craft of going into a city and finding young men to sleep with. And uh, that's a craft something right it, but it, maybe it, he elevated it to an art maybe well and my point is it is something you have to learn how to do mm. you can't just like snap it's not necessarily easy right well at, at, at that point in time now again there's an app right all right, the right. mystery and fun has been, yeah. has been taken out of the, the yeah. world by these these apps yeah now yeah. it it, it didn't necessarily go that well at first. It, it kind of got out in the Reynosa that this guy, this kind of weird looking dude was coming into town and he was going to try to sleep with somebody. And so that was somewhat embarrassing. But Burroughs is starting to figure out how to do it, who to talk to, how to talk to them, what parts of town to look in, that sort of thing. Um, and I, this is one thing I, I do want to point out. Burroughs, over time, becomes a very keen observer of people what people are like what people are really like right what the he's he began to he became good at getting figuring out what a person's deal was and you can see some of this some of this leaks into the writing i'm going to read a quick passage from junkie that i i just i just love what he's doing here in terms of giving you a character and a type and also saying something more at the same time <laughs> quote there's a person there is, a, there is a type person occasionally seen in these neighborhoods who has connections with junk, though he is ne neither a user nor a seller. But you, when you see him, the dowser wand twitches. Junk is close. His place of origin is the Near East, probably Egypt. He has a large, straight nose. His lips are thin and purple-blue like the lips of a penis. The skin is tight and smooth over his face. He is basically obscene beyond any possible vile act or practice. He has the mark of a certain trade or occupation that no longer exists. If junk were gone from the earth, there might still be junkies standing around in junk neighborhoods feeling the lack, vague and persistent, a pale ghost of junk sickness. So this man walks around in the places where he once exercised his obsolete and unthinkable trade, but he is unperturbed. His eyes are black with an un insect's unseen calm. He looks as if he nourished himself on honey and levantine syrups that he sucks up through a sort of proboscis. What is his lost trade? Definitely of a servant class and something to do with the dead, though he is not an embalmer. Perhaps he stores something in his body, a substance to prolong life, of which he is periodically milked by his masters. He is as specialized as an insect, 
for the performance of some inconceivably vile function. Okay, that's just a bit from that's just a bit from uh, the book Junkie. Um, Man, I'm going down this rabbit hole on Google Maps in the background where I'm just yeah. having this. I'm going into like a like a weird psychedelic kind of fugue state around <laughs> yeah. the fact that I could drive down 35W and that that could take me to Monterey. It looks like in 24 <laughs> hours. I mean, I could make that drive in two days, 12 mm-hmm. hours. Yeah, I could easily do it. Yeah. And yeah. and then and then I'm looking at the map of Mexico and the way the roads start to get more twisty and dense. Right. Just a completely right. different fewer McDonald's along the way. Sure, but there's still yeah. a Sam's Club in in uh, Monterey, you know, and yeah. like yeah. and just the the whole psychic topography of a place just right across that border. Just totally different uh world. Oh yeah. Yeah, and it is interesting that you can just get in your car and go there. The European mm-hmm. mind cannot comprehend <laughs> you and I still on a bucket list, dude. We we got to go see a US uh, uh, USC. What is it? Uh, UFC. Yeah. UFC. UFC yeah. fight uh, in Mexico City. That would be awesome. Oh God, <laughs> pandemonium! Really, seriously. I, I think yeah. I think that 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 actually could be the the next art of darkness corporate trust exercise that would retreat. Be awesome. Yeah, we, we should be. It actually should be Mexico City. We should go down there for like a week. That'd be pretty cool. Something yeah. to think about, dude. We'll, we'll yeah. put a pin in that. Put a pin yeah, in that. Yeah, that, that. that would be. I, I, you know, we. I wanted to go to Mexico City forever. Yeah. I, you yeah. know, I, I'm like 90. You know, it wouldn't. Maybe not this year, but like maybe next year. That would be really fun. And I bet we could dovetail it into an episode. We could bring a mic Why down not? there and like record something down there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. Now we're gonna talk about Billy Burroughs Junior. Billy Burroughs Junior. For a minute. Burroughs and Joan Vollmer's son. 1947, like I said before, turns out that Joan is pregnant. Now, I, I want to hit this note again. She suggested an abortion, but Bill mm-hmm. William Burroughs would not hear it. He believed abortion was murder. Nonetheless, they made zero preparations for the birth. Mm. He's a junkie. She's on Ben Ben Benny's oh, an alcohol dear. constantly. Oh, oh no. Um then she, he is born though. He's healthy at birth, apparently, little Billy. And Burroughs is a loving father for a while, but junk is kind of right there all the time. And in 1948, he's off to the narcotics farm again. This time he's off off opiates for about four months, during which time he gets busted. And this is funny. They're in Texas, right? That's like headquarters. He gets busted by this Texas sheriff named Val Ennis. Now, of all the things that Burroughs might get arrested for, Right. Think about all the things he could have been or was arrested for in his life. This time he gets busted for having sex with Joan on the side of the road. Like he's not even it's just it's just weird. It's it's not what you expect. Right. Because the, you know, Burroughs is the author of a book called Queer. Like he's that's his identity for most people. Um, But it's more obviously it's more complicated than that. Um, he gets busted by this Texas sheriff, this guy named Val Ennis. Val Ennis is actually somewhat famous because he'd killed at least eight people himself, mostly Mexicans, um, who, you know, he's the sheriff. He's a little bit like, uh, he's a little bit like Sheriff Tillman in C- Fargo season five is the way that I take it. He kind of just gets away with doing whatever he wants. Um, with this brush with the law, Burroughs packs the family up and in 1948, they move to New Orleans for a while. Um, uh, Kerouac visits them in New Orleans 
Kerouac is a terrible house guest, and this actually begins the split between Burroughs and Kerouac. There's they're not as close as people might think who haven't done who haven't dug into it. Um, and eventually they move to Mexico. Now I'm going to read a little bit in the bio um, about this period. Uh, they're not in they're not in New Orleans for very long, um, and pretty quickly they're moving to Mexico. Um, Oh, you know, I could I could uh, talk more about this, but I'm going to just for the sake of time. The reason they end up moving to Mexico is Bill gets busted. There was this weird crime. There was this weird law passed that basically made it illegal to be a morphine addict in New Orleans. Um, I don't think it was particularly constitutional, um, but the law provided, quote, a sentence of 20 months to five years uh, in the notorious Angola state prison. Um, he had, and, and he got busted with pot and a couple guns and a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of stuff in New Orleans. Um, he was going to go to Angola. And for people who don't know, Angola was like the worst prison in the United States to go to. And that's where Burroughs was going to end up. Instead, he bails to Mexico, which kind of understandable. Frankly, uh, you know, if it, if I was like sitting there, I didn't have a career. I didn't have much going on. And suddenly I was facing five years in the worst prison in the in the country. I might drive a couple hundred miles to Mexico. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Easy. Oh, yeah. no, no, content, no choice. Yeah. 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 Listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think in the back of every uh, American uh, middle aged Amer American man's mind is is the fleet of mexico option yep yep yeah oh yeah yeah mm -hmm. um now i'm gonna read a little bit from the from the uh biography here in september uh this is 1948 i believe it might be 1940 no this is 1949 september 1949 bill made a trip to mexico city with kells kells elvins and rented an apartment at rio lerma 26 preparatory to moving there with his family his lawyer had warned warned him that there was every indication of an unfavorable outcome in his drug case and he had decided to skip the country he was delighted by mexico city telling kerouac that a single man could live well on two dollars a day liquor included Fabulous whorehouses and restaurants, a large foreign colony, cockfights, bullfights, every conceivable diversion. He told Alan that he wanted to live in Mexico City and, quote, don't see how I can afford to live anywhere else. Bill told Kerouac that he thought he would be in Mexico for some time as the statute of limitations was five years. By October 1949, they were, they were there. With the exception of relatively short visits, Burroughs would live outside the United, United States from then until 1974. <laughs> So most of the time this beat thing is happening, Burroughs is not in the United States, right? <clears throat> like on the road is published, Burroughs is not in the United States. Howell is published, Burroughs is not in the United States. All the San Francisco stuff's happening, Burroughs is not in the United States. Totally on his own thing. Now, um, I'm going to read a little bit from this book, The Job, here. Um just think it's interesting it's it's you know a little bit on you know what are the what are the beyond just being able to get away with whatever you want down in mexico supposedly what are some of the intellectual interests that burroughs has about mexico and this book the job is a series of interviews that burroughs then edited into like more book-like content <clears throat> question is your interest in Maya civilization connected with the expansion of 
consciousness which you try to stimulate in your reader? Answer. The ancient Mayans possessed one of the most precise and hermetic control calendars ever used on this planet, a calendar that in effect controlled what the populace did, thought, and felt on any given day. A study of this model system throws light on modern methods of control. Knowledge of the calendar was the monopoly of a priestly caste who maintained their position with minimal police and military force. The priests had started with a very accurate calendar for the tropical year consisting of 365 days divided into 18 months of 20 days and a final period of five days, the Oab days, which were considered especially unlucky and in consequence turned out to be so. Now reading a little bit longer, uh, later. Accordingly, the priests could calculate into the future or the past exactly what the populace would be doing, hearing, seeing on a given date. This alone would have enabled them to predict the future or reconstruct the past with considerable accuracy since they could determine what conditioning would be or had been applied on any given date to a population which for many years remained in hermetic seclusion, protected by impassable mountains and jungles from the wave of invaders who swept down the central plateau of Mexico. There's every reason to infer the existence of a third secret calendar which referred to conditioning and precise sequence applied to the populace under the cover of festivals very much as a stage magician uses pattern and spectacle to cover movements which would otherwise be apparent to the audience. Okay. Why do I read that now? couple of reasons. One is Burroughs so far, the biography is just of this kind of drug-addled sort of maniac. You have to, and, and there's another way of looking at this, that he's basically collecting information that will later fuel the writing career. And some of that stuff is about the criminal underworld. Some of that stuff is about drugs. Some of it's about sex. Some of it's about the Mayan civilization, right? It, it's from all over the place. It's, excuse me, his Harvard education. It's him being part of the international gay party circuit. It's all of these things. Um, <clears throat> so... November 1949, Burroughs is in Mexico City, and he goes to the City College of Higher Studies studying Mexican archaeology. And interestingly enough, notice this is happening while he, if he steps foot in Louisiana, he goes to prison. He's doing all this, getting his tuition and his books paid for, and a $75 a month uh, stipend from the U.S. government from the GI Bill. Never served, never picked up a gun for his country, but he's basically living off of the largesse of the United States government. Um, as this is this is absolutely tac tactically appropriate. You have mm -hmm. to take every single dime you can get, every edge, every benefit, every little thing you can chisel back. Right. Pay your taxes. <laughs> pay your taxes yeah. on time. Do, well. Yeah. Pay yourself first. That's what the rich do. Pay yourself first. Mm -hmm. The IRS will take uh, an IOU. I mean, this is not mm -hmm. financial advice, but I mean, you can you can arrange payment plans. Just keep paying them. You know, yeah. pay your taxes, be an upstanding. But but listen, when there's an advantage, yeah. you yeah. take that. Yeah, Bill. Yep. Bill told Kerouac. He said it's always good to keep your quote snout in the public trough. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. All of these big companies are are government companies. They're, they're Lockheed yeah. Martin. If you work for Lockheed Martin, you work for the government. I refuse. Yeah. You're yeah. not fooling me. You're not fooling yeah. anybody. Right, 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 right. No, for sure. The public-private um, partnership is created. You work for the government. You work. You make <laughs> bombs for the government. Well, and this is the kind of thing that I think Burroughs understood. Like it's hmm. all. It, it, there's no. It's all chicanery, right? You know, like, you know, right. it's all, it's all uh, one big company. 
Yeah. That, that's totally right. I mean, and yeah. they figured out they pay you just enough so you can spend all your money at the company store, which is Amazon, which, which mm-hmm. of course, is DARPA. And, you know, it right. is, it, Bezos just grants an internet company first. They just sold books. It's like incidental. You know, it's yeah. everything is way funnier than it than it seems. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook and just plucky. Right. Right. You know, uh, right. Forget right. about it. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's all just, yeah, dude, that, that is a fabulous word. The word of the day on Art of Darkness yeah. season, well, this, maybe this is a thing we add to season four. Maybe we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Word of the day is chicanery. Chicanery. Yeah. Chicanery. Yeah. That's a yeah. fine word. It is a good word. Yeah. That's a real good yeah. one. That's when yeah. you play that at Scrabble and everybody knows you're there, you're there uh, for blood. Yeah, you're, you're a real player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, <laughs> now, one thing that's worth noting, early days in Mexico, Bill Burroughs is not on opiates. Now, hmm. during this period of his life, he is basically an alcoholic, though, uh, hmm. drinking excessively every day, all day long. But he's not doing, he's not on junk. Now, that is until he comes into contact with some figures from the Mexican underworld, uh, <laughs> which anywhere he goes, he is going to know who the criminal underworld is. He ends up being friends with a guy who personally knows the woman who pushes all of the morphine in Mexico City. Um, uh, There was a bit I was going to read from this book, Wild Boys, but I might not just for the sake of time. Um, Yeah, we'll skip that for now. We might come back to it. Now, um, he again, he manages to get clean. So we're now in 1951. He's in Mexico City. Obviously, Billy Burroughs has been born. Um, mostly what they're doing down there is partying with other expatriates. It was, you basically got up in the morning. W- this is what they would do. They would get up in the morning. They would go to this bar that was owned by Americans. And they would sit in a po- spot in the bar. And her daughter and Billy would play in the street. And they would sit there where they could see their kids. And just get drunk all day. That was that was the order of the day. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> right now, he Bill, you know, Burroughs is getting kind of crazy. Some things happen. At one point, he brandishes a gun at a cop and almost gets almost gets shot by this police officer. He gets uremic poisoning at one point just from too much alcohol and not enough decent food. Joan is also screwed up. She's a full-on, full-blown alcoholic. She's walking around in a cane with a cane because she had polio when she was a kid and it wasn't really ever properly treated. Um, more or less, their neighbors start to take care of the children, right? Oh. You just start mm. seeing these dirty kids out and the neighbor women just start, like, making sure they're eating, that kind mm. of thing. Mm, that's um, not a good scene. And Burroughs and Jones start sniping at each other. Hmm. she's he's falling apart she's falling apart she's becoming spiteful resentful um there's also this thing of like he's not really heterosexual so like is he able to give her the physical attention that she might be craving probably not um he also uh, gives off weird vibes yeah 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 exactly exactly there's also something in here that he had a very small penis i don't know how true that is but like Hmm like very small um oh. Oh. and so even if they did have relations it might have never quite worked oh. for you know mm. i don't know he's, he's got his own two inch knife whoa hey oh hey oh um uh yeah. now in june of 1951 burroughs takes his first trip 
to South America in search of yahe. Um, he it this trip. It's mostly he's trying to take this guy Lewis Marker, this young man Lewis Marker, on a, like a romantic getaway. Lewis Marker is like this straight kid who's friends with Burroughs. I think Lewis Marker's twenty one when they meet. Burroughs is thirty seven. And Lewis Marker basically agrees begrudgingly to have sex with Burroughs twice a week as long as Burroughs will finance Lewis Marker's day-to-day living. Uh, mm. Anyway, they set out to Ecuador looking for Yahe, ayahuasca. This is 1951. Very, very, very few Westerners have heard of ayahuasca at this point. Um, but Burroughs had, and he decides to go searching for it. They they go down there and they ask around for about two months. And as far as I know, they come up empty handed uh, this first attempt. Now, shortly after this, we get into murder number two. Okay, now let me just read. Oh, this is harrowing, right? It's like there's a bomb under the table. I'm waiting for it. Yes, yes, man. I want to go back to Mexico City. (laughs) <laughs> I wonder how hard it would be to get a gun there. Cause I know we can get a shot glass. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how hard it would be to get a gun. That's an interesting question. But I don't necessarily Probably feel like I not need to as know difficult. the answer. Yeah. To maybe it. we don't need yeah. to speculate too loudly on something that we're going to post on YouTube. <laughs> I'm already, I'm already telling people to delay paying their taxes, pay your taxes. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read an extended <laughs> bit here. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read a kind of an extended bit. Okay. Uh, Burroughs had arrived at Healy's. That's a friend of theirs. Uh, the, the guy who owns the bar that they would hang in on all day. But there, this is about his apartment, Healy's apartment. Burroughs had arrived at Healy's about 20 minutes after Joan, after leaving off his knife. He had with him a, a checkmade Star 380 automatic and his holster and a small overnight bag. It was a cheap gun, and he knew that it fired low. Healy was not present. He had presumably gone downstairs to work at the bar. Marker and Eddie Woods were there, though there was some dispute over whether or not Betty Jones was also there. Um... So basically, there's some people there. They'd been drinking. Uh, they'd been drinking for four or five hours, all of them. Uh, for her part, Joan was a maintenance drinker. She took small sips regularly and got through between one and two bottles of tequila or gin a day. By 7.15 in the evening, she would have been drinking for 12 hours straight. Bob Addison and his 17-year-old Mexican girlfriend stopped by briefly on uh, briefly early on, but he did not buy the gun if the sale was ever even uh, brought up. Addison's friends discount the idea, saying he was always broke. Now, Marker and Eddie Woods were sitting on the sofa. Burroughs was sitting in the dining room, separated from Woods by an arm's length by the uh, by the room division. Joan was sitting across from him with her drink at her side. Although Burroughs was not addicted at that time, he was not in a junk habit at this time. The conversation appears to have turned to the subject of how to get through a cure when there are so many ways of getting junk to threaten the addict's resolve. One idea Burroughs discussed was to retreat to an island that was reachable only by summer tides and that there would be no way to leave until the water uh, was once again high enough, by which time he would be long cured. Um, Now, there's... Now, when she says this, when he brought this up, I would go to an island and I would just be retreated there. I'd live off the land. Joan says something. We'd starve to death. You wouldn't be able to shoot. You'd be sh- so shaky if you try. Uh, if you try to come off it, you'll shake. You won't be able to shoot anything. So apparently, she's mocking his ability. His ability to fire a gun, right? And this is something people say. And I'm, I, 
I'm not, I, I'm trying to give context. I, I'm not trying to run cover for Burroughs, but what I'm trying to point out is tensions had been mounting. She had been sniping at him. Their life is falling apart. They're two, they're two mid thirties alcoholics living in Mexico city with no prospects, no idea what's going to happen to them. Right. On a 12 hour drunk and probably that's a daily thing. That yeah. has to be a daily thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You don't yeah. dip in and out of that. Right. Right. Yeah. I've read. Right. Right. <laughs> and and so, so Burroughs says nonsense after provoked by her provoked supposedly by her remarks. Um, he said he didn't get the shakes and was still a good shot. It was then that he said, quote, put that glass in your head, Joni. Let me show the boys what a great shot old Bill is. Now, according to Eddie Woods, who's a guy who is just there. Right. Um, quote, that's exactly what happened. So he did. And so she said, and she said with a giggle and she turned her head, she's balancing the glass in her head. And she said, I can't watch this. You know, I can't stand the sight of blood. I remember this vividly. And that's exactly what she said. And then it dawned on me, he was actually going to pull the trigger. So I started to reach for the gun as he actually aimed it. And then I thought you better not, because if it goes off just when you reach it and it hits her, so I didn't grab it and then bang the noise. That's the first impression I had was the noise. Next thing I knew, the next impression I had was that glass was on the floor rolling around in concentric circles on the floor. Then I looked at her and her head was over to one side. Well, I thought she's kidding. You know, that's the first thing you think. And then I heard Marcus say, Bill, I think you hit her. And then Bill said, no. And he started towards her, you know, and Marker got there first and I got over there too. And then I saw the hole in her temple, a little blue hole. And Burroughs Ugh. jumped on her lap and he said, Joan, Joan, Joan. I mean, he was out of it and shocked that this happened. Again, to me, that's evidence it was absolutely an accident. He was shocked that he had hit her and he was trying to wake her up. This guy was out of it. Now, so wait, so if he shot her in the temple, she must have been. I think like, she turned. She turned. Yeah, I, I think I think it, what it said was that she turned. I mean, she he, couldn't. Yeah, she might have been turned to begin with because she said she couldn't watch. Oh, right. She couldn't watch. Oh, my God. I mean, and if you, if you eat her in the temple, like, you you know, you'd think maybe up here you graze the skull and maybe you get lucky. Like, well, what what caliber was it? Uh, it was a 380. Ugh. Yeah, it's going to, yeah. I mean, it hits you there. It's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're done. And, I, you're and done. I'm sure they weren't very far away. You know what I mean? It was Ugh. probably whatever room you're in, it's probably to the wall across the way. You know, yeah. something like that. Eight feet, ten feet, maybe twelve. Dude, feet, you know. that is that is a nightmare. That is a yeah. day wrecker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, quote. Uh, read a little bit more. Quote: The Red Cross received the phone call at about seven thirty p.m. and ambulance number four was dispatched to the apartment where the emergency pe- personnel found Jones slumped in an easy chair with a wound in her forehead, flowing. Now this is in her forehead, flowing with blood. But she was unconscious, but still breathing. Um, da, 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 uh, she, it's unclear how long she survived at the Red Cross Hospital. Some reports say an hour, others just a few minutes. In addition to the ambulance, the police arrived, of course, accompanied by a number of reporters whom they had they had presumably tipped off. Burroughs reached the hospital on foot shortly after Joan, followed by a pushing, jostling group of reporters. In his confused state, he was interviewed by Lieutenant. Louise Hurtado in front of the reporters in the courtyard of the hospital, giving them a more or less accurate account of what happened. Um, uh, hmm. He said that he had, he basically at first said that um, 
after drinking all day, he tried to dis- demonstrate his magnificent markmanship and that he had placed a glass of liquor on the head of his wife, wife and aiming over the glass at a distance of two meters, he fired. But as a consequent consequence and result of the state of drunkenness in which he had found himself, he missed and injured the forehead of his wife with a bullet. Now, later, he gets sort of wised up by a cokehead lawyer friend of his and, uh, you know, tries to get his story straight. I mean, at this point, you're just trying to not spend the rest of your life in prison, right? I guess. Um, So here's a statement that he makes later, Burroughs does. Quote, I'm 37 years old. Three days ago, I arrived in Mexico. They'd been there for months. Three days ago, I arrived in Mexico, accompanied by my wife, with whom I'd been married for five years. She was a common law wife. We installed ourselves in this place uh, in Colonia, Roma. At 3 p.m., I went to apartment 10 in in, uh, 122 Monterey to visit my friend John Healy. Hours later, we were all drunk. I took my pistol from a valise and put it on the table. Then I picked it up again to demonstrate to those present how to handle it. And while I was playing with it, the shot was produced that killed my wife, who was seated before me. She fell to the floor, and I thought she was playing a trick, but one of my friends informed me that she was hit. Then I lifted her up and seated her on an easy chair. All my friends left. After that, my wife was taken by persons from the Red Cross. I went to that institution to find out her condition. Later, from a friend of mine, I knew that Joan had died. Um, you can even hear okay. in the in the language how he's already distancing himself from it. I understand it's like legally yeah. he's trying, trying yeah. making like a case. Yeah, but oof, wow, yeah. yeah, the shot was produced or whatever. Like right, right, right. It's the same kind of stuff you see in news now. Whenever you know sure. somebody, there's. And, you know, you, like I said, you can kind of understand it. I mean, the thing happened and, you know, you're trying not to try not to spend the rest of your life in prison um, yeah. in Mexican, Mexican, Mexican prison. prison. Right. And, uh, you know, I do think here's my take coming away from this. Um, I'm not trying to get him out of it. I don't think he intended to kill her. I don't I, think there was a yeah. conscious I'm going to kill this bitch in his head i don't think so either i've never had that impression and i especially don't have that impression now yeah i think i think it's crazy drunken craziness things got weird you know now now there may there may have been some some subconscious Mm -hmm. gnarliness to even to even do that yep like yeah and i and and a lot of people say the subconscious doesn't exist Right. And then where does that, that, where does that leave us? No, I don't buy that either, but some people will say that, but it's sort of like, yeah, so who did it and what did it and why would you, and of course, I mean, I think we've all, we've all been drunk on, you know, uh, yeah, at at one point or another. And you, the point is you lose your inhibitions. The point is, and she's, she's teasing you about your gun. Right. 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 I'll show her. Right. Right. And I mean, and like, and you know, and just, just the idea and what if he had even like, succeeded it's still a the a, one of the stupidest things you could possibly do oh you're it's firing a, level of a just gun like, in your little yeah. apartment living room like right and like where's ridiculous. the backstop and right what are you yeah. doing yeah, no dumb. the whole thing is dumb. the whole thing is ridiculous ludicrous and, right 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 and and you know and you know we've talked about this in our other burroughs content but you know burroughs would come to feel as though he had been possessed by what he calls the uh, called the ugly spirit now, at this point in his life, 1951, he didn't have that terminology. But over time, he came to understand. He came to ask the thing about the subconscious. 
he came to ask himself the same question like why did why did i really why did i shoot her like really like fundamentally why did i pick up the gun okay how do you answer that question okay how, how did i aim it and then how did i not do how did i not successfully shoot the glass six feet away like even considering how stupid an idea it is to fire the gun in the first place even a person who never shot guns could probably pull that shot off not maybe hitting the glass but just not shooting her in the head mm -hmm. right. right you just aim, aim i mean you know aim as high as possible i guess right i mean like and so he would ask him these quite himself these questions for the rest of his life yeah and, yeah you're just what what a nightmare right and he comes to the point and and you know there's sadly enough like there's times when he's like in his 70s where friends will say that sometimes just randomly he will start crying and he'll just start saying joan mm. you know 40 50 years later so yeah know, there's no he, coming there's no coming back from that i mean you no. you just you need jesus there's jesus yeah. or nothing yeah. at that point yeah, yeah yeah it's always jesus or nothing brad but i mean that <laughs> that's uh that's some pretty serious business it's it's heavy um you know it's and, very and, cool saint michael rosary here no it is light cool. no it is yeah, nice yeah uh, you know whatever whatever you think i, I think we said this before in a previous burroughs episode it's like whatever you think of like demonic possession uh i think burroughs is a good candidate for somebody who had it you yep. know yeah yep um yeah i'll yeah. co-sign that yeah yeah um he's got the and, demons and, yeah, he, and he was like and mexico city is like yeah gnarly yeah it's one of yeah. those towns where they're like there's some psychic energy there there's some ectoplasm yes uh, coursing through uh the yeah. bowels of uh, cdmx yeah. yeah yeah now let's i'm gonna read a little bit of uh other people's in their uh other people in their circles opinion on what happened i thought this was kind of interesting uh quote um, though in, in no way redeems Burroughs' culpability, the idea that jo Joan was feeling suicidal was wild, widely felt. Allen Ginsberg, uh, Allen Ginsberg's impressions of Joan's state from his visit with Lucian Carr shortly before her death was that, uh, quote, there was something scary about her, suicidal, just as she had said to Lucian, quote, how fast can this heap go? I think she said to Bill, shoot that off my head. There was a story I didn't read about Lucian Carr and Joan driving across country, and she was just like faster, 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 like mm. pushing mm. as hard as she could. Um, uh, continuing with Ginsburg, I always thought she had that she had kind of challenged him into it, that it was sort of like using him that she was in a sense using him to get her off the earth because I think she was in a great deal of pain. Ginsburg would always do his utmost to defend and excuse his friends, but his view was shared by a number of people who saw her at the time. Lucian Carr felt the same way. Quote, after Joan was killed, I remember thinking that she was much more the sender than Bill was, that the shooting was really her doing. Sender in Burroughs' sort of world is that there is a there are people who can influence uh events with their mind right uh, that's interesting becomes, yeah yeah no there's a uh in uh twin peaks agent cooper at some point says i'm a strong sender mm -hmm. that's right yeah that's right that's right in uh in naked lunch the senders are a political party mm. and they're mm. like they have like a whole ideology about using this right um how mm. <laughs> chase who basically disliked Burroughs and had been very close to Joan, told uh, the biographer Ted Morgan, quote, she wanted to die and she offered Bill a chance to kill somebody. 
that William Tell's stuff was a sham. Her death was a put-up thing to release Bill to let him commit, quote, the ultimate crime. He was childish about things like that. Joan gave her life to Bill. Now, okay, now let's see what, hear what Burroughs has to say about it. Burroughs rejected all of this. Quote, Alan was always making it out as a suicide on her part that she was taunting me to do this, and I do not accept that cop-out. Not at all. Not at all. Burroughs said he thought of Joan every day of his life. She was a permanent presence in his life. He took full responsibility for her death, uh, other than serving prison time, right? Quote, that is to say, if everyone is to be made responsible for everything they do, you must extend responsibility beyond the level of conscious intention. Uh, almost 40 years later, Burroughs explored the terrible idea that there might have been an unconscious desire to kill her. In uh, The Black Rider, the casting of The Magic Bullet, an opera written by Robert Anton Wilson, uh, Tom Waits, and William Burroughs in 1990, Burroughs wrote, quote, now, that, now a man figures it's his bullets, so he'll hit what he wants to hit, but it don't always work out that way. You see, some bullets is special for a single aim, a certain stag or a certain person, and no matter where you aim, that's where the bullet will end up. And in the moment of aiming, the gun turns into a dowser's wand and points where the bullet wants to go. <clears throat> now, as some weapons grade cope there, Billy. Yeah. 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 Done. Fucked the dog. It does yeah. not get worse than this. Yeah. You're a bad, bad, bad man. Yeah. No excuses, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's he's a fuck up. Like that's yeah. like it's, the ultimate dislike. It's monumental. It's just yeah. incredible. Yeah. At, and at the same time, because of your masterful storytelling strong sender brad kelly i am <laughs> somehow still pulling for him because we know he's a gene he's a he's also a genius right like he's right. he's a monster and a genius right monster genius monster yeah. genius yeah 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 mm -hmm. yeah now i, I want to talk a little bit about the cut up here um i actually want to talk about a two thing we're going to focus more on the burrow's work for a minute here um somebody could you could dedicate an entire podcast episode just to the cut up technique um and you know, fundamentally, what is, it, what is it? You cut up a text and you recombine it to varying degrees of intentionality, right? Um, Burroughs is sort of the most well-known exemplar of this technique, but he didn't invent it. He actually credits T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, uh, Dos Passos' USA trilogy. Um, Brian Geisen was already doing this in paint. Um, and what it started with was simply taking a sheet of text, a page of text, cutting it into four quadrants, and then rearranging those quadrants, right? Very simple cut-up technique. Later, it became much more high-resolution, cutting out individual words, individual phrases and sentences, and recombining them. Um, now, many people think of Naked Lunch as a cut-up cut book. It's actually not. Um, it The individual sections, you could argue it's a cut-up because the sections, the order of the sections doesn't matter. Um, but really that isn't so much cut up as just the fact that Naked Lunch is not a novel. It's a it's a book of prose. It's short stories, sort of, um, loosely connected, but it's not a novel in terms of telling a continuous story from beginning to end. Um, and it he hadn't even discovered, quote unquote, discovered the cut up technique when that was written. Um, I, I think, though, you know, it, it can be really easy to say because some of the cut up stuff is kind of unreadable. <laughs> Um, or it's hard to read more than maybe a, a couple of pages. Um, I think it's important to point out that Burroughs was fairly intentional, and I don't think what he his project was separable from killing Joan. 
and I'm going to give you start trying to explain what I mean here. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from the bio, and this is Bill. This is Burroughs talking about the cut up technique. Um, uh, let's see, three, four. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's see. Da, 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 da. And you know what? Actually, I'm going to skip the. Uh, no, here we go. Um, quote. Burroughs and Geisen had now extended cut-ups beyond tapes and collage and into the realm of personal relations, right? This is how far the cut-up stuff goes. It's not just about text. It's photos. It's video. It's audio. And then it's literally within your life, right? <clears throat> Burroughs now suspected that the entire fabric of reality was illusory and that someone or something was running the universe like a soundstage with banks of tape recorders and film projectors. He was determined to find where the control words and images were coined. He was cutting, using cut-ups in an attempt to backtrack the word lines to find out where and when the conditioning had taken place and, more importantly, who was responsible. Suspicion fell on Time Magazine's enormous newspaper clipping morgue and the files of the FBI and the CIA, but they were more likely to be the source material for control, not the masters of it. Um, ultimately, Burroughs, he takes the, the, the cut-up thing is the way that I see it is he's trying to do two things and maybe he's telling himself one thing and subconsciously doing the other. In the one hand, you have to remember, and we talk about this, if you go back to our dark room episode with, um, with Matt Pegas, we talk about this quite a bit. Burroughs is using cut up as an attempt to jostle loose the control that language has on us as human beings. Right. I will I will say that I have had in the throes of certain uh, substances, let's just mm -hmm. say, at, at my at actually extraordinarily low points and, and, and mm -hmm. sort of at high points, too. Uh, now that I think about it, I mean, these are weird states to sort of think back to. Yeah, I have had an acute awareness of the tyranny of the language mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where you just I, it would be wonderful to be able to escape not just English, but mm -hmm. languages in general. Yeah. And and yeah. and this is one thing you have to understand. I think think about what he's doing. He's literally trying to like break it. Like mm -hmm. he's thinking like if you twist it and bend it and move it around enough, maybe you can like literally break the shackles of language off of you somehow. Now, did he accomplish this? Well, you know, maybe he did for himself for brief moments. I don't know. Um, uh, but that's one thing he's trying to do. Now, here's another thing that he's trying to do. And think about again him shooting Joan and. He's trying to accept responsibility for it, but he's also has this thing where he's like, well, I didn't intentionally stand up and say, I'm going to kill her and then shoot her. Something, some subliminal process was happening there that I, you know, it, in his mind, this ugly spirit thing. But think about what the cut up, partially what the cut up is doing is he, it's a means for showing you the subconscious selection mechanisms of your mind right you take this text and you randomly rearrange it and something else emerges and i think one thing he was trying to do is it, it, that would provide a lens or provide uh, some resolution on this how the subconscious is choosing things um it's it's sort of like it's sort of like tarot in a way where you like randomize this process and then there's some kind of selection happens or projection happens and you're able to see below your conscious mind. Um, I right. think that's definitely what he's trying to do. Yeah, it's a um, form of it's a form of magic. 
Mm-hmm. And 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 I think he's literally doing this because and he's conscious he, of it. Like he's yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think he in part is doing this because he's trying to figure out why he why he killed Joan. Damn. Right. I think that's partly what this whole experiment is about. And where this gets even heavier is later in his life, he starts like in his 70s, he starts doing what has been termed shotgun art. And this is very loosely termed because it refers to a lot of different things. Um, Okay, so at some point in Lawrence, Kansas in the 80s, he's an old man, right? He starts shooting at cans of paint and spray paint against plywood. All manner of experiments with stencils and things, right? But shooting something is a big part of this. Um, and he's weirdly enough, these paintings start to sell very, very well, which is very weird. In the last years of his life, he's making way more money selling shotgun art than he is from his books, which is bizarre. Um, uh, and I want to shotgun art. Shotgun okay. Art. Yeah. 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 Now, now some of them are kind of cool looking. Yeah. But like, it's cool. Is it, is it art? Sure. Like, you know, I don't know. But let me just try to get bit. old Billy murder your wife paid. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. No. Um, now I'd buy one. Me, I'd buy one. I mean, at a reasonable price, it'd be something kind of cool. If I had a, if I had a cabin that was already haunted, I'd yeah, buy right, one for the right, haunted right, cabin. Right, I'm not buying right. it from a kid's room. Right. No, no, no. And apparently he would shoot, like he'd shoot this plywood and sometimes he would stare at like the wound in the plywood for a long time. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, quote, his concern was to see what the painting had revealed. He saw the paintings as a gateway to the realm of the unconscious and the imagination. He was looking for figurative elements. He was able to identify faces and people in the paint. Quote, some absolutely recognizable as portraits of certain people. If he particularly liked one of the faces that emerged, he sometimes had it photographed so he could use it again. The photographer would have to see the face before they could photograph it because Burroughs was very specific about which bits of the painting he wanted. He might use a face from a real red picture and another red picture or make collages of a number of pictures or of all possible combinations. There was a big failure rate. Very often, nothing emerged. Whereas Picasso was using art as a form of negotiation between the real world and himself as an individual, Burroughs was using it to penetrate deeper into himself. Okay, now let me read another quick little bit. Um, Quote, Burroughs had always seen the artworks, the shotgun art, as a door to the spirit world, an interface to another dimension of memory, psychic experience, and place. Like his dreams, his paintings gave him stories. Quote, the paintings write, they tell and foretell stories. Now the pictures are moving, laughing and talking, screaming, changing, but it is movement in another dimension, not some physical miracle of moving paint. Burroughs' use of his paintings and his previous use of uh, Brian Geisen's paintings for the same purpose as a port of entry to another world of spirits removes him somewhat from the general contemporary art world. Um... Here's the point why I'm bringing this up. I literally think in the end of his life, he and he might not even be conscious that he was doing this. I think he thought through the shotgun art, if he shot enough times at this plywood and spilled enough paint that he might be able to actually see the face of the thing in him that killed Joan. I think that's what he was trying to do. Jeez, man. (laughs) Right. So here's now here's the question. Burroughs didn't serve any time in prison. Did he get away with it? Well, I mean, the dude, you know, should have gone. I mean, he should have done time. I agree. 
I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I guess what I'm trying to maybe what I'm trying not. To, like, I mean, it should have been maybe. Um, I don't know how they do things in Mexico. I understand your point, Brad. You're right. you're making the point that like, yes, of course he was tortured, and of course right. he suffered for it. Yeah, you know, but just going to Tangiers. Right and partying right, for the next twenty years, yeah. yeah, yeah, and try, you yeah. know, that's not yeah. fair. I mean, yeah. it, it probably it sounds like a manslaughter type charge right. to me. I'm not a lawyer, yeah, yeah, but right. I mean, it's and I don't know how many years, and I don't know Mexican law, but he mm-hmm. definitely got away with it in the strict sense. I he mean, did, right, right, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. and in the in the legal sense, he he certainly sure, he certainly got sure. away with it. I just I do I I want to much like I, we get away with this podcast. That's right, that's right, and I'm haunted no, by guilt. I, I, uh, yeah, unironically, yes, I, and, and nobody's stopped us yet. Can you believe? No, I can't, hardly yet. believe it. Hardly not yet. believe it. Yeah, he he basically gets away. He basically gets he does serve like two weeks in in jail. It's possible somebody was paid off, but ultimately he he does he does kind of slink out of the whole thing. I think it's a suspended sentence or something like that. Um, ultimately, is the is the resolution. Um, he he not too long after the Joan thing, he goes back looking to South America looking for yahe for ayahuasca. Um. Yeah, he gets a two-year suspended sentence. Is what the what the ultimate legal resolution is, and this is probably partially uh, his brother had come down, I think, to help out. I think some money changed hands. Sure. Burroughs had friends within the criminal underworld, and you know, sometimes the criminal underworld and the legal world mm. um, blur into each other a little more than one might think. I'm hearing this for the first time. <laughs> Slow down. Right. What are you what are you trying to say, Brett? Are you saying right. all power is simply power? And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of porous and it operates across uh, boundaries. It, yeah, international yeah. lines, mm-hmm. right? Institutional lines. Are you lines. telling me it's all the friend enemy distinction all up and yeah. down the line? Is that yeah. what you're telling me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it sounds like he went through the legal system. I mean, and did he he did he didn't stand trial or anything it was more just like yeah no no he was, was in like, he was in jail for two weeks um okay. and yeah then and it's then, like whoops news right. send somebody some money he this dude accidentally shot his wife it's an accident right yeah right. i mean i you know i'm sure if it had happened in st louis it'd be a different situation right he would have had right to right yeah and in fact in fact the story was such like an outrage that his parents moved from st louis to palm beach florida like it was just like right. we can't your yeah. son's like a and a drunken weird thing like shot his yeah. killed his wife. Yeah, like, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to stop wearing loafers. You're right. gonna have to start yeah. getting yeah, moat yeah, had to moat had to put yeah. some tennis. Moat had to put on some uh <laughs> some floorsign <laughs> shoes. <laughs> um <laughs> and yeah. at Palm Beach, nobody gives a shit. They're just right, like, that's right, okay. right. Yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah, and now at this time, you know, there was kids involved too, right? So Joan's mm-hmm. daughter who wasn't from wasn't uh, Burroughs's daughter? She, uh, that girl goes and lives with uh, Joan's family, her parents, or something. And then Billy Burroughs Jr. goes and lives with uh, Moat and Laura in Florida. And Bill's like no longer a dad now at this point. Mm. Um, what a sad he, story! My God. Yeah. yeah. Now. Um, I said he went down and he he searched for he searched in Ecuador and and uh, South America for Yahe. 
he ends up doing this a lot more intensely than he did the time before. He meets uh, Richard Evans Schultes. For people who know the history of ethno 20th century ethnobotany, you will know this name. This is the godfather of modern ethnobotany. Um, we still might not even know... Westerners still might not even know about ayahuasca if it wasn't for Richard Evans Schultes. He was a Harvard, you know, he was like a serious academic, right? Um, and uh, Schultes gave Burroughs, who remember, Burroughs is still a Harvard man. Despite all of this, he's still a Harvard man. Once um, a Harvard man, always a Harvard man. Murder right. your wife, Harvard man. Right, right. So you sleep with 13-year-old boys in Tangiers? Harvard man. Harvard man. Right, right, right. Once now, a Harvard... Jeffrey Epstein calls you to the Epstein was not a Harvard man, but I, my understanding is that he spent time there. Didn't I think they give he was him an, an honorary. Office? I think, yes, they yeah. did. Yeah. Jeffrey I think he Epstein. was an honorary Harvard man. Harvard man. Yeah. I think they yeah. liked the cut of his jib so much that they I were like, I think ah. that they did. Come yeah. on in, Jeffrey. Yeah. What's a degree? Come on what? in. The water's fine. Yeah. yeah. Harvard yeah. man. Right. Dot com. <laughs> They're all too fancy. Too fancy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Burroughs actually ends up on an expedition with Richard Evans Schultes. So, like, he's literally, like, now he's, like, literally part of an ongoing expedition. You can read more about this. The The letters Burroughs was writing Ginsburg at this time, it's called the Yahe Letters. It's published in a, in a, in a book. Um, he does end up drinking on this trip. He drinks ayahuasca a few times. He sort of, quote-unquote, overdoses once, which... Um, Overdose isn't really an appropriate word, but that's okay. Uh, he he. Another time, he kind of doesn't do enough to have an effect. Um, he languishes in Lima, Peru, for a while. This time, sleeping with underage boys, like a disgusting piece of shit. Uh, and then finally, he has the actual. Whoops. Um, I still like him actual... more than Carlos Castaneda. What's that? I, I, know, I still some, like him more than somehow, Carlos Castaneda. I, I, I was really, really harsh on Castaneda. Aren't yeah. we doing a dark room? We're doing a dark room, right? We've got one coming up. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I will. I promise I'll go in more open-minded about Castaneda. Fair enough. Well, this is, you know, talking about Burroughs is like, this is always tricky for me because I find the Burroughs work really interesting and captivating and unusual and, and, and like, and I like it. And then like you read the stuff in his life and you're like, dude, like what is wrong with you? Like, you know, like I, I still, I also think like, you know, maybe the world would have been a better place if he would have just like OD'd the first time he did morphine, you know, I, I'm not sure. Right. Like anyway, um, here's him describing, um, <clears throat> here's him describing when the time he really had the Yahe Yah experience quote, Yahe is space time travel. The room seems to shake and vibrate with motion. The blood and substance of many races, Negro, Polynesian, mountain mongrel, desert nomad, polyglot, Near East, Indian, and new races as yet unconceived and unborn, combinations not yet realized, passes through your body. You make migrations, incredible journeys through jungles and deserts and mountains, stasis and death in closed mountain valleys where plants grow out of your cock and vast crustaceans hatch inside you and grow and break the shell of your body across the Pacific in an outrigger canoe to Easter Island. The Composite city, Near Eastern, Mongol, South Pacific, South American, where all human potentials are spread out in a vast silent market. So if you've ever wanted to do Yahe, that's the experience you, you may have. Now, 
The next big chapter in Burroughs' life is Tangiers, 1954. Burroughs lands in Tangiers. Within a few months, he's finding himself within the... We talked a bit, I think, about this in uh, a previous dark room, or maybe the original Burroughs episode on what Tangiers was like. It was a free-for-all in the early 1950s. It was sort of run by a consortium, and sometimes a consortium means that nobody's really running anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's so fun, dude. I why can't we have consortiums anymore? Right, right? right like right. we're all so alienated and atomized. What's stopping us? Like I imagine for Art of Darkness in the future, man. Like I, other podcasts have done this. We grow to a certain point, you get a budget, and you you create the Art of Darkness podcast network. Yeah, and yeah. coach coach some other people who want to have a show. And help produce mm. their show and bring them mm. in and then start to cross-pollinate and everything. I mean, right, we kind of have the podcast party circuit. Yeah, yeah. We're not yeah. we're not a bunch of uh, homosexual old money Hungarians <laughs> in the podcast. Not, not yet, anyway. Right, not yet. Right. <laughs> For all we know, there are. Like, uh, what do we really know about Matt Pegas? What do we really know about Dan Baltic? Yeah, they're nice, the show's intelligent lawyer. men. They're yeah, lovely, I but I mean, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know about their Hungarian roots, right? But I'm serious about this. Like, the, we got to really bring right, consortiums back. Like, I think mm. that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah the Art of Darkness yeah. podcast network circa 2028. We're mm. gonna, we're gonna. I, I have a feeling in the distant yeah. future there could be other shows that could yeah. be launched. I think we should. I think we should buy a like a abandoned oil rig out in the ocean somewhere. Oh, you oh. know, get satellite mm. internet going out there mm -hmm. and just yeah. start a little micro nation. Okay, all right. Who <laughs> <laughs> a micro nation yeah. on an oil rig? Something like that, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's. Yeah. I don't know. If it sounds cold. It sounds well, dangerous. It could be in the Caribbean, though. You it know, could be it could be Caribbean. off the coast of Venezuela or something. Hurricanes and things. Yeah, yeah. we'll have to we'll have yeah. to figure out how we'll, to pilot we'll... a helicopter. Right, right, right. Well, that's mm. the first step. Yeah, obviously, this is great. <laughs> I love I love when uh, the episodes turn into production meetings. <laughs> um, okay, so so Tangiers. Um, just su suffice it to say, it was being run by basically eight different countries. And nobody was really running the show, and it and it, what ended up happening it was it was kind of anarchy. Um, a lot of the laws that were apply applied in other countries sort of didn't really apply anymore, and so you had a bunch of like bohemian expats who were into drugs or were into you know having sex with other dudes. Um, they ended up kind of filtering down there. Burroughs very quickly ingratiates himself into the expat community. Um, Paul Bowles particularly is sort of the, he's sort of the biggest name down there. And for people who don't know Paul Bowles, Sheltering, The Sheltering Sky is a brilliant novel. It's amazing. I would highly recommend it. Um, Burroughs gets a regular boyfriend down there, uh, a Spanish kid around the age of 18 or 19 named Kiki, who, uh, uh, apparently this is like a nickname for Henrique. Uh, Kiki is not gay, uh, but he relies on Burroughs for money. So again, Burroughs has got this thing where he basically pays for the kid's life and they have sex sometimes. Um, uh, interestingly enough, Burroughs, despite his penchant for young men at this time in the mid fifties, he expresses in a letter to Ginsburg, his disgust for another expat, this guy, David Woolman, 
Uh, this guy, David Woolman, has a predilection for very young boys and keeps a, a like a house boy of 13 years old. And Burroughs is repulsed by this. So take that for what it, it is. I don't know. I don't know what to make of any of this. Uh, Kiki would say that Bill could be difficult to live with. <laughs> and eventually, let's just fast forward on that part. Eventually, September 1957, Kiki leaves Bill. So Bill's with him for like two years in Tangiers. Kiki leaves Bill to go with a Cuban singer in a very similar arrangement to what he had with Burroughs. This Cuban singer who's gay, who's got a lot of money. Kiki's going to live with him, sleep with him sometimes, and then sort of live off his largesse. Um, Kiki winds up in bed with a girl, 1957, and this Cuban singer stabs him to death. So this is not a good... Not not good. Um, Kiki shows up in Burroughs' work like up into the 80s. Sometimes you'll see the name Kiki will show up and that when that does, when that he's he's referring to this this paid boyfriend he had Just in, an the, in the an incredible panoply of names. Kiki, Moat, right. Right. June. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is it June? Yeah. Joan. Or Joan. Yeah. Joan. Yeah. Kiki. Yeah. Ivy. Yeah. 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 Who else? Right, right. Incredible. Uh, Kells. 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 Yeah. Lucian. Yeah. yeah. Lucian. Yeah. What? Yeah. Who are these people? I feel like they're like an alternate society. <laughs> right. It's like next. I. They're out there still, dude. We yeah. are. It's making me feel real basic. Right. 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 Exactly. I'm nowhere near as. I don't know if sophisticated is the word. Rad. But like something. Yeah. Yeah. Rad. The like the same nail is like a, a name is like a nail of some kind. <laughs> like what's. <laughs> Uh, and after a fastener like what are we talking sure, about here? sure sure yeah uh now burroughs <laughs> found something else in tangiers and this would be a little drug called eucadol now eucadol um is essentially um eucadol was dihydroxycodenoin a morphine substitute made by merck uh, as a painkiller, but they found that it was, whoopsie-daisy, euphoric, an unfortunate side effect that stopped them manufacturing it. It was made from codeine with its strength uh, increased six times by dehydration. Um, it was short-acting, uh, with the high only lasting three or four hours, which made it particularly addictive as the euphoria made the user want more. According to Bill, quote, it had a great sort of lift like a combination of cocaine uh, and morphine. Uh, by the beginning of April, I believe this is 1955 uh, or 1954, uh, Burroughs was shooting Eucadol every four hours. Um, now, he had intended, when he told somebody when he moved to Tangiers that his intention was to steep himself in vice. That was the whole point he was going to Tangiers. Now, whether he intended to very rapidly become a shooting four hours a day uh, codeine addict who knows but um, he eventually does kind of pull himself out of this and he's starting to write by mid-1955 he's starting to write down the routines oh by the way he's published Junkie in 1953 with the help of Allen Ginsberg he published that under the name William Lee it was a trashy paperback that you would find at like a dime store um, but it was a published book of his um, 1955 he's starting to write routines that will make up naked lunch and let me read you one of the most famous naked lunch routines this is called 
quote, the talking asshole routine. <clears throat> so if you got kids in the room, maybe usher them out the door for, for a couple minutes. <laughs> quote, did I ever tell you about the man who taught his asshole to talk? His whole abdomen would move up and down, you dig, farting out the words. It was unlike anything I ever heard. This ass talk had a sort of a gut frequency. It hit you right down there like you got to go. You know, the old colon gives you the elbow and it feels sort of cold inside. And you know, all you have to do is turn loose. Well, this talking hits you right down there, a bubbly, thick, stagnant sound, a sound you could smell. This man worked for a carnival, you dig. And to start with, it was like a novelty ventriloquist act. Real funny, too, at first. He had a number he called the better old. That was a scream, I tell you. I forget most of it, but it was clever. Like, oh, I say, are you still down there, old thing? Nah, I had to go relieve myself. Anyway, after a while, the ass started talking on its own. He would go in without anything prepared, and his ass would ad-lib and toss the gags back at him every time. Then it developed sort of teeth, like little raspy, incurving hooks, and it started eating. He thought this was cute at first and built an act around, but the asshole would eat its way through his pants and start talking on the street, shouting out it wanted equal, equal rights. It would get drunk, too, and have crying jags. Nobody loved it and wanted to be kissed, same as any other mouth. Finally, it talked all the time, day and night. You could hear him for blocks, screaming at it to shut up and beating it with his fist and sticking candles up, but nothing did any good. And the asshole said to him, it's you who, you who will shut up in the end, not me, because we don't need you around any, here anymore. I can talk and eat and shit. After that, he began waking up in the morning with a transparent jelly like a tadpole's tail all over his mouth. This jelly was what the scientists call un undifferentiated tissue, which can grow into any kind of flesh to, on the human body. He would tear it off his mouth and the pieces would stick to his hands like burning gasoline jelly and grow there, grow anywhere on him. A glob of it fell. So finally his mouth sealed over and the whole head would have been amputated spontaneous. Did you know there's a condition that occurs in parts of Africa and only among Africans where the little toe amputates spontaneously? Except for the eyes, you dig. That's one thing the asshole couldn't do was see. It needed the eyes. But nerve connections were blocked and infiltrated and atrophied so the brain couldn't give orders anymore. It was trapped in the skull, sealed off. For a while, you could see the silent, helpless suffering of the brain behind the eyes. Then finally, the brain must have died because the eyes went out. And there was no more feeling in them than a crab's eyes on the end of a stalk. So that is the talking asshole routine. The talking asshole routine from Billy. And there it is. There's that, that, yeah. that again, that kind of vaudevillian yeah. and what a, but it's absurd and right. Dark it's absurd and, and dark nasty. and gross and repulsive. Yeah, and scatological. Like, right. It's all but, those but things. candid and honest. And, but, but also like kind of clever, like the turns it takes is like, Oh, then it, then it starts like, the talking, oh, this guy makes his asshole talk. And then, like, by the end, it's like this thing that's taken over his life. It's really, sure. it's like, it's yeah. like the most screwed up Twilight Zone episode ever, right? Mm -hmm. Or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so Burroughs was finding, you know, quite a bit of inspiration in this Tangiers period. He does at some point get clean off Yucatal. This time he gets clean. He goes actually goes to England and takes the apomorphine cure with this guy named Dr. Dent. Burroughs would always claim that this was the closest thing that ever worked for his addiction. There's a lot of research to indicate apomorphine doesn't do anything. I, who knows? I, I suppose it's one of those things that's very much case by case. 
the, something that's going to help one person get through it is maybe not going to work for another person. I, I think whatever the case, Burroughs managed to get off for a while. Um, now, Burroughs clean doesn't mean clean. He's drinking every day. And most of Naked Lunch, which is written in this Tangiers period in the mid-1950s, most of uh, Naked Lunch is written under the influence of something called Majun, which I mentioned at the beginning of the pod. Majun is basically uh, edible marijuana-like candy or pastry, and sometimes it has detura. And how much of the stuff that Burroughs used had detura, it's hard to say, but basically... Throughout the entire 1950s, Burroughs is stoned on edibles the entire time. <laughs> okay. So, um, including, you know, the entire writing of Naked Lunch. Um, uh, now, there's a little bit I want to read about the writing of Naked Lunch, though, that I thought was interesting. <clears throat> uh, quote, David, Dave Woolman, who lived next door, and Eric Gifford, who was on the other side, said they could hear Burroughs' quote, strange, wild laughter through the doors. He would sit hunched over his typewriter, pounding the keys furiously, hair tussled, often cackling with laughter at his own routines, throwing the pages onto the floor as they came out of the carriage, where the sea breeze would sometimes blow them out into the garden through the open door. I just love that image, just like not even really caring about the pages, sort of. Um... Uh, quote, uh, B Paul Bowles described the scene, quote, the litter on his desk and under it on the floor was chaotic, but it consisted only of pages of naked lunch at which he was constantly working. When he read aloud from it at random, any sheet of paper he happened to grab would do. He laughed a good deal as well he might since it is very funny, but from reading he would suddenly uh, go into a bitter conversational attack about, upon whatever aspect of life had prompted the passage he had just read. The best thing about Bill Burroughs is that he that he always makes sense and he is always humorous, even at his most vitriolic. Um, so yeah, interesting. Yeah, his style of humor is what would you even call it? Black, yeah. black humor. I mean, it certainly it certainly has its black humor elements. I mean, the, one of his funniest bits, and I don't have it right at hand. In my opinion, is there's a, a Doctor Benway bit. Dr. Benway is this character he came up with who's like a mad medical doctor. And Dr. Benway will do like insane things in the operating room. Like there's one where he's like, oh, there's no time. They're, they're doing surgery like in a toilet, in a in a bathroom stall. They're, oh, there's no time. And he's he's cleaning the he's cleaning the instruments in the toilet. And he's always doing weird experiments. And it's super dark. But there's something about like how how dark it is that makes it funny somehow it like crosses some threshold into absurdity that makes it hilarious i, I don't i don't know There's something very theatrical about him too it's oh yeah like he's setting up these like little scenes and yes. they play out and yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah no i think the i think the vaudeville i think the vaudeville well there's one and i didn't point this out there was one moment that i think was super influential on burrow's development as an artist when he would go see movies, like in the 1920s when he was a kid, they would have little stage plays between film strips or something. And he said he saw one time this 40-year-old man, something-year-old man, dressed up like a cowboy, and the guy was acting, doing the whole act, but he could see in the eyes that the guy was like incredibly embarrassed and depressed that he was 
this grown man playing cowboy to a bunch of kids. Mm. And I think there's something in that to Burroughs like sense sensibility, right? This like crazy wackadoo, like slapsticky kind of thing, but like this dark absurdity at underneath it. Somehow. Yeah. And that's a trope now. I mean, you think about baskets or you mm -hmm. think about, um, the, the magician character in arrested development. What mm -hmm. is it? The, the, one of the brothers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It just that, that, that pain, that kind of hidden pain behind the eyes of the person who has to be the center of attention. Mm -hmm. Just, it's a very thin line. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And how do you handle that even as a great actor? Mm -hmm. uh, I've been, I've been getting ready. I'm writing this article about Werner Herzog for a thwart and, uh, but his memoir and uh there's that great short film have you seen this brad this is a tangent but have you seen mm -hmm. this uh Werner herzog eats his shoe i have yeah years yeah. ago now yeah yeah yes. i mean and he you know and he talks about how the filmmaking and i think writ large he almost kind of means storytelling but it means he's talking mm -hmm. about filmmaking makes you into a clown yeah yeah, and there's that sad. Anyway, so Burroughs as sad clown is an interesting. I think there's idea. an. I think there's an element of that too. But I think there's also something like he has like characters. He he has a in Naked Lunch. There's a bit about the county clerk, which is a very like almost Kafka esque passage, except. If Kafka had ever run into like a deep South bureaucrat. And it's it's very it's very funny, but like underneath it is like this just like. At the same time, it's like this grotesque, oppressive racism. And yet Burroughs is like, he's not co-signing any of that, but he's somehow making it, it's hard to say, explain how he's even doing. He's sort of making it funny. He's making how dark that person is and their lack of self-awareness about it funny somehow. And it's not even that it takes the sting out of it. It just points you out, points out how absurd everything is in a way. Um, yeah. Um, one thing I do I do want to say about Burroughs writing, just this quick quote, um, when they're putting together Naked Lunch, he says to Burroughs, um, or in a letter, he, he writes to Burroughs, quote, how can I write a novel? I can't and won't. The novel is a dead form, rigid and arbitrary. I can't use it. The chapters form a mosaic with the dream impact of juxtaposition like objects abandoned in a hotel drawer, a form of still life. So... Why didn't Burroughs actually write a proper novel? He didn't think there was any point in writing a proper novel. Um, and it's not the way his brain worked. Um, I don't 100% agree with him, but I don't 100% disagree with him either. Uh, okay, 1957. Burroughs is in London for a while. Uh, he's written the word horde that most of the, all of these early books come out of, uh, but he hasn't actually published um, Naked Lunch yet. Um this is the period I talked about in the beginning. That's right. I already talked about this part when we, we folded this part in this 1957 period when he is in London um, and doing magical practices with Brian Geisen in the Beat Hotel in Paris in 1958. Um, I think one thing that's interesting that I learned in, in reading the Burroughs biography is you start to see the book Naked Lunch and the, the work that immediately comes out of the word horde as something that Burroughs was sort of summoning in the years leading up to it. He's sort of, he's sort of building himself, maybe not even intentionally, into the person who can bring this thing into life. 
um, a person who was uh, perhaps more concerned with formalities artistically would have tried to make it into a proper novel of some kind, would have tried to organize it in a more deliberate fashion. I think he was sort of willing to allow it to be like dreamlike and fluid and moving from one thing to another. Um, uh, you know, it's wonderful think, because he's, he's, he is inspirational in the sense that like, none of this is commercial, none no. of this. It's such a <laughs> crazy fluke that any of this, that this is on the shelf at Barnes and Noble. Right. It's insane. Right. Right. It is. Yeah. It really is. It doesn't make any sense. And you know, there's a, there's a reason nobody teaches this thing. Like, what would you even talk about in a way? Like, it's like, I think it's worth reading, but like, it's hard to. Uh, yeah, it, it, you don't go into it and do any of the normal literary analytical stuff. It all kind of falls off. It kind of rolls off the back of it somehow. Yeah. Um, now, part of Naked Lunch gets published in Black Mountain Review in, uh, I think, 57 or 58. And then some of it gets run uh, put in the Chicago Review, a student-run journal out of the University of Chicago. When that happened, this actually caused the University of Chicago administration to start uh, bring in, basically start to censor upcoming issues and all but one editor of the magazine resigned. Basically, Burroughs publishes in this journal and all, of, all but one editor ends up resigning because of how much of a stir this causes at the University of Chicago. Um, when another piece of Naked Lunch came out in a magazine called Big Table... One of those University of Chicago editors started this magazine called Big Table. There was suddenly a major issue. And I just want to read this bit because it ties into another subject we have talked about on the pod. Um, quote. Um, and there it might have ended with Naked Lunch being in Big Table, except for a surprise intervention from an unlikely source. August Durlith, the first publisher of H.P. Love, Lovecraft, read a review copy of Big Table and was so offended by its contents that he contacted the postmaster in Chicago to get the magazine banned from the mail. Under the Comstock Act, the U.S. Post Office has had stringent laws to prohibit, quote, obscene, lewd, lascivious, indecent, filthy, or vile articles from going through the mail. Durlith evidenced the desire to testify against the magazine in any hearing designed to under, to determine its mailability. Without realizing it, this self-appointed guardian of public morality did Burroughs a huge favor. This is one of the lessons people should recognize. Anytime you try to suppress, not anytime, most of the time when you try to suppress something like this, it just pops back up. It, it draws more attention to it. We, we call it now the Streisand effect, right? Suddenly... Suddenly this like weird Harvard guy junkie wrote this weird book and it's so obscene that the Lovecraft's publisher is trying to shut it down. Like what? I got to read this thing, you know? Yeah, right, right. For sure. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. I, that. That does make sense. Of course, you know, that's how it probably ascended. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is qualities of almost like Ulysses was similar where, oh, yep. this nasty book, but what, what it really is it? I mean, it's this experimental modernist yeah. novel. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it did, it did certainly, there was a, there was a trial and everything and, and, and Burroughs had to get, you know, various people to kind of come to his defense. This is why where Norman Mailer in Burroughs defense said something along the lines of Burroughs is the one American writer who may be, uh, maybe harboring genius or something like along those lines. 
Um, it's very, very interesting. Um, now, after Naked Lunch begins to come out, Burroughs had been clean for a while, I think like nine months or a year. He gets addicted again, mostly to a drug called Ubispasm, which is a, a drugstore narcotic with codeine. Again, most of the time, the stuff he's getting addicted to is pharmaceuticals that if you know who to talk to, you can just get at a drugstore. Well, um, Baptutrine. Right, right. The side effects may include spontaneous dancing. <laughs> the cut-up right. method. Right. <laughs> yeah, wife you murder. Invent- <laughs> you may become wife murdery if wow. you take too much yeah. well baptutry. Well, but yeah. you know, I do like the way it makes me feel for right. like 28 minutes. Yeah, well, what percentage? How often could that yeah, happen? Which right. side effects? They're right. on the side. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, right. Listen, how, it doesn't matter to me that I'm wife murdery. My <laughs> wife is already dead. <laughs> well, it's, I can take I can take as much of this as I want. Yeah, he the does have effect, an immunity to that side of life. Murdery it doesn't affect me. I'm a queer. <laughs> I'm I don't have a wife. I'm never gonna have. I, give me give me re up my dose, right, doctor. That's right, that's right, doctor. Feel good. <laughs> Call my Dr. Herbert Wiggers in New York. He'll tell you all about it. Uh, Dr. Wiggers, (laughs) put the Fago down. Now, by the mid-60s, I'm just kind of trying to skip through some stuff. By the mid-60s, Burroughs has left Tangiers. He's now in London. Uh, the main reason he's gone to London is, you may remember near the beginning of the episode, I talked about Burroughs' boyfriend, this guy Ian Somerville, who is a, uh, was, techno, uh, was an expert in various you know audio and video recording. Um, Ian had gone to London uh, to study, or well, gone to, to, to England to study at Cambridge, uh, which, uh, in my understanding, it's like an hour north of of London. Burroughs goes to live in London. Um, you know, there's a bunch of other reasons for this, too. The Beat Hotel stuff had run its course. There was some legal friction because a friend of Burroughs had told Moroccan police that Burroughs was an opium smuggler, so he couldn't go back to Tangiers. Uh, and London just seemed more interesting, frankly. Um, at this time, the the Beat Hotel experiments, the 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 magic uh, magical explorations that Burroughs and, and Geisen were doing, didn't really end, but they did sort of change in 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 flavor a little bit in this in this uh, mid sixties, uh, early sixties period. Um, uh, by nineteen sixty one, Burroughs through these magical practices. Um, and through the writing the word horde, he had basically torn apart the, the way I think about it. He has torn apart the fabric of his own reality. And I'm going to read a little passage here to that effect. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, let's see. So, uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg um, had come to visit him. Um, Allen Ginsberg and, uh, sorry, and Gregory Corso had come to visit. And quote, they soon made contact with Brian Geisen, whom Bill had mentioned in his letters. They hadn't met him before. Um, and uh, realized that there had been some momentous changes in Bill since they last saw him, mostly caused by Brian. Brian was, as usual, very mysterious and surrounded by an atmosphere of intrigue. He told Alan that Bill had left specifically to avoid seeing Ginsburg and indicated that dark forces were at work. He described psychic attacks, scrying, invisibility, and, of course, cut-ups. He was very aloof and treated Alan with barely disguised disdain. Um, 
Yeah, uh, Burroughs now suspected that the entire fabric of reality was illusory and that someone or something was running the university like a soundstage. Now, we already kind of talked about this part, but I just wanted to kind of... Running running the universe like a soundstage? Yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Um, he would hey. later... He would later come to think that there was an in some kind of insect committee that was controlling everyone and everything. Yeah, the in the insect committee. Yeah, yeah, we all know about yeah, the insect sure. committee. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> now, interestingly, around this time, I think 1961, he ends up meeting Tim Leary in Tangiers. Tim Leary's in Tangiers. We got to do a Tangiers episode. We got to do Maybe. a beat episode and just like yeah. a a Tangiers. It's X, really interesting y, stuff. Yeah, because yeah, there's all kinds of other people that I'm skipping over Bacon. that were there. Yeah. Francis Bacon, Bacon was Bacon was there mm -hmm. at the same at the same time. Yeah, crazy. Um, now, now Burroughs gets invited. Now Burroughs has a book out and it's getting a lot of attention. So he's rapidly like jumped up a level in his sort of like notoriety among people. Um, Leary comes to see him um, and invites Burroughs to speak at a Harvard drugs conference. Uh, a little later, Tim Leary and Dick Alpert, who would become uh, Ramdas, they meet in London and they take mushrooms together in Bill's little squalid hotel room at the Empress Hotel. Ramdas, Tim Leary, Bill Burroughs eating mushrooms in a weird little apartment. Uh, not long, too long after August 1961, Burroughs flies to the United States to present at the American Psychological Association's 69th annual conference to present his paper called points of distinction among psychi psychiatric drugs and sit on a panel with Tim Leary, Alan Watts, and others, standing room only. Now, Burroughs and Leary kind of start up a relationship at, at this point. Um, Burroughs and Leary would talk on the day Tim Leary died. Tim Leary would call William Burroughs on the day he died, and he asked Bill, he just said, is it true? And Bill said, well, I guess it's true. It's true, Tim. And then they said that they loved each other and Leary died several hours later. I think mm. if I remember right, Tim Leary was calling up a bunch of people, like final conversations with various friends. Bill Burroughs happened to be one of these people. Um, at the time, though, in the 60s, Leary and Burroughs kind of went separate ways. Leary thought that Bill was, was too bitter, paranoid, and out there. Tim Leary thought Bill, William S. Burroughs was too out there. Um, and... Burroughs didn't think Tim Leary was nearly as scientific as Tim Leary thought he was. <laughs> Tim Leary wasn't scientific at all. Right. Right. Exactly. He was scientific the way like yeah. Freud was scientific. Right. Right. We were just um, riding, riding on money and vibes. Yeah. 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 Now, uh, one thing I do want to point out is I think the impression of, I, I don't know if some people might have the impression that Burroughs was on psychedelics all that often. He really wasn't. He was a booze, weed, and opiates guy. Now, he did he did DMT, injected DMT maybe 10 times. He went on these Yage missions. He dropped acid a few times. He ate some mushrooms. You know, he, he didn't not do these things, but he didn't really like psychedelics, um, which I think most people might not. You might just think that he's like a guy who was on acid all the time or something. It's just really not the case. It wasn't his vibe. I think probably partially that thing we talked about earlier, he's a guy who killed his wife. Uh, you don't want to be in introspection land all the time. If that's, you got this, these various heavy guilts, you know what I mean? That could be part of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You just, you just want a 
like a key to get out of the theme park yeah periodically yeah. Yeah. right right yeah um now as we move into 1962 we got to think about William S. Burroughs is now becoming a celebrity. Not as big of a celebrity as he will become, but for instance, he's invited to uh, speak at the Edinburgh Literary, excuse me, Literary Festival in 1962. Here he meets Lawrence Durrell, uh, meets Henry Miller. He speaks with Hurt Norman Mailer about the future of the novel. He has arrived as a writer. Basically one book, right? <laughs> he has arrived. Um, there is a bit in this Edinburgh Literary Festival where Burroughs, remember, he's coming off of several years of intensive magical practice as well. He says in a panel, Burroughs claims that he once caused a plane to crash by naming the pilot and circumstances leading to the to the crash. Um, he'd been supposedly cutting up the text about this when the plane crashed. And the moderator said, are you serious? And Burroughs said, of course I'm serious. So, whether Burroughs was putting people on or whether he actually believed that he caused the plane to crash, I, I don't know. That's I leave that to uh, other folks. Um, the next big literary uh, move thing that happens for Burroughs is he begins to publish um, what is called the Nova Trilogy. The Nova Trilogy, well, I was going to say the Nova Trilogy is three books, Kevin. You might not know what a trilogy is got three books in it <laughs> um these are the soft machine um nova express and uh the ticket that exploded um these are hardcore cut up this is like peak cut up they're, they're they're difficult to read in a way because of this because of how intensive intensively they're cut up i'm just going to read you quick summaries of these uh of oh, do i not have all three of them hold on a second no i do it's just not where I thought it was. Um, uh, okay, The Soft Machine, first book in the trilogy, compilation of descriptive and interchangeable scenes which delve into the sexual and biological issues previously explored in Naked Lunch. Uh, supposedly, the main themes are time travel, media bombardment, and out-of-body travel. Uh, the Ticket That Exploded deals, Burroughs deals with tape recorders, uh, uh, Cybernetic pleasure farms, homosexual erotic exploit uh, exploitations on the planet Venus, uh, and the Nova Express follows Inspector Lee as he tracks down members of the Nova Mob. Um, it's probably the best uh, book in the in the series because there is something more uh, approaching a plot in that book. Um, I am going to skip over most of this Nova trilogy stuff in favor of talking more about the cities of the red Knight trilogy that comes later. Um, yeah. Um, one thing I do want to note 1963 Burroughs does make an effort to reconnect with his son, Billy, who'd been living in Palm Springs, 1963, Billy would be, um, gosh, he's still young. He's 14 or he's 15. He comes to live with Burroughs and Ian Somerville in Tangiers. Um, he's a teenager, a young teenager, uh, and Bill doesn't really do the kinds of things that he would need to to reconnect. He's 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 not a father anymore. He's been out of practice for for years at this point, um, and it isn't resolved in any real way. 
and Billy ends up going back to Florida after I think six months. Um, but let me give you, we do get a little bit from Billy talking about his father's writing process, which was kind of interesting. <clears throat> uh, this is while William Bur Burroughs is writing Nova Express. <clears throat> Quote, Burroughs would spend hours at a time smoking keef while sitting in the Oregon accumulator in the upstairs hallway, then suddenly rush out and beginning pounding the keys of his typewriter. Do we need to explain what an Oregon accumulator is? <laughs> Absolutely, we need to explain okay. what an Oregon accumulator is. Okay. Uh, do you do you you do it? You're okay. on a roll here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I and uh, okay. So basically, this guy Wilhelm Reich, he believed that there is a kind of he's like a Freudian. He's uh, yeah. one of Freud's uh, main acolytes. Ami yeah, amigos. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, he basically came up, I try to think of how to do this in the shortest way possible. He had this notion that there was a kind of radiation out there in reality called orgone. There was also a deadly orgone, but orgone, the good kind of orgone, if you could um, concentrate it and amplify it, it would have profound positive impact on your health, your mental function, your creativity, all of these things. And the way that you could supposedly get it to um, aggregate and amplify was to build an accumulator which in which you had to um, layer synthetic and natural materials like wood and metal. And um, Burroughs had a number of these built in various places where he'd live. So you'd have like maybe some wood and some metal and then some leather and then maybe even like plastic. But like the idea was you're supposed to layer natural and synthetic materials. Um, and Bill would build one that he could sit in and he would spend hours a day when he was writing, sitting in the orgone accumulator, accumulating orgone in his brain, smoking weed until the until inspiration struck. Um, so yeah, that's basically it. I think, I mean, um, my, my brain, I think of orgone is like chi. It's like his answer to to that idea, right? It's like a Western pseudoscientific kind of idea. And yeah, there are, there are people who will sit inside these like pyramid type things mm -hmm. because they mm -hmm. believe it helps them accumulate orgone. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, I do think I will tell you as a writer, if something seems to work to help you write better, then mm. it works. If uh, anyone wants to donate, matching orgone accumulators to the art of darkness <laughs> boys they have yeah. to be matching right. and they have to allow brad and i to communicate telepathically right right across lake superior yeah, yeah. so just go on to chineseamazon.com yeah. yeah alibaba yeah. i think sells these. alibaba and just make sure they match <laughs> and i won't accept anything uh without asbestos <laughs> <laughs> that's the key that's the that's key, the key that's yeah. the mwah, real sweet yeah see that's anyway. why that's this is the secret this is why they took asbestos out of all the building we were accumulating too much orgone too much orgone yeah. that's why the yeah. kids were all that's why everybody got hyperactive everybody right. got crazy yeah right right, right. yeah we right. have to get our orgone back yeah return to asbestos <laughs> dude i was actually reading about like asbestos <laughs> like on wikipedia reason i was like yeah, that, yeah. oh that's bad i didn't even realize super bad. Like, oh it's, it's so bad ever. <laughs> not a good way to die 
no, no good. We're still yeah. pulling that out of buildings. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Dude, yeah, that is yeah. no fun. Yeah, well, and now everybody who listens to Art of Darkness knows what an acu- Orgone accumulator it mm-hmm. is. It was funny. I looked up Orgone accumulator on uh, the Google and, it, and one of the uh, people also ask is, why was Wilhelm Reich jailed? Oh, I don't so, know about this um, story. Listen to this. The, we, we're going to cover Wilhelm Reich at some point. The crime of which Wilhelm Reich was convicted was of having violated an injunction injunction obtained by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, against interstate transportation of his orgone accumulator. Oh. Uh, a metal and wood legal, cabinet. Huh? Yeah, that Reich said restored human physical powers and the FDA, FDA declared a medical fraud. Well, now I'm an orgone accumulator respecter. Yeah. Because yeah. if there are if they're throwing this guy in jail over like putting this like <laughs> crossing state lines, there's something, there's gotta be something to it, dude. It's right. 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 Mm. I just think it's funny that they're cracking down on basically a cabinet. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what do you like? Dude, but then it, I mean, you don't, you don't mess with the, the medical association. Right, like that right, is like the biggest, right. one of the biggest, that and the teachers union are like two of the yeah. biggest cartels yeah. in the United States. Yeah. You do not, yeah mess with those people literally the worst thing that could happen in a court in an orgone accumulator is you might end up falling asleep and like missing an appointment like that's like the worst possible outcome right, of an orgone right, accumulator. Right. god i dude i love flim flammery i love it it's so good yeah i don't really I, I mean there might be something to it i don't know i've never tried it i haven't really honestly looked that deep into it i i, I don't know um hmm. It's literally just like a, it's like a quiet room. Yeah. Which, I, hey, listen. Yeah. For some writers, sitting in a quiet room and getting really stoned is a very quick route to product to to literary sure. productivity. Sure. Suddenly, I can get hard again. Yeah. Like, yeah. What, surprise! I've, <laughs> I've I've reduced my stress. My yeah, blood pressures to, come down. Yeah, I got to chill now, out for. 45 I got to minutes. chill out. Now I have an erection. Right. Uh, this is so interesting. And then you and then you open the door and Dr. Wigger is there with the bill. <laughs> <laughs> I uh this is this is okay, we gotta get back to this is you're doing a great job. I'm loving this, it's so much fun. Thanks, uh we'll yeah. get back to bros. But this is an idea for a show. For anybody who's looking for an idea for a show, I landed on the you know wikipedia.org slash wiki slash orgone, and I'm looking at the funny orgone accumulator. It's literally just a box. It's mm-hmm. like a it's like the room that they put the Amazon employees in when they've, right. you know, when they've dumped right. their diapers or whatever. <laughs> right. And um, this article is part of a series on alternative medicine. I would listen to a podcast that was just going A to Z oh, yeah. through the alternative medicine. It yeah. literally, dude, acupressure, acupuncture, alkaline diet, anthroposophic medicine apatherapy apply it these are just the a's dude yeah and it goes all the way through like oh and there's a blood. crazy story like half of those there's some total crazy dude behind it half yeah. of, you know some percentage yep. of them kind of work right right like i mean yeah, i would i would listen to a podcast. this is a free idea for anybody who is struggling with a podcast like i would listen to a podcast where you you and your buddy you know talk about vaginal steaming and explain it and explain the history of it. Cause that's one yeah. of them. And yeah. then bring on an expert. That'd be I would a hundred percent listen to that podcast. That'd be Young fantastic. blood trans transfusion. Incredible. And then yeah. right after conspiracy theories, bro, 
Yeah. I mean, and yeah, in, in any case, yeah, yeah, no, that would fun. be a great, that would be great. That like, actually would be a show yeah. that I would listen to. That I would listen to that. Really fascinating yeah. and super fun. But that's well, because you can tie it into so day. many things, oh, right? Yeah, when it came totally. and who invented it and what oh, was the resistance. Yeah. And if you and, and if you, know. you actually did your research and like got the books and kind of made the case for and the yeah, yeah. it'd be very interesting. Very super yeah, interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, so um, skipping ahead a little bit, 1965, September 1965, Burroughs lands back in London once again, and it is now swinging London. It's the swinging 60s. People who probably know what this is, the swinging 60s, let me just read real quick from the Wikipedia. We'll pretend like we, you know, the 60s are a foreign country. The swinging 60s was a youth-driven cultural revolution that took place in the United Kingdom during the mid to late 1960s, emphasizing modernity and fun-loving hedonism, while swinging Lon- with swinging London London denoted as its center. It saw flourishing in art, music, and fashion, and was symbolized by the city's, quote, pop and fashion experts, such as the Beatles, um, other British invasion musical acts, the mod and psychedelic subcultures, Mary Quant's miniskirt designs, pas- popular fashion models such as Twi- Twiggy, the iconic status of popular shopping areas such as uh, Kings Road, Kensington, and Carn- uh, Carnaby Street, the political activism of the anti-nuclear movement, and the sexu- sexual liberation movement. Burroughs drops right into the middle of this. Um, uh I'm going to kind of gloss over this a little bit, but there is one fascinating anecdote about this period. Um, Okay. Now, there gets to be... Burroughs is very interested in still in doing cut-ups. Now, he's not just writing. He's also doing photo collage kind of cut-ups. He's doing... uh, He's he's trying to figure out all the different ways that you can use this. I said at one point he was even sort of cutting up his personal relationships in a way. Like he thought that this this scrambling of things was really a way to like shunt yourself out of whatever trap you had found yourself in, right? Now, at this time in the mid-60s, Paul McCartney had gotten interested in releasing, which was a great idea, and I don't know if they actually ever did it, Paul McCartney got interested in recording monthly records that would almost be like a magazine on a record. It would have little bits of interviews and backstage talk and in-studio conversation with musicians, uh, might have little radio plays, and poets could come on and read it. It's kind of a cool idea, right? If you subscribe to it every month, you would get a record and it would be just kind of a hodgepodge of different swinging London stuff going on yeah baby yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean come on how great how great was that i remember when that movie yeah. came out we could oh, it was fantastic it was so funny yeah. we cried yeah. my mother yeah. died laughing she we, yeah. we probably went to the, see it in the cinema like two two three times right. it never happened <laughs> so, my so mom good. thought it was the funniest damn thing and he was, was really, really funny really that funny. dude was one of the biggest stars in the world yeah. and yeah know, rightly yeah. so very 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 funny yeah, yeah. He kind of he's kind of gone away, hasn't he? You don't hear much a from bit. him. Yeah, it's like yeah. every couple in a way. Years, in a way, a it's kind of like okay, good. That's good. I don't need to. I don't need to know what your politics are. I don't need. Right. You know, right. We're right. one of the funniest dudes for like a decade. Yeah, that's yeah, that's dude. you know that's all you need, right? You don't have to yeah. go on forever for real. Yeah, respect yeah. the hell out of that. Yeah. yeah. Um. So anyway, so Paul the McCartney teeth. wants the bad yeah. teeth. <laughs> They're so good. Perfect. The look was perfect. perfect. That look perfect. was totally perfect. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Only so, a Canadian could have made that. Only a Canadian. Yeah, an American exactly. couldn't have made that. Well, yeah, Somebody from it, it, true. you know from Britain couldn't have made it. A Canadian had to. Yeah, make that. interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna introduce my kid, my kid to that one day. Oh my um, god, I gotta, I gotta show my, I gotta show my daughter Wayne's World if she hasn't seen it. We gotta make <laughs> yeah, that happen. Yeah, yeah dude. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so anyway, Paul McCartney wants to make these little records, right? And um, to do this, they want a different studio space, and Ringo happens to have some room in his apartment. So they set up this little recording studio, and the trick is, I mean, partially to make these, you need people to be able to come by, but the Beatles are so big that they can't let anybody know about it. So they're kind of in this conundrum where basically what they've done is they've built a recording studio that nobody can really use. So what ends up happening is Paul McCartney's in there kind of screwing around doing like tape recorder cut up kind of stuff. And Barry Miles, the author of this book, is friends with Paul McCartney and he's friends with Burroughs. And Barry Miles says to Burroughs like, hey, you know, we got this little recording space in Ringo's apartment. If you want to go use it, you might as well. Somebody might as well use this thing. And there was a time where Paul McCartney and William S. Burroughs we're just hanging out in a in a bedroom studio in Ringo's apartment. <laughs> what year? Uh 1965, 1966. You're kidding me. No. Well, when did the White Album come out? Because the White Album very famously has no, it was uh it was released in 68. And so yeah. I wonder if he had a direct influence on I think number I think, number nine or whatever it is. I think he did. So check so check this. So quote. Bill, uh, Paul told Q Magazine in 1986, quote, I used to sit in the basement in Montague Square. I used to sit in a basement in Montague Square with William Burroughs and a couple of guys he knew from Morocco doing little tapes, crazy stuff with guitars and cello. Bill, uh, Paul and Bill got on well. Bill explained all about cut-ups, and there was a lot of talk about pot with uh, Ian Somerville at one point accusing pa Paul of being, quote, just an old pothead. Rich talk from someone who used to stuff his pillow with mar marijuana leaves when he was in, Mor in Morocco. Uh, Paul speaking, quote, in our conversation, in our conversations, I thought about getting into cutups and things like that. And I thought I would use the studio for cutups. This is Paul talking, but it ended up being more of a practical use to me. Really. I thought let Burroughs do the cutups. I'll just go in and demo things. I just written Eleanor Rigby. And so I went down there in the basement on my days off on my own, just took a guitar down and used it as a demo studio. Burroughs, quote, the three of us talked about the possibilities of the tape recorder. He'd just come in and, uh, he'd just come in and work on his Eleanor Rigby. Uh, Ian recorded his rehearsals, so I saw the song taking shape. Once again, not knowing much about music, I could see he knew what he was doing. He was very pleasant and prepossessing. Nice-looking young fellow, a uh, nice-looking young man, fairly hardworking. Paul said, quote, William did some little cut-ups and we did some crazy tape recordings in the basement. We used to sit around talking about all these amazing inventions that people were doing, areas that were getting into the, like the dream machine that Ian and Brian Geisen had made. It was all very new and very exciting. And so a lot of social time was taken up with just sitting around and chatting. So Paul and Bill just hanging out. <laughs> yeah, the song is Revolution 9. And yeah, this be, is, I thought that was more of a Lennon thing, but maybe well, I'm it, it was. But I mean, you'd assume, I mean, here's what all. Lennon said of it, right? Revolution nine. And we're getting ready. This is a teaser for the coming John mm -hmm. Lennon episode, mm -hmm. which I am beginning to prepare. Revolution nine was an unconscious picture of what I actually think will happen when it happens. Just like a, uh, a drawing of a revolution. All the thing was made with loops. I had about 30 loops going, fed them into one basic track. I was getting classical tapes, going upstairs and chopping them up, making it backwards and things like that to get the sound effects. One thing was an engineer's testing voice saying, this is EMI, test series number nine. Number nine, number nine. I just cut up whatever he said, and I'd number nine it. There you go. Right. Right. Nine turned out to be my birthday and my lucky number and everything. All right. Right. Um, there was some influence, perhaps not 100% conscious, but. But the the word there, though, is cut up. I just cut it's it cut up. up. I mean, it's in the so. Air. 
yeah, all in the go. air, right? Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. So I just thought that was that was kind of a cool. And of That's course, fascinating. Burroughs is on the um, Sergeant Pepper's cover. He's one of the guys on that cover. So mm. um, mm. now we should probably else? make a point of trying to do everybody on the cover except for the austrian corporal because as we know that that will end the show yeah, when we do yeah, that yeah so we have yeah. to you know in any case yeah. maybe yeah maybe i've been tweeting day. about some of those people over the last couple of weeks yeah iconic yeah it really is yeah it really is um okay so some other things that are going on in this period uh this is where bill gets really into scientology even more so and that we're going to talk about more in depth on the after dark patreon.com slash art of dark pod um in 1968 he attends the night the democratic Na- the famous democratic national convention in chicago uh for esquire magazine he attends with uh jean genet who is one of his favorite living writers and the writer terry southern uh uh, very little materialized for Esquire, but he went, he was there. Like everybody alive seems to have been at the Chicago National Con- uh, Democratic National Convention, 1968 Chicago. Um, uh, when he was there, Burroughs made a pit stop in New York. This is 1968. It's the last time that he'll see Kerouac. This is right before Kerouac famously goes and has his drunken meltdown on, uh, on Buckley's firing line. And at this point, Burroughs hadn't really spent that much time in the United States in a long time. And he saw that in New York, uh, 42nd Street had degraded into full-on sex shops, peep shows, full-on vice. Apparently, nobody was controlling anything. And Burroughs said, let's pack up and move to New York. <laughs> we're moving, we're going on the right, road. <laughs> right where my office was when I first moved to New York City. Is that right? I, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was one of the first places I worked i think it was like 40th right okay. in hell's kitchen yeah. baby oh, yeah yeah right off the the port authority yeah wonderful yeah, yeah. real cultural right 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 <laughs> i remember the the time the the homeless guy rented an office from uh the guy i was working for and moved in we found ah, out nice. over the holidays that he was living there oh boy <laughs> just living there it was just real yeah. yeah yeah he was there all night every night we thought he okay. was working real hard that guy Right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. Now, <laughs> so Burroughs, most of the 70s, Burroughs is in New York, not entirely. There's a lot of moving around. He's bouncing between Tangiers and London and New York. But for our purposes, we'll, we'll think of him at Bill Burroughs as being in the 70s. He's in New York. His mother dies, uh, I think, 1971. She'd been in a home suffering from dementia. He felt tremendous guilt because he literally never went to visit her, even though they were quote unquote close. She left him his final uh, $10,000. That was the last of the Burroughs fortune. But it didn't really matter because Burroughs could now make his own money. Um, There was talk about making a naked lunch film in the early 70s. Brian Geisen wrote the script and was apparently terrible. And it was like a musical. Uh, Chuck Barris got involved. Mick Jagger was involved at one point. Um, weirdly enough, for several years, Burroughs and Mick Jagger were in each other's orbit, um, hmm. even though Burroughs really didn't like rock and roll, which is kind of funny for his later huge influence, like making like records with Kurt Cobain and other people. Burroughs like rock and roll was just not for him. He's He was born in 1914. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It would be like, you know, it'd be like my, like, uh, 
what is um uh like what's uh oh i can't think of the uh the the um the dance music guy that has like long hair on one half who's that guy oh uh, I have no skrillex? idea who sure yeah. skrillex yeah burrows being into into the rolling stones would be like my dad being into skrillex it just doesn't okay. like yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't really compute doesn't make any sense yeah sure um you know, Mick Jagger was supposed to be in, and he was on the set of Fitzcarraldo. Uh, but oh, was he? It, yeah, yeah. He was. It, Herzog had to rewrite the script to get the character out that he was supposed to play because uh, he had to go on tour, right, with the Stones, and the yeah. schedule didn't work. I mean, that shoot was nuts. I mean, right. Yeah, my my yeah. favorite little factoid about that is at the end of that shoot, the the chief of the the tribe that they'd been working with there offered to kill Kinski for for Herzog. His, he was so nuts. Kinski was so nuts. Was like, hmm, was like, hmm, maybe. I'm trying to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Future subject, Kinski, yeah. dude. Yeah, I've been wanting to do real, Kinski, real Kinski monster. for a while. Yeah. Real monster. Yeah, for sure. Um, 1974, young man named James Grauerholtz. He's 21 years old. He writes Burroughs. He'd written Ginsburg, too. Um, he's a guy from Kansas. He played in a bunch of bands around Kansas. He's a gay guy and he loved Burroughs' work and loved Ginsburg's work, and he he comes to New York and he ends up meeting Ginsburg, and Ginsburg kind of points him in the direction of Burroughs. Burroughs is is uh, having kind of a turbulent time, having a difficulty settling difficulty settling into New York, missing Ian. Ian is back in in Europe, and 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 Burroughs is in New York and trying to figure out what he's going to do. Um, and he's you know he's an older man. He's he's sixty now, right? So it's starting to the whole thing's starting to slow down a little bit in some ways and speed up in other ways. It's 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 kind of an interesting time, the seventies for him. Um, this Grauer Grauer guy shows up. Burroughs sort of invites him in, and for a while they are lovers. Eventually, over time, this migrates into more of a a. a uh, the relationships ha- has a major professional component. Grauer Hollis becomes like his business manager. Um, and he heads up a company called Burroughs Communications, which is like the business arm of Burroughs Enterprise. The reason that Burroughs was such a figure in the 80s is because of Grauer Hollis. He was constantly getting him plugged into things, organizing events, you know, making sure that Patty Smith met him and making sure that Cobain met him later, right? Keeping Burroughs at the forefront of pop cultural, like, like, I don't know, pop culture, alternative cultural milieu that Burroughs was in there. A lot of this is because of Grauerhaus really understood. He was young, right? He was from that generation. He he understood this stuff. Um, and Grauerhaus would be with him until the end, not romantically. It starts off as sort of a sexual thing, 21-year-old Grauerhaus, 60-year-old Burroughs. And over time, it's more sort of father-son business partner. Um, and Grauerhaus decided, like, I want to get it to the point where all Burroughs has to worry about is writing. That's what I want. I want him to get to that point, and so he made it happen. Now, who doesn't want who doesn't want somebody like that in their lives? Right, right, yeah. exactly. Now, Kevin's all Kevin does is Art of Darkness, the yeah. the podcast about vaginal steaming, <laughs> and and writes his plays. That's it. Right, right, right. <laughs> Incredible. It. What a life. Thank you, honey. Thank yeah. you, honey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> I, I'm podcasting right from the Orgone accumulator. Can you right. imagine, dude, oh, yeah. if we started podcasting from an or we'd be on Rogan in two months. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should. Yeah. yeah. They'd the, be, could be you imagine first... the, 
the warmth of the tones you would get just mm, the just the, the chocolatey tone yeah, it'd be perfect yeah yeah don't edit just just up just, just upload. send it just, <laughs> just live streaming from the orgone accumulator <laughs> that's 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 what we should do our uh live episode in 2025 that's, live right, from both... the orgone accumulator <laughs> yeah we're both in separate orgone accumulators <laughs> shooting in. oh yeah. fun uh um now he becomes uh, in the seventies. Burroughs does become a sort of a a senior figure figure for the remnants of the sixties cultural movements, right? And it's interesting time because Ginsburg had been plugged in with the hippies, but Burroughs was not a pacifist, right? And so he appealed to a certain sort of disaffected hippie type. Um, uh, there's a little bit of anger, there's a little bit of bile, there's satire and darkness in there, right? Um, and so Burroughs eventually acquires a building, part of a building that was a former YMCA gym at 222 Bowery called The Bunker. They painted parts of it white. They painted parts of it battleship gray. And it would become a matriculation point in the late 70s for all kinds of New York hipsters, famous and not some of them not so famous. Um, now, People like Patti Smith came through there. Um, people like Susan Sontag and Dennis Hopper. Uh, Lou Reed was in there for photo ops. Um, he'd have dinner. Burroughs would have dinners there that were literally like photo opportunities for him in the sort of the, 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 the hip New York art community. Um, <clears throat> as part of the scene, Burroughs at one point interviews Jimmy Page and they have this long conversation about magic, which is pretty cool. Um, now, Something else starts to happen. Uh, let me think about how to do this. Um, there's another thing going on. There's a there's a concurrent thing with all this New York aspect going on. And that is that Billy Burroughs Jr. in the early 70s starts dying. He has, he you have to remember, his mother was, when she was pregnant with him, was an alcoholic speed addict. Uh he very rapidly got into drugs and alcohol as a young as a young guy. Um, he wrote a couple books himself that people kind of helped put together. Um, a book called Speed about being a speed addict, and a book called um, Oh, what is it called? Kentucky. Um, what the heck is the title of that book? Uh, Kentucky Ham. Uh, uh, a third novel, Procreti Junction, uh, was never quite completed, but I think you can read parts of it if you're interested in that. Um, so 1947, Billy Burroughs Jr. was born, right? Uh, he, uh, weirdly enough, when Billy was 15, he accidentally shot his best friend in the neck with a rifle, right? His dad had shot his mom, right? There's just these weird things. Um, after shooting his friend with a rifle, he had a nervous breakdown. This led to all kinds of things. Eventually, <clears throat> he has... I think in 1974, he has to have a liver transplant. Now, nowadays, even nowadays, a liver transplant is dicey. In 1974, there had been a very small number of them even performed. Um, and I think, if I remember right, Billy Burroughs had his liver transplant performed by the first doctor who ever did a liver transplant. Um, so very early days of this kind of thing. And Billy's life just dwindled from 1974 on. Um, at one point, 
uh, William Burroughs was teaching at um, the Naropa Institute in Boulder, and Billy came to like be with him for a while and got so sick that Billy had to stay. He couldn't be moved. He was so ill. And William Burroughs stayed in Boulder for five or six months, visiting him every day. <clears throat> but it was one of these things that Billy was not just sick and a drug addict. He was also angry and depressed and suicidal. And it just, it's the whole thing is just sad. Like he could never, he could never live up to his father. His father had ignored him for years and years and years. And now that he was paying attention to him, his father didn't know how to relate to him really. Um, Billy had like tried to do all the cool drug taking stuff that his dad did. And his liver just failed when he's like a young man. And it's like, Oh, I thought you could just be cool and do drugs your whole life. Turns out you can't like what, like what, <laughs> you know, he's like literally, literally trying to live up to his father at some certain points. Um, and anyway, 1981, um, Billy dies. Um, now, 1981 is also uh, the tail end of something I'm going to talk about briefly. Um, this is from Word Virus. If you just want like one single book, Burroughs book, this is the book to get. It's just selections from all of his biggest stuff. There's bits from Junkie and bits from Naked Lunch, etc. But part I, I actually want to read is... Um, from an intro, uh, to the, uh, cities of the red Knight trilogy written by James Garrahouse quote, by all accounts, a tsunami of smack hit New York in the winter of 78, 79. And within a few months, not only Burroughs, but most of his clo closest friends as well were addicted to heroin. Now he is 78. He is 64 years old and he's back on heroin. He was preoccupied with a circle of much younger fellow users who could score for him on the Lower East Side's burgeoning heroin scene. After five years, Burroughs was still working in fits and starts on Cities of the Red Knight, but his heroin habit took up a great deal of his time and his money. For the first time in many years, he was well and truly hooked. Ironically, some of the glassine bags of junk that he received were stamped with the Dr. Nova brand, inspired by his own literary persona. So he's literally would sometimes get a bag of heroin and it says Dr. Nova on it. And that's clearly a nod to himself, which is just a got to be a surreal experience. <laughs> now, um, 1981, a handful of things happen. Billy Jr. dies. William Burroughs is devastated. The, ramping the the continued heroin use is eating up all of Burroughs's time and money and cities of the red knight is finally done and ready to publish at the same time bill does one other thing it's time to get the hell out of new york city and where does he go he's a man who's lived in paris he's lived in tangiers he's lived in london he's lived in new york he's going to lawrence kansas where he would spend the rest of his life from 1981 till 1997. Huh. Well, that, that's a turn. Yeah. Now, Lawrence, Kansas, arguably for a globetrotting man such as himself, it's a lot closer to St. Louis than any place he's lived up to that point. 
it's not St. Louis, but it's way, way, way closer. And it's a more comparable uh, cultural milieu. The big reason that he moves there is because that's where James Grauhaus is from and where he wants to be. Lawrence, for people who don't know, it's a big college. It's a good sized college town. Um, (laughs) Now, he. um, Yeah, so he lives there for the next 16 years. Um, living in and around Lawrence, Kansas. He spends a great deal of time with James Grauerhaus. Um, He would, over time, have a couple more younger boyfriends. Um, He gets visited by people like Ginsburg, various beat figures and, you know, literary people. This guy, Dean Rippa, becomes a good friend of his. This is a guy who's a writer and a snake collector. People like Michael Stipe of REM come to visit him. Kurt Cobain comes to visit him. They famously... They didn't sit in studio together, I don't think, but there's a there's a recording called uh, um, The Priest They Called Them, which is a collaboration between Burroughs and Kurt Cobain. Uh, it's basically Burroughs reading Burroughs routines based on Silent Night and the Star Spangled Banner and Cobain playing like discordant guitar. It's kind of cool. I think it's worth checking out as a cultural touchstone. Uh, is it a hit? Not really, but for the Burroughs or Cobain completist, it is interesting. Um, there's a lot of records that come out in this 80s time because Burrow, because Grauerhaus is trying to make Burroughs profitable. So there's a lot of recordings and there's Burroughs doing a lot of readings. When Cities of the Red Knight comes out, he does a big reading tour and, you know, charging ticket prices, right? Um and here's one thing to say about Burroughs. 1981 is that time he's on Saturday Night Live. Probably Grauerhaus pulled that together. He is a interesting reading. I don't think that he's for everybody necessarily because his voice is so weird. But if you see him on stage or you listen to him reading, it is distinct. And it hits, it plucks a chord that not many other people can pluck. This very... It, he feels like a member of this insect committee out there that he's talking about. And it's kind of unsettling. I find it, I find it a little scary. I enjoy listening to him talking, but I find it a little scary almost, like menacing at least. Um, yeah, if you yeah. throw on some of his music, in 30 minutes you'll be transported. There's yeah. nothing else like it. It's really weird. It's far yeah. out. Far yeah, out. For sure, for sure. Now, um, now, one of his big ideas that we haven't talked about, and we're, we're getting close to the end. I want to spend a little bit on Cities of the Nerd Night trilogy, and then we'll kind of tell the last moment, and that'll be it. One, one thing I want to talk about that I haven't is this notion, it's probably his most famous idea, is that language is a virus, right? This book is, I was looking at, this collection of his work is called Word Virus. Like, what, what, is it, what does it mean? What does this have to do with anything? What, what is this, right? Let me read this a little bit. Quote, My basic theory is that the written word was actually a virus that made the spoken word possible. The word has not been recognized as a virus because it has achieved a state of, uh, a state of stable symbiosis with the host, though the symbiotic relationship is now breaking down. Is the virus then simply a time bomb left on this planet to be activated by remote control? An extermination program, in fact? In its path from full virulence to its ultimate goal of symbiosis, will any human creature survive? Taking the virus eye view, the ideal situation would 
appear to be one in which the virus replicates in cells without in any way disturbing their normal metabolism. This has been suggested as the ideal biological situation toward which all viruses are slowly evolving. Um, Kevin, what do you think? What like when you hear language is a virus, the word is a virus. Does that what does that mean to you? Does it sound just like some cockney? Stuff no, no, actually... I think it's true. I mean, I think I think it's this idea. It's almost this animistic idea, but but not about the physical world. It's about the world of dreams and ideology and the mimetic world. The idea again. I'm I'm thinking a lot about Herzog. Uh, when I'm finished writing this, I'll probably th- bring him up less frequently on the pod. But there's a in one of these documentaries about him and it's like an interview with him you know in german and he's talking about how he really believes that the the images that he presents uh are they're not his own he presents images that people recognize and claim as their own because he's somehow drawing upon uh almost i guess like an akashic record of images that exist kind of in the in the ether and he just brings them to fruition they're not his own ideas. He's more of a midwife of, of ideas. And I think you could make the case that, yeah, language might have its own will. It exists mm-hmm. outside. There's not one single person. Uh, nobody decided that based would come to mean what it means, right? Based, right. whatever. Nobody right. said when cool became, a, you know, it, it, and, and it goes viral. And right. I think, I don't think you can make, I don't think you can argue. It would be hard, more difficult to argue against this idea that, yeah. That language is like a virus. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. even like when you go talk to like, well, like the whole the famous Richard Dawkins idea of the meme, right? If you go back to that version of it, language, the, the whole idea of the meme, we know memes as being like jokes. And and those memes do fit Richard Dawkins, what he was talking about with a meme. But for him, a meme was like the basic subunit of a cultural idea. And right. that they could replicate and pass on just like genes could. And some would be better fit and they would evolve and everything just like genes do, right? And language, that is what language is. That's how language survives is by if I express something to you, I use a word in a way that to you makes sense, then you will start using that word in that way from now on, right? And and so there is, it, it does it operates like a virus, at least metaphorically. Burroughs, I think, is then taking it to the next level is like, well, that's because it is a virus, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think that's fascinating. I think it is, a, you know, I think it is a useful way of looking at it. it and it's certainly, it, like a lot of things that I think Burroughs says, whether or not it's 100% true in, I, I've been thinking a ton about this. There's this clip that was going around Twitter the other day about Yuval Noah Harari talking about how um, everything is just stories. It's just a story. Religion is just a story. This and that, they're just stories. And I just got thinking, it's just like, dude, do you not, do you not understand what a story is? <laughs> like, literally, this is how we understand. This is how we make life habitable, is by telling stories about it. That's the only way we even get through this thing. It, it is literally what we are yeah if we were not stories we would not name our children we would not 
follow names. No, the, the man is an ultimate bidwit. He should be yeah. shunned from public life and and anything he's ever touched should be raised yeah. to the ground. It's right. ridiculous. And he talks about a mountain is a mountain. And I'm like, no, a mountain is also a story, you moron. Yeah. Right. right. Because I mean, you know, it's like, have you have we we're just forgetting Wittgenstein happened? We're just forgetting right. all of this happened. Mm-hmm. No, it's mm-hmm. it's it's peak midwittery. It's actually not even midwittery. He's just a he's just a villainous uh, piece of scum who deserves to be again well, driven well, from public life. Well, and what I hate about it is he's literally attacking. He is going at the root of of meaning. Like the next step from oh, that's just a story is nothing means anything. That's the next, that's like the next logical conclusion. Well, yeah, of and course. Then, I mean, but they're, yeah. they just want totalitarian power. Right. And I right. guess, I guess like Davos this year is like rebuilding trust. And it's like, right. that's a funny title. Cause it's like, why would you need to do that? Yeah. yeah. What possibly yeah. happened when we're getting into right. the podcast down by the docks? Right. I've got right. the insects. The insect people are on the other line, Brad. <laughs> they're the other line. They're saying, uh, stop, they're stop it. Chittering away, <laughs> chittering away. They have, they have Dr. Wigger hostage. <laughs> no. No, not Doctor Wigger. Oh my God! When is uh, when is the gathering of the Juggalos? We've got to get ready. He's, he can't miss that. If he misses that, it's terrible. Um. So let's talk about for a bit, um, about what I think. Person, this is my personal opinion, and a lot of this has been, I suppose. I think that these three books that Burroughs put out in the 1980s. The Cities of the Red Knight, and the trilogy is called The Cities of the Red Knight, The Place of Dead Roads, and The Western Lands, I think these are a goddamn masterpiece. Now, I'm going to try to make that case um, in a fairly brief amount of time and give you a sense of what these things are. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read, this is going to sound wonky, but I once wrote a paper on these three books. Um, I'm going to read you just a little bit of it because it, it it's a, I think it's a good intro. I spent a lot of time in the past trying to write this as a good intro, so I'm going to use it. This is, uh, yeah. Um, okay, quote. The books are not novels. There's no one aspect, no scene or character that will tell you what they are. One thing does not lead to the next. There's no chart that can smoothly document what happens. But here are some pins to stick in that shape-shifting map. A universe of paradoxical science, observer-created religions, intractable time, spiritual mutiny, a set of prehistorical desert towns, the cities, serving as a gateway to the western lands, an ambiguous, paradisical, Egyptian-style afterlife promised only for the courageous and the lucky. The Red Knight itself is a radioactive virus sent back in time to either provoke chaos, wipe out the population, or begin the next stage of evolution. Probably all three. Language is a different virus that emerged in the distant past, which infects humanity up the throat and dissembles reality with all its symbols. Identity is fluid and transient such that the hero of this second book, a guy named Kim Carsons, a revolutionary gunslinger of the late 1900s who plans on colonizing space, is also the hero of the first book, a guy named Clem, Clem, Clem Snide, a private investigator specializing in sec, sex magic in essentially modern times. 
And he's also a gunsmith under a utopian pirate of the 1800s. He's also the creation of a writer named William Hall, who wrote at least some of the book he features in. He's also Audrey Carson, who sometimes just shows up or seems to be experiencing all of this as some kind of experiment. You only know they're the same person because Burroughs tells you nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Okay, now a little bit. I'm going to skip a little bit more of this. If somebody wants to read this, we might have in the show notes. It's definitely on Twitter. Um, I kind of broke some of this book down to the extent that it can be broken down. I'm going to read you a couple summaries or overviews from other people here to try and triangulate what the hell this trilogy is. Okay, this is from... There's a pretty good article um, on literary, uh, a website called Literariness, an article from this guy, a person named Nashrula Mambro, uh, literariness.org. And he, this writer just goes through every Burroughs book and just tells you what it is. And they're, they're pretty good. They're the best. I've, they're actually the best I've seen. Most of the time, if you buy a Burroughs book and you read the back cover, that has little to nothing to do with what's actually in the book. Um, so from literariness, talking about the first volume, Cities of the Red Knight, quote, the novel begins with three distinctive pl distinct plots, which seem at first to be only tenuously related. One plot concerns a retroactive utopia founded by 18th century pirates, which Burroughs uses as, as a foundation for social criticism. A second plot from which the title comes depicts mythical quote, cities of the Red Knight, which existed in prehistoric time and function as a dystopia through which the viewer a reader views present culture. A third plot involves a present-day investigator who traces the mystery of a deadly virus known as B-23 to its historical origins in the cities of the Red Knight. Each plot employs conventions from one popular genre or another. The story of the utopian pirates colony reads very much like a boy's adventure story. The story of the advanced prehistoric city takes its structure from science fiction, and the story of the investigation of the virus lends itself to the conventions of the hard-boiled detective story. That's a pretty darn good summary. Now, from the back of the book, Cities of the Red Knight, you get this. While young men wage war against an evil empire of zealous mutants, the population of this modern inferno is afflicted with the epidemic of a radioactive virus, an opium-infused apocalyptic vision. Okay. Um, now, I'm going to read you a little bit from Cities of the Red Knight. And I, if, if I succeed... If one person out there decides, goes through and reads all of these who hasn't read it, I will consider this episode a success. Um, <clears throat> okay, so one thing that happens in Cities of the Red Knight is there's this, this great character named Clem Snide. Clem Snide is a private investigator. He often uses sex magic to solve crimes. He's trying to solve a murder that has something to do with the the virus that, uh, the the radioactive space virus that affected cities of the red knight i know how ridiculous this all sounds now um one thing that clem snide kind of realizes he needs to do is he needs to uh to kind of solve this case or prevent something prevent prevent the virus from happening he needs to forge his own pre-recorded originals of, of events now i'm going to read something about this now he's talking to um the iguana sisters um, and he's reading a book called the Clemsonides reading a book called Cities of the Red Knight. And he's talking to the Iguana sisters who the seem to be these um, ageless 
weird mutants who are involved in every stage of, of history. And um, he gets a copy of the book from them. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, these are copies, the Iguana sister says. Please study them carefully. I will pay $1 million for recovery of the originals. How good are the copies? Clem Snide asked. Almost perfect. Then why do you want the originals? Collector's vanity? Changes, Mr. Snide, can only be affected by alterations in the original. The only thing not pre-recorded in a pre-recorded universe are the pre-recordings themselves. The copies can only repeat themselves word for word. A virus is a copy. You can pretty it up, cut it up, scramble it. It will reassemble in the same form. Without being an idealist, I am reluctant to see the originals in the hands of the Countess de Gulpa. She's the villain of the story. Um, reading a little bit further down. Um, she laid out a check for 200,000 cools on the table. I began examining the books, skipping through to get a general impression. They are composed in a variety of styles and periods. Some of them seem to stem from the 1920s of the Great Gatsby, old sport, and others to derive from the Edwardian era of Saki, reflecting an unbearably flawed boyishness. There is an underlying current of profound frivolity, with languid young aristocrats drawing epigrams in streets of disease, war, and death. There's a Rover Boys slash Tom Swift storyline where boys, boy heroes battle against desperate odds. The books are color comics. Jokes, Jim calls them. Some lost color process has been used to transfer three-dimensional holograms under the curious, tough, translucent, parchment-like material of the pages. You ache to look at these colors. What facts could have given rise to such legends? So that's not to give you really any concrete information, but to sort of point out the fact that within the cities of the red Knight, there is a book called the cities of the red Knight, which is purportedly by William S Burroughs, which is also some kind of hyperdimensional time warping object. Okay. <laughs> so place of dead roads. Again, I'm going to read from this, this great literariness article. <clears throat> Uh, in the sec quote, in the second book of the trilogy, The Place of Dead Roads, Burroughs continues the process of myth-making. His protagonist is Kim Carsons, a late 19th century gunslinger who utilizes a sort of hole in time, a phenomenon introduced in the cities of the Red Knight. Through this hole, Carsons becomes a time, tra time traveler moving precariously across time and space, encountering different cultures and time periods in an effort to forge some sense of the whole, some sense of control over his own destiny. He seeks uh, fulfillment in desperate, almost lonely homosexual encounters in drugs and in the sense of power he feels by manipulating others. This book is as autobiographical. It is... It's one layer removed from like autobiography, right? Kim Carson's 18th century gunslinger trying to shoot a hole in time is Burroughs trying to write his books, right? But it's framed as this like Wild West story that also includes time traveling and sex magic. <laughs> cool. Sounds yeah. Like a fun read, dude. It's, yeah, it's maybe a one trip, year, man. Maybe one year we throw it into the book club. Just so I, I can get a that. chance to read it. Yeah. Dude. yeah maybe yeah. next year. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't even know. Did we, I don't even know if we've picked our December pick. So maybe, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we, we throw have. a curveball. Yeah. 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 It would be a curveball. Yeah. If you're, yeah. if you're on Patreon, you're a member of the book club, whether you want to be or not, 
And uh, <laughs> you, you don't have to uh, you, you don't have to attend. Those happen on Zoom. Mm-hmm. If you can't make it or don't want to make it, uh, you can just listen back. We record it. It's extra content for oh, yeah. Patreon. And we've got some good selections. What's the first book for the book club, Brad, this year? We're doing Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. I've got yeah. my copy. I ordered yeah. all of my books for the year and nice. mass. So nice. my house is just like the, yeah. the, the <laughs> showing yes. up every day. <laughs> yeah. It's just like more books, more books, more Good. books, more books. It's starting to look like uh, the beginning of Ghostbusters. Excellent. Excellent. No human stack. Books no human way. being would yeah. No human stack <laughs> would stack books that, like this or so whatever that line is. I love that. Oh, it's yeah. so good. And there's a new Ghostbusters coming out, man. I'm oh, excited. that's right. Yeah, that Frozen exciting. Frozen Empire. I'll be I'll be there. Very I'm a cool. I'm a, a ghost. That's my fandom, dude. I yeah. love Ghostbusters. Cool. I'm not a super Ghostbusters nerd, but I'm yeah. I love that movie. That's yeah. a good. The, uh, yeah, yeah. It's hard not to like it. Yeah. Speaking of ectoplasm, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's very burrows and that that. That that series may be more Burroughs inspired than we we first think. Um, I'm going to read quickly what Burroughs said Place of Dead Roads is about. OK, um, this is I, I don't like to do favorites, but if you put a gun to my head and uh, said we're doing the William Tell routine, unless you tell me your favorite William S. Burroughs book, it would be Place of Dead Roads. Um, I think you can read it without reading Cities of the Red Knight, but reading both of them is is probably the best. This is Burroughs talking about the Place of Dead Roads. <laughs> Quote, the place of Dead Roads is a sequel to the cities of the Red Knight. What happened there was like commandos were parachuted behind enemy lines in time and they sort of cleaned up and drastically altered South and Central America. Dead Roads is is the same thing applied to North America. They did South and Central America in the Catholic Church. Now they're doing North America in the Protestant ethic and the Bible Belt. There's drastically fewer sexual scenes in Dead Roads than cities of the dead of the Red Knight. There's really not that many at all. It's really concerned with weaponry more than anything else. Weaponry on all levels. The whole history of weaponry and war. The history of this planet is the history of war. The only thing that gets a homo sapien up off his dead ass is a foot up, and that foot is war. Um, Now let me read a a passage from Place of Dead Roads. Um, Quickly-ish. William... Seward Hall, quote, William Seward Hall. It was a corridor, a hall leading to many doors. He remembered the long fugitive years after the fall of Wagdas. Wagdas is one of the cities. The knowledge inside him like a sickness, sickness, the migrations, the danger, the constant alertness, the furtive encounters with others who had some piece of the knowledge, the vast picture puzzle slowly falling into place. Time to be up and gone. You are not paid off to be quiet about what you know. You are paid not to find it out. And in this, in his case, it was too late. If he lived long enough, he couldn't help finding it out because that was the purpose of his life. A guardian of the knowledge and those who could, who could use it. And a guardian must be ruthless in defense of what he guards. And he developed new ways of imparting the knowledge to others. The old method of handing it down by word of mouth from master to initiate is now much too slow and too precarious. Death reduces the college. So he concealed and revealed the knowledge in fictional form. Only those for whom the knowledge is intended will find it. William Seward Hall, the man of many faces and many pen names of many times and places, how dull it is to pause, to make a rest, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use, pilgrim of adversity and danger, shame and sorrow, the traveler, the scribe, most hunted and fugitive of men, since the knowledge unfolding in his being spells ruin to our enemies. He will soon be in a position to play the deadliest trick of them all. The piper pulled down the sky, his hand will not hesitate. 
He has no capture and torture, abject fear and shame and humiliation that burn like acid. His hand will not hesitate to use the sword he is forging, an anti-magnetic artifact that cuts word and image to fragments. The Council of Transmigrants and Mwagadas had attained such a skill in the art of prophecy that they were able to chart a life from birth to death, and so can he unplot and unwrite. Oh, it may take a few hundred years before some people find out they have been unwritten and unplotted into random chaos. Okay. Um, moving along. Yeah. It's like a more menacing, sociopathic American glass speed game. Yeah, I think that there is something to that. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think I think there's something to that for sure. Now, let me let me do my my little spiel on the Western lands. Again, from this literariness article, I I do highly recommend if you're interested in specific works like it. Burroughs wrote a lot. And so if you're like, I want to, you know, I'm going to get a sense of what one might appeal to me the most. There's books we haven't talked about. The Wild Boys is quite good. Um, uh, Naked Lunch, obviously, if you haven't read that, is a, is a cool place to start and a pretty quick read. Um, but this article on literariness.org um, by Nashrula, what was there? What was this person's name? Um Nasrula, excuse me, Nasrula Mambrel. Um, so the Western Lands, uh, quote, in the third book of the trilogy, The Western Lands, the reader learns that Carson's was not shot by his opponent, Mike Chase, but by a killer from the land of the dead named Joe, described as a natural outlaw, those are in caps, N-O, whose job it is, is to break natural laws. Excuse me. The Western land itself is a mythical place, a utopian vision of a place beyond one's images of earth and heaven, a land where natural law, religious law and human law have no meaning. It is a paradise, but a paradise difficult to reach. Now, let me read a little bit more. This is actually from the summary on Goodreads. <laughs> I'm sort of I feel like I'm sort of cheating here, but these books are so hard to distill into like a capsule that I can just hand you that it feels easier to like pick a few other people's capsules and <laughs> see if I can see if I can get something to come out of them. Well, um, you're you're bringing us into, I think, technically our six here. So you oh are you are crushing oh, it. Yeah. You're maybe yeah. you're maybe slightly overcompensating for your your egregious treatment of Burroughs uh, on our first episode of Art of Darkness. <laughs> I am a little uh, bit, but that's yeah. great. I'm glad you're doing yeah. it. You are doing you're doing the definitive AOD treatment for this dude, and it has oh, been yeah. an emotional journey. I mm -hmm. am still riveted, and I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of this guy. No, great no. writer, great writer. He he is, he is, and I wanted to make sure we try to do that justice too. And we're very close to the end here. I mean, you know, you have to imagine when these books come out, he's an elderly man living in a in a well-appointed but modest little home in Lawrence, Can outside of Lawrence, Kansas. Right? His life has been as much of an adventure as anybody's ever, but it's it's coming down, and he's 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 trying to get the last book together, um, and he's done it. Um, but it's wild. <laughs> Let me read this. This is again about the Western lands. The symbolic vehicle Burroughs uses here is ancient Egyptian mythology, a longstanding interest of his. The Western lands of the title are the territory to which the Egyptians believe the souls of the dead made a hazardous, hazardous pilgrimage in their quest for true immortality. The questers, Joe the dead, Kim Carson's, who died in book two, but it's about the afterlife in part, right? The scribe Nefertiti, Hassani Saba, who is the old man of the mountain, from whom the word assassin comes from, supposedly. 
Um, travel through an unmistakably Burroughs-esque universe of appalling danger and otherworldly beauty. Now the back alleys of ancient Egypt, now bombed out Berlin, now the old west of the shootists. Their hallucinatory journeys express the author's belief that only through facing the most extreme dangers and testing the possibilities of biological mutation can man escape a dead-end world of blasted dreams and atomic finale. And presiding over all this is the haunting figure of the old writer who shares in the fate of his characters and being finally unable to write himself out of time and into space. Um, okay. Now, let me read a quick little thing from the bio uh, about Bur Burroughs talking about the Western lands. Um, let's see here. Um <sighs> Yeah, um, he described the Western lands to James Fox, quote, uh, Chaucer-esque pilgrims, adolescents almost to a man, travel through the land of the dead, the frontier beyond time, learning how to deal with space conditions. So part of the whole idea is like, we're going to go to space as a species, right? The, the, the water that we live in is time and we're going to escape into space. Uh, I compare this to the transition from, oh, he just says this. I compare this from the, to the transition from water to land of the various transitional species. Burroughs said that <clears throat> astronauts hadn't really gone into space because they went into space in an aqua lung. And he said that there had to be a link. The creatures had to have an air-breathing potential before they made the transition. If not, it would have been suicide. I see that dreams are the lifeline to our possible biological and spiritual destiny. Dreams sometimes approximate space conditions. That's what the Western Lands is about. It is a book about the possibility of hybridization, the crossing of man and animals. <laughs> He is on one in this in this thing, man. Uh, Burroughs, in the book uh, Western Lands, creates Margaris Unlimited, an independent ser secret service loyal to no country with its own agenda to provide and support for anything that favors or enhances space programs, space exploration, simulation of space conditions, exploration of inner space, uh, or expanding awareness. It is also the job of Margaris to extirpate anything going in the other direction, right? Um, space is both for him metaphorical as a place beyond control, but it's also literal in terms of physically going there at the same time. And, and I don't know that he ever really distills what he means by space. It's, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a dream symbol that maybe you'll under that by understanding you will transcend into somehow. Um, let me read a couple things from the Western lands. Um, and yeah, the Western lands not only represents its Egyptian afterlife, right? And he follows in some ways, Egyptian mythology, ancient Egyptian mythology. So the Western lands is not only the afterlife, but it's also symbolic of the overall, what I think he would think of as like the spiritual evolution of mankind. Like how do we transcend the trap that is life by somehow symbolically dying? Um, here's a quote from the Western lands. The road to the Western lands is the most dangerous of all roads and in consequence, the most rewarding to know the road exists, violates the human covenant. You are not allowed to confront fear, pain, and death, or to find out that the sacred human covenant was signed under pressure of fear, pain, and death. They can keep their covenant in case of being caught short with a million years of bullshit. To enter the Western lands means leaving the covenant behind in the human outhouse with the monkey ward catalogs. 
<clears throat> now, I'm going to read. This is, you know, uh, if you really are dead set on reading this, and I hope somebody out there does, I hope uh, some of you do, and I, I'm curious to hear people's thoughts about this. Um, I'm going to read literally the last page and a half, uh, last page of the Western Lands. It's his last work of fiction. So this is literally Burroughs' last page of fiction. He has some other books come out after this, but most of them are essays and collected journals and that sort of thing. Quote, I want to reach the western lands right in front of you, across the bubbling brook. It's a frozen sewer. It's known as the Duod, remember? All the filth and horror, fear, hate, disease, and death of human history flows between you and the western lands. Let it flow. My cat Fletch stretches behind me on the bed. He actually had a cat named Fletch, right? So this is like him. Uh, a tree like black lace against a gray sky. A flash of joy. How long does it take a man to learn that he does not, cannot want what he wants? You have to be in hell to see heaven. Glimpses, whoops, glimpses from the land of the dead. Flashes of serene, timeless joy. A joy as old as suffering and despair. The old writer couldn't write anymore because he had reached the end of words, the end of what can be done with words. And then, British we are, British we stay. How long can one hang on in Gibraltar with the tapestries where mustached riders with scimitars hunt tigers? The ivory balls one inside the other, bare seams showing, the long tea room with mirrors on both sides and the tired fuchsia and rubber plants, the shops selling English marmalade and Fortnum and Mason's tea clinging to their rock like the rock apes, clinging always to less and less. In Tangier, the parade bar is closed. Shadows are falling on the mountain. Hurry up, please. It's time. The end. Um, <clears throat> so, as I said, you know, once he moves to Lawrence, Kansas, it's sort of a slow decline from 1981 to 1997. Uh, especially after the city's trilogy is complete. He's kind of done as a writer. He starts making more money, uh, as I said before, selling his shotgun art to various um, galleries and, and collectors buying them. He's spending quite a bit of time doing that. He's having a lot of friends over. One thing I didn't mention about Burroughs is Burroughs maybe never cooked a meal for himself in his entire life. <laughs> when he had money, he would go out uh, like every meal ever, right? Um, could you imagine just literally think about going, yeah, living like 80 years worst, and never cooking a meal? the worst fun kid ever. Right, right. <laughs> He's the king. You yeah. can't outdo him. I don't care. I don't care yeah. if you're in a loft in Bushwick. I yeah. don't care, you know, you're, you're in a polycule in a Bushwick yeah. loft. Yeah. You're never going to top this dude. Yeah. He had a polycule going before that was even a word. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, but in these later years, he's having a lot of friends over. There's a sort of rotating cast of Lawrence, friends and Lawrence who will come and cook him dinner and hang out. He's drinking every day. He drinks, uh, as an old man, he's drinking a, a pint of, uh, of vodka. He drinks a vodka and Coke. He's drinking about a pint a day. He's on methadone. He's taking methadone every morning to, you know, sort of, for people who don't know, methadone is basically a somewhat less narcotic version of of uh, uh it's an opiate but it's a somewhat less narcotic version and it serves as sort of a placeholder for people who have addiction to heroin and that sort of a thing um and uh some people can manage to just live on that 
for a long period of time and it doesn't quite lead to the to the spiraling that that opiates can um he's got a he has a triple bypass in the early 1990s and now he's an elderly man 1992 he has a sweat lodge ceremony with a, a navajo elder from the four corners area of new mexico um he finds this to be highly effective he thinks it helps him understand if not totally get rid of the ugly spirit and he finds it more healing than all the years of therapy that he did um at some point in the mid 90s he writes in his journal something like um i wish i had it in front of me but i'm just remembering it now he says something like it occurs to me and i don't know what to do with this that i'm actually a, a very fortunate and happy man um, and it seems like a surprise to him, which there's something charming about that to me, <laughs> you know, like an old, you know, an old man puttering around. He gets, he gets, uh, very into his cats, um, starts with strays and then he has a bunch of cats and he really, he becomes a, a cat lady, an old cat lady. Um, but many people say that, you know, after the sweat lodge and as he gets older, he really started to, his heart kind of opened. He started to really listen to people instead of just sort of holding court, which had been more of his style. Uh, he seemed to feel it more distinctly when people died. I mean, people were dying, had been dying in his life and in his orbit all the time, but it seemed like a bigger deal to him. Um, but his health is gradually failing. You know, his cataracts, they said the triple bypass. bypass. Allen Ginsberg dies April of 1997, dies before Burroughs, and they'd sort of sorted out some of the differences that they'd had in life. Burroughs appears in 1997. He appears in a U2 promotional video. Um, and it's kind of for the band U2. And it's kind of funny. He'd apparently never seen U2 written down anywhere. And in his journals, he spells out Y-O-U-T-O-O. -O. Something about film the Y-O-U-T-O-O -O video today. Or it's just a funny old man moment. Um, uh, his cat... Fletch dies, the cat that he mentions in the Western Lands, dies, and he takes it very hard. It seems to him like an encapsulation of all the death. It's like this cat dies, and suddenly he's mourning everybody he knows who died. His mom, his dad, Joan, Alan, various friends he's known along the way, all of these people, Billy, right? He's sort of feeling all the death of him and of everybody in this cat. Three days later, he has a heart attack gets picked up in an ambulance and um he says to a friend who happens to be there when it happens he says i'll be back in no time and a few hours later he passes away um i'm gonna read uh the last thing there's a book that came out the the final journals of william s burroughs i'm gonna read the last thing this might have been the last thing that he wrote um Atom bomb is the ultimate soul killer that vaporizes all debts as it vaporized the steel tower at Almogordo, New Mexico. Our vegetable love will grow vaster than empires and more slow. No idea where or why that quote came from, though the whole poem, of course, brain littered up with old bits and pieces. Pieces of eight, screamed the parrot. Wouldn't you, if you were a parrot, had learned how? Felicity Mason describing me to someone holding tickets I needed. Quote, when you see someone who looks like the saddest man in the world, that's him. How can a man who sees and feels be other than sad? To see Ginger, that's a cat, always weaker and older. The price of immortality, of course. We well, should have thought of these things. I did. Thinking is not enough. Nothing is. 
There is no final enough of wisdom, experience, any fucking thing. No holy grail, no final satori, no final solution, just conflict. Only thing can resolve conflict is love. Like I felt for Fletch and Rusky and Spooner and Calico. Pure love. What I feel for my cats, present and past. Love? What is it? Most natural painkiller what there is. And that was the life and work of William S. Burroughs. And of course, we'll be back to talk about other things. But yes, <laughs> Kevin's Just shooting one me. shot. <laughs> Banger. Good job, yeah. Brad. That was awesome. Thanks, that man. was a big that really kicks off season four. We've yes. already technically begun the season, mm -hmm. but that really kicks it off. Indeed. Indeed. Lovely job. Thank Thanks, you for man. doing the work. What would Burroughs be doing now? What do we think? We've already answered it, but let's let's do it one more time. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he's remembered most as a writer, but I think it's important to think of him as a very much like a multimedia artist. And so uh, I think he may have continued writing, but he also may have gotten more into video. Um, you know, somebody he might have needed some help with the technical aspects, but I think he would have been he would have been seeing new. Um, manifestations of control through our technology and i think he would have been looking for ways to disrupt it in some way whatever that might mean whatever that might mean um you know making he might be you know he's an interesting guy because he could he might have gotten like really into deep fakes but his point of deep fakes was to like not to uh you know make a make a porn of a woman uh, of a celebrity or something but to like actually disrupt your ability to know to get information you know like really screw with the ability of the medium to control you um i don't know that's what i think lovely work we're going to be back yeah. for the after dark for <laughs> patreon this is uh, the core of what we do and if you yes. think that it's worth five bucks a month that's what it costs to get in the door you get the book club you get the after darks you give brad and me the ability to buy the books we need yeah the ability to go to mexico city so we can uh just drink, find drink with a bear of, find the source of the <laughs> ectoplasm really yeah. though we don't we don't blow money on trips no, so, but it, no. truly we really appreciate the support our existing supporters thank you so much we'll see you on the after dark quick yeah. rattle off what are we going to talk about when we yeah we're going to talk about burrows and scientology uh, what Burroughs did to try and communicate with the gray aliens. And we're going to read a little bit from the unpublished and rarely read William S. Burroughs archive. Given right, to us, sent to us by friend of the show on Twitter at Old Man Telegram. Follow him. And you can reach us at Art of Dark Pod and at Google or at uh, Gmail, artofdarkpod at gmail.com. Okay, Brad, here we're going to end the episode. I got my little latte on the top of the head. Ready? Yeah. Oh, God. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen and I did it anyway, Kevin. <laughs> now it's off to Ecuador. Ecuador.